Greetings, and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History, Herstory, and True History, Herstory of Nasara. Infinite blessings to each of you. We have a full moon tonight. It is exact at 11.42 p.m. Eastern Time. So out on the Pacific Coast, that would be 842, and uh, it is the Festival of Humanity. And we talked a little bit about the Festival of Humanity yesterday. It's the third of the three festivals, and it is working toward divinity, attunement to God's will, and right human relationships. So that's what we're calling in here today as we begin our work. And it is representing the work of Gautama Buddha, Lord Maitreya, and the Christ energy. It is also known as World Invocation Day. So let us go into our heart center as we get started. (laughs) Going into our sacred heart center, the portal to all that is, we call forth for the full emergence and integration of our soul of our higher self, of our monad, our mighty I am presence, and all of our multidimensional being through to our God presence, goddess presence. As we merge, we see ourselves in our mighty pillar of light. It is filled with a beautiful rainbow white light And we see, sense, and feel our pillar of light fully anchored to source and fully anchored to the heart of Mother Earth. As we recommit ourselves to being the bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age, and the open door that no one can shut, we invite in everyone across the planet to join us in this powerful ascension work. We do that through the following prayer. Please join me in saying, I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of every man, woman, and child. I am one with every family member and loved one. I am one with all that is. And so... We invite in for everyone, all soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul family and soul past. We welcome for everyone, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame our Ascension Council and Mission Council. We welcome as well all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim, and all angelic healers and healing teams, 
We welcome the Ascended Masters, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Raisin Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the Enlightened Masters, all Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the Planetary and Cosmic Hierarchy of Light, and all Ascended Master Healers and Healing Teams. We welcome as well the healing teams from the Galactic Federation of Light, especially those that we work so very closely with from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, and from Venus, from Lyra as well. We welcome the assistance of all cosmic galactic universal healers that can be of service. As we welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven, and ask for our Mother, Father, God to overlight all of our work, all of our ascension work, all of our work for this festival of humanity. And we ask that this be magnified, magnified, magnified 999 billion times, 999 billion times in alignment with divine will and divine law the maximum that we can receive individually and collectively. As we see everyone join us in their pillar of light, every man, woman, and child, let us take a moment to connect heart to heart, high heart to high heart, cosmic heart to cosmic heart, as we are all connected to the cosmic heart of all that is. And we call in for one and all, all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws, all of the ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received through every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our auric field, multidimensionally, on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level as well. And we ask to easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody these frequencies, blessings, these dispensations. With the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium, without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level, in love and light and laughter. We hold in our hearts all those in our circle of support including Rainbird and her family and every man, woman, and child that we placed in, every family member and loved one, every pet, every animal, every situation, every nation. And we call upon the energy of this festival celebrated around the world. We call on the energy of this world invocation day to truly anchor divinity for people to realize that the will of God is the will of their divine self. And that it is time to come together in peace and harmony and goodwill, love, reverence, and respect for everyone. And we hold that vision here today. 
at this full moon, at this festival of humanity, the festival of goodwill. And we ask Gaia to join us in this work as well, receiving all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of our org field, through every ley line and song line, through the grid system, through the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids. May those grids of love, light, and unity be totally lit up this weekend, Can, making sure that everyone feels connected to everyone else. and realizing the oneness amongst all people. And we call it forth for Gaia into every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water, and a molecule of fire. Through every portal, every vortex, every monument, every sacred site, every place of power, every stargate, every city of light across the planet, that the entire earth be filled with cities of light as we continue this amazing spiral of evolution along with Gaia. Higher and higher in frequency each moment we can feel it. And she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. And we are all ascended, one and all, the earth and all upon her. And so we give thanks for this as we hold this vision here today. We're going to do a couple of the prayers. Again, we'll be doing a little bit more ceremony tomorrow. But we're going to do the great invocation, the long version. as we honor the traditional prayer set at each of these three festivals. Let the forces of light bring illumination to humankind. Let the spirit of peace be spread abroad. May everyone of goodwill everywhere meet in the spirit of cooperation. May forgiveness on the part of all be the keynote at this time. Let power attend the efforts of the great ones, so let it be, and help us to do our part. Let the lords of liberation issue forth. Let them bring succor to all of humanity. Let the writer from the secret place come forth and coming save. Come forth, almighty one. Let the souls of everyone awaken to the light. And may they stand with massed intent. Let the fiat of the Lord go forth. The end of woe has come. Come forth, Almighty One. The hour of service of the saving force has now arrived. Let it be spread abroad, Almighty One. Let light and love and power and death fulfill the purpose of the coming one. The will to save is here. The love to carry forth the work is widely spread abroad. The active aid of all who know the truth is also here. Come forth, Almighty One, and blend these three. Construct a great defending wall. The rule of evil must now end. From the point of light, within the mind of God, 
Let light stream forth into the minds of all. Let light descend on earth. From the point of love within the heart of God, let love stream forth into the hearts of all. May Christ return to earth. From the center where the will of God is known, let purpose guide the little wills of all, the purpose which the masters know and serve. From the center which we call the race of humanity, let the plan of love and light work out and may it seal the door where evil dwells. Let light and love and power restore the plan on earth. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And this is the other second prayer, the affirmation of the disciple. Stay in your hearts as I say this for us all. I am a point of light within a greater light. I am a strand of loving energy within the stream of love divine. I am a point of sacrificial fire, focused within the fiery will of God, goddess, and thus I stand. I am a way by which all may achieve. I am a source of strength enabling them to stand. I am a beam of light shining upon their way and thus I stand. And standing thus, revolve and tread this way, the ways of humanity, and know the ways of God, and thus I stand. I strive toward understanding. Let wisdom take the place of knowledge in my life. I strive toward cooperation. Let the master of my life, the soul, and likewise the one I seek to serve, throw light through me on others. In the center of the will of God, goddess, I stand. Not shall deflect my will from his. I implement that will by love. I turn toward the field of service. I, the divine triangle, work out that will within the square and serve my fellow humanity. I'm a messenger of light. I'm a pilgrim on the way of love. I do not walk alone, but I know myself as one with all great souls and one with them in service. Their strength is mine, this strength I claim. My strength is theirs, and this I freely give. A soul, I walk on earth. I represent the one. I am one with my group of brothers and sisters, and all that I have is theirs. May the love which is in my soul pour, pour forth to them. May the strength which is in me lift and aid them. May the thoughts which my soul creates reach and encourage them. I know the law, and toward the goal I strive. Not shall arrest my progress on the way. Each tiny life within my form responds. My soul has sounded forth that call. And clearer day by day it sounds. The glamour holds me not. The path of light streams clear ahead. My plea goes forth to reach the hearts of all. I seek. I try to serve your need. 
give me your hand and tread the path with me. The sons and daughters of humanity are one. And I am one with them. I seek to love, not hate. I seek to serve, not exact to service. I seek to heal, not hurt. Let pain bring to reward of light and love. Let the soul control the outer form and life and all events and bring to light the love which underlies the happening, happenings of the time. Let vision come and insight. Let the future stand revealed. Let inner union demonstrate and outer cleavages be gone. Let love prevail. Let all humanity love. We know, O Lord, of life and love about the need. Touch all our hearts anew with love, that we too may love and give. And so it is. Take a nice deep breath. Can see the unity as we are filled with amazing, amazing frequencies of divine love, transfiguring divine love, comprehensive divine love. And I speak for us all as I affirm, oh, Father, Mother, God, I invoke your divine light and the light of the entire company of heaven. Powers of light, powers of light, come forth now. In deep humility and profound gratitude, I consecrate every facet of my being to be the open door that no one can shut. In divine truth, I accept my reality as a beloved child of God Goddess. I am a cup, a holy grail through which the light of God, Goddess, is now flowing to lift all life on earth into the blissful embrace of the new earth. I am my mighty I am presence, and I am one with the divine heart and mind of God, Goddess. I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with the elemental kingdom and Mother Earth. I am one with the angelic kingdom. I'm one with all of the beings of light throughout infinity. Now through the unspeakable power of my mother God's love, all life is lifted into the immaculate concept of the divine plan for the new earth. Within this concept of infinite physical perfection, every person remembers they are a beloved son or daughter of God Goddess. Every person comprehends the divine truth that all life is interconnected, interrelated, and interdependent. A renewed sense of oneness and reverence for all life stirs in each heart flame. And the love of our Mother God floods the earth through humanity's heart chakras. As the love of God Goddess flows through each person's heart flame, they are lifted up and their lives are transformed. From this new level of consciousness, 
humanity taps into the patterns of perfection for the new earth and viable solutions to the maladies existing on earth flow into the minds of light workers everywhere. The light workers join forces to create the perfection of the new earth. All traces of pain and suffering are transmuted into light. Every concept of lack and limitation ceases to exist, and the abundance of God floods the earth. People everywhere perceive and acknowledge the divinity blazing in every heart. Humanity now knows and accepts that all life is divine. This realization inspires every person to feel and express love and mutual respect for every part of life. As the collective thoughts and feelings of humanity continually empower the perfection of the new earth, the physical plane is transformed and transfigured. The body of Mother Earth is restored to a verdant paradise of splendor and light. The life of every living being is filled with love, joy, happiness, prosperity, and fulfillment. Enlightenment, eternal peace, harmony, balance, abundance, spiritual wisdom, and every other divine quality of our Mother, Father, God is the order of the new day on planet Earth. Mother Earth dons her seamless garment of light and ascends the spiral of evolution into the full expression of her new fifth-dimensional solar reality. The heavens rejoice, and our Mother, Father, God responds. Welcome home, beloved children. Well done. And so it is. I am. I am. I am. Take a nice deep breath. And let us see, just hold that vision this week of every aspect of heaven on earth coming to fruition. And I thank you for your divine service. I invite you to further divine service each and every Sunday and Monday evening when we do the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls. We begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We have greetings for about 25 minutes. And Tara and Rama give us a brief update as well. And at 9.30, we start our meditation and our work in bringing heaven to earth in earnest. 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific time. Again, this is a teleconference call. The number that we're using at this time, the best number to use is ERIC code 480-660. And each each call is unique, has different meditations and activations, invocations and prayers. 
again, but our work is to anchor heaven on earth. I have other, many other phone numbers. There's even local numbers that you can use if you need something um, local. I can do that. I can let you know what that number would be. And you can get on through the internet. You can get on through an app. Just look for freeconference.com. And I can get you that information as well. If you want to contact me, email me at Cheryl Croce. My name is C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I at AOL.com. And like I said, there's international numbers as well. So we can get you started with us if you haven't joined us before. We hope you become a a regular member of the family of light and let us know where you're calling from as well. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your service here today and each Saturday. And we thank Tower and Mama for their service as well. And Rainbow for her service as she is again away this weekend. And um, we hold her and her family in our hearts as she is at her brother's memorial this weekend. So I'm going to do the housekeeping at this time. And um, Tarn and Rama are very, very grateful for all of your generosity. Um, we're still working to pay off this week's programming. Um, and then um, for this week and next week, probably about $340 would work. Okay. So I'm rounding. And, um, but they're very, very grateful that they're so close to paying this off right now um, for this week. Um, They still need money for their expenses, for their food, for their gas, generally $200 a week. Um, They are so grateful they were able to take care of the couple of bills that we mentioned last night. And they have other bills coming up that come to about $300. That includes for the electric bill and the gas bill and the insurance and more. So um, that's that's about $300 for the other expenses that they have, the other bills that are coming up for their personal needs. So again, go into your heart center and see what you can do to support them. They've done this work so for so very long, and um, we're grac- grateful for your support. If you want to do, uh, donate directly to the BBS Radio Bill, you can go to bbsradio.com. As I mentioned yesterday, um, I went I I went to the programming and found the hard news on Friday, and uh, you can you know use that BBS. You can go to their uh, programming and find the show and then where and maybe that's what you're on right now um, the um, the true history uh, program for Saturday um, but each one of them has a donation button and using that donation button to make your uh, contribution goes directly to the account with BBS radio so that is super handy to do to use and you can do that, again, BBS Radio. It covers all three programs. 
Friday, Saturday, and Thursday, the night at the round, uh, night at the round table. And um, so, you know, if you're enjoying the program, make sure that you're contributing and helping to cover the radio, radio expenses. We appreciate your donation. You can do that through your bank card. Very, very easy to do. And, of course, we've talked about Taran Rama's personal needs. So to contribute to their personal needs, the best way to do that is to go to rainbowroundtable.net. Again, that's rainbowroundtable.net altogether. Um, I usually go to, it comes up for me automatically, I've done it so often, where it's rainbowroundtable.net forward slash donate hyphen one. But either way, if you go to rainbow, uh, rainbowroundtable.net, there's a, a donate button at the top. It'll take you to the page I'm talking about, and you look for the heart towards the bottom of the page to donate, and it takes you directly to the friends option, the donation, it's an actual donation, um, and going into Taran Rama's account. So again, that's a super easy way to do it. Let Please let Rama know. I know I'm, I'm, uh, I don't always do this myself, but it's important to let Rama know what they're getting and how much and when the gift was sent. So the email address to let him know is Koran9999 at hotmail.com. Again, it's Koran9999 at hotmail.com. And if you want to send a check or a money order, Sending it uh, to them physically. The address is uh, make it payable to Ram D as in David Berkowitz B E R K O W I T Z, and that's at Post Office Box two eight zero, Santa Cruz, New Mexico eight seven five six seven, and. Um, you can email him and let them know. Let him know that you're sending something by mail as well. Um, I've been having blessings, uh, <laughs> getting things very quickly. So bless it when you send it, and uh, send it by angel mail that way. Send the angels with it. And one last note: to join the NFT Rewards program, you can go to nftrewards.biz/register. Slash Koran nine nine nine. So K O R A N nine nine nine. So my infinite blessings go with each of you. Have a glorious, glorious week. Thank you for being here and being a part of our family of light. And with that, we're going to thank Torn Rama for their service. Again, going into your heart and seeing how you can contribute, how you can demonstrate your abundance at this uh, full moon of the greater tractor, uh, knowing that, you know, as we give out, we receive. So we thank you, thank you, thank you. As Rainbow would, would say, 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. So uh, have a wondrous, wondrous week. Have a wondrous full moon. May it be enlightening and illuminating for everyone. And I'm past the talking stick with all the rainbow colors, and with all this full moon illumination to you, Taran Rama. Infinite blessings to all. We'll see you next week.
and Sunday and Monday. Okay, Tara Rama. Greetings. Thank Greetings you. and blessings, dear. Thank you. And you as well. Blessings and blaze the violet fire, Cheryl. Happy full moon. I, I tend to carry it all the time. Thank you. Yes, I will. <laughs> and from from banking to holistic healing, I learned something new about you today, Sister Cheryl. That was another lifetime ago, yes. <laughs> all in one all in one moment. <laughs> and uh so we're all doing ascension now. That's for sure. Thank you for your contribution. It's always so it's just it's uplifting. Thank you, Cheryl. Okay. All right, Rama. I'm going to pass the talking stick to you so you can give your update because you didn't give it to me because scrambled eggs was the day, name of the day today. Mm. <laughs> I um, heard an archbishop talking today on Radio Garden and he was talking about unilateral nuclear disarmament which was uh, just a magical thing to hear about because uh, um, let's say we are right at that point where like I keep saying the captain is on red alert and like we've been told there won't be any sort of nuclear war yet they're pushing and this archbishop talked about the hegemony and how Russia is not the enemy it is this empire over here yet that's not discussed in the mainstream media um, that's basically all he talked about and um, it was just quite enlightening to hear um, he's also a Buddhist, besides being an archbishop, and he follows the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh. And um, just amazing stuff going on. And Tom and Sweet Angelique sent me a picture of the three pyramids in Antarctica that exactly look like the three pyramids on the Giza Plateau. You mean mathematically exact? No, it's a photograph. No, I mean they are mathematically located in the exact same. I'm not sure if they are. Oh, did you got to send that to Penny? Yeah. Wow, what's that red stuff at the top? That's <laughs> an arrow on Google Earth. If you can find it, because they try to hide stuff like that. Um, that arrow is very clear. It's bright red. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. Oh, you mean they're trying to hide that picture? Yeah, the photograph. I'm not sure how somebody put that together. Oh, you mean, where did that person find <laughs> the the picture? On Google Earth, somehow. Oh, yeah. I, so, yeah. did you save that picture? Yes, I saved onto it. your hard drive. Yeah, that's an amazing picture. Yeah, 
all of these things are coming forward now that uh, we, so many stories that link up with the big story of how we are all sons and daughters of the Most High. And some of us got a little tipsy with the power without the love and you see what's unfolding. Need I say any more? I guess the talking stick. What did you say? That was some, what did you say? Wait a minute. Back up the truck. <laughs> what did you say? We are all sons and daughters of the Most High, yet some of us got a little tipsy with drunk on the power without the love. And here we are, you know, 26,000 years later, because nobody ever dies. Uh, you just read. Well, the physical body as people. As they spiraled down in evolution and it, lost it, Well, the, the consciousness affects the physical. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yet Rama's the only person I know that knows somebody 20,000 years old. Yes. And she is, even if she's the only one, it's living proof that death is only an option. It is. And Ignorance is not bliss. In other words, if you're going to believe everything they say on that TV tube and not pursue higher knowledge and higher wisdom, well, then what they say on that TV tube ends up being the lot of your whole life, including your physicality. Uh, Right now, in our present timeline, if you can find him, Babaji is alive and well in the Himalayas and you can sit and meditate with him. It's not a joke. It's real. <laughs> oh, that was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. I. Is there more you want to share about the energy today? What just you- that there is this overall sense that it, it is time to hold these fallen angels accountable for what has occurred for the last 26,000 years because it's not about skin color. It is about what's in the heart. We are all creators, sons and daughters of the Most High. And as I'm seeing it right now, this is number one issue on the table and it's a big one because if we are to meet people from Pleiades, people from Sirius, people from uh, Procyon, um, Alpha Centauri, I mean infinite realms of infinite possibilities and it is all under the banner of love. Well, I pass the talking stick. Okay, I'm just going to say some things from what I heard in the news today. Just to be aware. Um, 
And one of them is the debt ceiling agreement. Biden signed the debt ceiling bill into law today. And this is what that agreement creates. One, two, three, four, five, six points. Oh, it says seven points. What did I skip? Hmm. Uh, let's see. I'm going to read it from the board. Suspends debt ceiling until January 1st, 2025. In other words, we don't have a debt ceiling. All we have is what's in this agreement. In other words, the the raising of the debt ceiling didn't happen now. There was just an agreement in lieu of it. And that the first statement is that to we have, well, January 1st, 2025, and this is June 1st, so that's a year and a half. It's not really two years. January 1st is a year and a half from now. Plus two days. <laughs> it limits military spending. That's a good thing. I mean, if they really do it, and I don't trust these people at all. <laughs> I don't. It is so evil with what is up there. And uh, Well, if you're bringing up. that up. Yeah. The deep state created the scenario that's on the media, and it's one big cover-up. It is. We created a hologram of Putin. <laughs> Stuck them in there so that the deep state can decide what they want to attribute to what Putin's doing in the name of Russia. And it's all the deep state. It is. And then Zelensky is an asset of the deep state over here. How the heck did he get a $35 million home in Florida? I mean, not very far away from the Mar a Lago of Grumpyville. What? And he was a comedian before this. Now he's, he's said, oh, I'm going to follow that money. He got a deal and a half, and this is not cute, because he's part of the cover-up in the name of Ukraine. So, again, that's the second point. It limits military spending to $886 billion. Eight hundred. I remember when it was down to four hundred billion. Now we're at eight hundred and eighty-six billion. Well, maybe we got to start. Don't go in there. Huh? Don't go in there. Stay here until you start. We're going to start in a minute. I'm just going to finish reading this. Then the third, the third thing is. It limits non-military discretionary spending to $704 billion. And that's a joke. <laughs> Two, rescinds, the next one is rescinds about $28 billion in unspent COVID relief funds. And remember, that's the, the biggest genocide ever. And... uh uh, again, as people want to question the King of Swords and they want to question the messages from the Faction Three White Knights, 
that's a good thing, you know, if you're not sure. I'll just say that at the highest level, the Faction Three White Knights are getting their orders from Saint Germain. And, of course, if the most people don't know who the heck that is. Yet he's been having an office in Washington, D.C. and two offices in Virginia for how many years, Rama? 60, 70? I mean, he doesn't age. But in the more modern, maybe right post-World War II that came in. And that's another really important thing. There was never an actual treaty signed, which means that World War II never really ended, ever. So all of this is an extension of World War II going on in lieu of not calling it World War III, which would be using nukes, having a thermal nuclear war. This is what this archbishop talked about today, basically saying this is uh, not a solution and exposing it to the world is, you know, a good thing. And there are other solutions, how to create energy and talk to the sun. He didn't say that, I'm saying that. <laughs> right. In the meantime, you know, I'm just reading these things, and I just want you to know that 49 Democratic representatives in the House refused to vote for raising this debt ceiling or this agreement. And that's the, the squad, AOC and all the others, Ilhan Omar, Talib, Rashid Rashid Talib, and Yah, Ilhan Omar. No, I said that one. The oh. last one is from Connecticut, I think, or Massachusetts over there. She doesn't have any hair on her head. Yeah. I forgot her name. But, uh, I'm just saying Rashid Talib is from Detroit, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, those are the squad members. And Bernie Sanders refused to sign off on this. And Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren and Sheldon Whitehouse. These are all the awake uh, members of the House of the Democratic Party. They are way beyond the others. So, again... You can talk about compromise. The thing is, is that going on the third dimensional arrangements that have been going on, um, and we learned a little bit about this when uh, our professor emeritus, Professor Richard Wolf, talked about with this other man, please forgive me for not remembering his name, but I thought that was really significant, where this man that Professor Wolf was talking with pointed out that our founding fathers were not interested in helping the people at the bottom line. They were interested in power and control and money, which is what's been going on for however long, 223 
1776. <laughs> Since the Declaration of Independence, from 13 to 7. 7 from 11 is 4. Uh, 7 from 9 is 2. 247 years. That's one year past uh, 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 Pluto. Pluto going yeah. around the sun, right? Yeah. One time around the sun takes Pluto 247 years. 248. No, for 246. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. That's right there. It's also give or yeah. take a little extra. Uh, but the point we're making is what does Pluto represent? It represents total transformation. If any of the planets represent ascension, Pluto would represent that. Yes. Which was what Cheryl keeps telling us in invoking his divine government. Yes. And Omina was squibbling over divine emotion. And I'm just saying that I've heard that word, those two words put together. What they actually mean is calling on our higher selves. Emotions are what you do with them. I mean, what's love got to do with that? There's different levels of love. <laughs> Yeah, there is. Well, that song is saying, what's love got to do with it? Gina Turner, I'll play it. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> Bless her heart. She had a magnificent career. And lady? I didn't know she had that spiritual kind of music that you played from her. Oh, yeah. What was the name of that song? Um, oh, I'll try play to that again, it. Sam. Yeah, play it again, Sam. Yes. And uh it really has to do with higher love, if I could put it that way. The next piece of that love, truth. There's all kinds of levels of what they say is true or not. And we're not talking about politics. We're talking about higher conscious awareness of what truth is. And then the third one is inner peace. And the emotion of inner peace is an emotion. Uh, yet it's calling on uh, nature and nature's God. That's where peace resides. In nature and nature's God. And the level of how much we un comprehend about it. So then the, the next one is freedom. Right, Rama? Mm-hmm. Well, what's freedom? Freedom to do whatever you want? Oh, that can get you in a whole lot of trouble. It depends on the level of, again, our consciousness about you know, once you open that door of higher consciousness, it can never be shut. Yeah. Once you know that you know, I know that you know that I love you. What I want you to know is that I know you love me too. And at a higher conscious level, that door cannot be shut. You can squawk and kick and scream and do everything else in the book. 
It doesn't go away. It don't. Love, love is. When you say that with no teeth in your mouth, you make me laugh, Robin. <laughs> Forgive us. Oh, we oh. got to take some pictures and we got to find out for everybody else. Micah knows this doctor or physician as he could get a picture of the teeth in one's mouth. He can do something to regenerate. Re- regenerate the teeth, and that's a very good thing. And then there's another piece. It's a, a regenerating uh, the telomeres, and what's those stem cells? Gentle. Lengthening the stem cells. And bone marrow creates stem cells. Yes, at that level, that's true. Which, you know, and blood uh, also comes from the bone marrow. Yeah. So our physical structure, our bone structure, and all of the things that happen in the bone structure can be regenerated and re revitalized. And... Again, that has to do with consciousness. You don't have a a woman walking around 20,000 years old without knowing all these things. And what does the Buddha say? Don't be sorry. Don't do it. I mean, do it. Don't do the thing that makes you sorry. So do the thing the first time around that you know makes you happy. Don't worry, be happy. These are such simple, simple things. And I was talking to someone just the other day, and I'm going to repeat it again. This is science. This is not debate. Uh, the physical human body is classified scientifically as an herbivore. What does that mean? It means eating herbs and vegetables and fruits and nuts and seeds. No dairy, no meat, no eggs. Though that that is not that is not made up story. It's science. I'm just saying. Uh and uh okay, so Ram, I don't go away. I'll I'll stop talking now. I'm, I'll just read. I'll read a few more things. All right, let's just finish this list. Um, limits non-military discretionary spending to seven hundred and four billion. Rescinds about twenty eight billion in unspent COVID relief funds. And I'm just going to say there are billions of people that they removed from this planet, which may be not comprehensible to uh, 99% of the people. Yet, um, again, at a higher conscious level, it's not so important right now because what's Happening here is that post Nasara law, about four months, 
since 9-11, those who have already gone over the rainbow for whatever reason, including three plus billion and a half billion people in the last three years, like it or not lump it, it's true, and it doesn't matter so much. But these beings, with their whole uh, free will choice still intact, are um, can and shall their will through their will manifest themselves back in the exact same body they left with everything completely well and healthy and whole and you might say it's a second chance on life because the collective mind and heart of the human race didn't want what happened on 9-11 That was not the will of the people. That was the will of George Bush Jr. And this is the relationship of the King of Swords to this story. And our sister Deanna, who's over the rainbow now, um, she had uh, taken a picture on the ground level from her TV while Rama and I were living with her in Idaho Falls, she took a picture of the King of Swords guarding George Bush Jr. while he's marching down the street. Is that New York? He was in New York, right, to ground zero. Yeah. And we could see the King of Swords. He was assigned to being, you know, one of the guards uh, for flanking him. And, of course... We don't have that picture, and when rain, when when Deanna went over the rainbow, her family uh, were not where we were, and thought we were, you know, a little kooky. <laughs> so they wouldn't talk to us, and that's okay. It's all okay. The experience that we had, and the witnessing of that, and knowing who that is, and we know some folks who were living in this place in Santa Fe where their landlord at the time was the King of Swords and they knew him. And then we went to see them. They got their blessings. Um, and they live in this mountain uh, area up there in Colorado. And that's uh, amazing because all of these Younger people were living there with them. And I'm saying that we know their parents. We know Micah knows uh, uh, one of their parents. And uh, uh, these two girls, they were sisters, uh, and they both uh, were taking Aikido classes with Micah when he was doing that with a a six-degree Don teacher of the Aikido Japanese. And and this is just so, the stories can go on. And the consciousness now is going to a higher level. So I'll keep on going. It's time to start playing the show. So the next one is it eliminates... Uh, 1.4 billion in IRS funding. Now that's sneaky. 
They don't want to be audited. The, the brilliant idea of the McCarthy and Republican friends is let's just cheat and never pay taxes or some little 3% of it and the IRS doesn't have enough money to go after us. That's the whole gist of eliminating 1.4 billion in IRS funding. And, and this is why intervention is on the, on the higher level of, on the higher plate, you might say. And, uh, because the people are there. The people want something different than this divisive idea called compromise. And again, uh, on the morning of 9-11, it was Joe Biden, our dead person in office for four and a half going on five years now, uh, a hologram of all these things, having 38-some years being in all the political arena that he's been in Washington and all of that, on automatic, nobody has to teach him that. It's just hologrammed into him. And he's just manipulating all the things that he's doing. But I'm just saying that this is a temporary setup so that now this energy keeping on coming in is waking people up more than ever in any time-space continuum ever since the beginning of time right now. And this planet's ascending, and there's like tens of billions of planets in this Milky Way galaxy, and we're in the fourth quadrant, and this planet is the 33rd planet of, I've got this number of something like 80 billion planets. All right, so we're going to start now. I was going to come here and sit down and start it. There's just two more things to read. Restarts federal student loan payments, meaning that what was accomplished for these student loans to be forgiven has been rescinded. And now they have to get more money that can stick in their pockets. All right. Can you come and sit down, Rama? There's only uh, one more here. The last one is adds work requirements to SNAP. What does T-A-N-F mean? SNAP slash T-A-N-F. I'm not sure. There's some other program that's right there with a slash yeah. between SNAP and TN. I probably, I probably don't remember, but it's it's okay. Mm-hmm. Somebody probably knows. But anyway, for those up to 55 years old, and we've been hearing it's not true that people are lazy and they don't want to work. There's a lot of people that are involved in that raising of the requirements to go to work to that age, and they have disabilities or something else is going on with them where they are not able to work and still they're going to be stuck with this. Not fair. So blaze the violet fire. Let's bring divine intervention into us and through us so that that divine government can manifest also through us, and the Sarah law can be enacted on earth. All right, Brahma. Aho. Aho, Vitakriyasu.
Tell us what we're going to listen to first. Uh, this is called The Source Field with Kava and Ethan Fox. Um, well, I printed this up for you to read. I oh. did. Mama T, tell everybody. Um... In this episode of Channel Revelations, Michaela channels the Council of Light, Order of Melchizedek, and the Great White Brotherhood. Ethan starts off the conversation with a discussion about white hats within the ET and extra-dimensional communities and how they are influencing the human race and whether ET races are protecting the planet from nuclear war? I would say yes. The conversation continues with a look back in time to the origins of the current global financial system as well as how it differed from how money was used in ancient civilizations prior to 11,000 years ago. Other topics include how gold and silver came to be recognized as a means of monetary exchange, how slavery is the basis for the current financial system, how human beings are giving giving away their spiritual energy to world leaders, thereby diminishing their access to their own cosmic bank account. (laughs) The episode concludes with a discussion of how the billionaires use rituals and Kabbalistic teachings to siphon spiritual energy from the general population in order to obtain their wealth and how human beings can take it back. Okay, this is two hours and 12 minutes, everybody. Okay, let's get started. Thank you, Rama. Thank you. Blaze the violet fire. Blaze the violet fire. Whoops. Gotta turn this sound up. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Channel Revelations. I'm Ethan Fox, and I'm here with Michaela Sheldon. And we'll be spending the next couple of hours channeling on a particular topic. And as I always say, Michaela is a trans channel, but I prefer not to discuss these topics or the questions with her ahead of time, just so that her conscious mind doesn't interfere in any which way with the um, with the questions or the information that we're bringing through. So we'll be speaking directly to the guides in this uh, conversation. So whenever you're ready, we can start. All right. We're ready. Who are we speaking with today? We have the Council of Light standing ready. 
but we're also working with the Order of Melchizedek, and we have the Great White Brotherhood. Any particular reason why they chose to come through today? We're always anticipating some of the intentions that you are bringing to us and gathering the most qualified beings, guides, collectives with the appropriate background to offer what is necessary. For those who may not understand that concept, um, obviously, I didn't discuss these questions with Michaela or the, with the channel. So um, how do the guides anticipate what I'm going to ask before I ask it? It isn't that we know ahead of time what you are thinking. So it's important for us to state that we're not anticipating by accessing your energy field at any one given point in time and and trying to move into the future to gather wisdom about how these interactions will go because that would merely be a waste of time. Everything is happening in the here and now. And we are more focused into the present moment than, than many of you are today. And in fact, we consider ourselves uh, quantum beings in a state of coherence, meaning everything that is preparing to happen in the next moment is tangibly accessible in the here and now. So, so as we appear to you and as you request our appearance, we're already touching in to the energies that need to be assembled to provide what is necessary to, to open these conversations. And who are the Order of Melchizedek? We are a great many, uh, assembly of divine masculine beings. We, we may call ourselves a brotherhood in, in that respect. We span all space and time. So we are not limited to any one timeline, especially on the earth as, as the origins of Melchizedek are intergalactic and come from the cosmos. But we consider ourselves very focused on moving the human collective and the earth forward, even though we have a more cosmic orientation. We are uh, those that have been trained in the right of working with universal law to access the energy within us and to support individualized um, experiences necessary. We have been both earthly and in human bodies as well as a hybrid in nature. And we do follow a specific regimented order of initiations. These initiations have gone on for quite some time, um, but they do transpose themselves according to the dimension that the souls who are being initiated uh, exist within. We also consider ourselves record keepers in a sense. Uh, we were present at the time of Christ and working not only with those that were at the ground level, uh, walking a more physical manifested experience of that journey, yet also um, light teachers in some of the mystery schools, uh, accessing the Akashic records at times uh, to support those endeavors. So you're talking about um, one of your roles is to help humanity move forward. Now, in a lot of alternative circles and metaphysical spiritual circles, there is a belief that there are collectives of uh, multidimensional or even physical extraterrestrial beings who are um, assisting humanity in some way. 
And much of that belief is around doing physical actions, whether it is interfacing with world governments or fighting um, uh, interdimensional wars um, and so on to help humanity in some physical way move forward. Is there any truth to any of those those beliefs? A lot of even a lot of channels out there um, seem to focus on channeling these um, federations of um, supposedly extraterrestrial beings who are fighting wars to assist humanity. What we have learned in, in all of our training and in all of the time that we have spent as souls moving through an evolutionary process is this. Anything that you create in your experience will become a part forever of the eternal spiral of time, meaning it will come back around and in some way be a part of what future generations will experience. And this has little to do with the exclusivity of Earth and and more a, a broad scope universal law. So with this in mind, while there are many intergalactic groups and councils who would prefer to still use war as an agent of change, uh, those at the highest levels, those that, that we ascend to work with, would never consider war of any kind to be an appropriate action to solve itself. Because if we are putting into the vibrational container uh, something of the same vibration that we are attempting to change, we are only strengthening it. So do we negate that these wars you speak of take place? No, we, we see them happening all of the time. And, and we think there is a little disillusionment about their intentions and their purpose. Because while there may be very uh, malevolent and, and heart-focused beings looking at the earth and, and all of the things that are happening, wanting to change it, their desire for that change might not be coming from the most pure place, uh, meaning they have uh, something to gain in the process. So so it, it, it's it's difficult for us to bring this explanation through because we, we have deep appreciation for those who are, who are touching in to so much of what's happening in alternate dimensions. At the same time, if we take this up to the highest level, uh, we must understand that God, universe, prime creator balances everything. If we think that we need to get involved in something and orchestrate a, a, a similar action to change it in some way, we should be cautious about how much creative energy, attention, and time we are inputting and what our intention truly is in that endeavor. What about the belief that there are white hats, whether they are extraterrestrial in origin or even within our governments or agencies around the world, that these individuals are out there actually doing positive things to move humanity forward. Is there such a group in the world leadership or extraterrestrial influences on the planet? Not one group exclusively. Yet we cannot deny that there are many, many different 
hybrid representations of intergalactic souls who have chosen to come to Earth at this time uh, to get their hands dirty in the physical plane, to, to interact with souls who have great powers and abilities to offer the human collective. Yet this is never done in secret. And that we think is the defining factor as to whether or not it's actually assisting. The highest dimensional beings, again, those with the most heartfelt and benevolent intentions, would never hide the truth of what they are doing from others. What they want is not to take ownership of any problem. And, and we have learned this long ago. It is interference to get involved in a situation that is not yours to claim. Because by its very nature, that interference is going to add something to the equation that could make it a more difficult um uh, healing endeavor. Yet, uh, we want to acknowledge we come, for example, um, as some of us ascended masters and light teachers to help raise consciousness. What we truly want is for humans to understand that the white hats, quote unquote, that they believe exist on planet Earth that are saving them from these various actions actually exist within themselves. Uh, you are here as a part of a collective having an earthly experience that was necessary to reclaim your sovereignty, the, the God and goddess within you and the true power that you have to live in such a way that everyone experiences peace and, and bliss and abundance. But the only reason you stand so far away from that today is that you've been taken so far away from that belief. Anytime you are asked to put a savior above yourself or, or you are looking to a savior to take away your problem, you have put a contradiction in the way of your own life force energy and, and the capability that you have to create a reality that reflects what it is you desire. So we think going back and looking at history and, and religion and, and a variety of, of different educational mediums on planet Earth, there is a, a seeded um, program to direct humans' attention away from their own ability to live in a, a sovereign um, uh, way and place that in the hands of others. And, and we might say this is why you find yourselves um, experiencing such a, a chaotic situation today. Um, those who are touching in and, and channeling what you term white hats, however, may not necessarily be wrong. Um, and, and so we, we have to caveat all that we are saying. There are many uh, intergalactic souls, even angelic beings, who come to earth and believe wholeheartedly that what they are doing is, is kind and, and beneficial in nature when it actually isn't. And we see this all of the time uh, on the plane of earth. Uh, humans have pure intentions, but they don't exactly go about expressing uh, and acting upon those intentions uh, in the most efficient way.
So what you're saying is that we are the white hat. So is that correct? Exactly. Um, and so it's it's our responsibility to move humanity forward. We shouldn't necessarily depend on whatever white hats are. And we don't even want you to use the word responsibility because we think within that word, uh, there's a great burden that is placed upon humanity, making it seem as if it is difficult. Uh, what we believe is what consciousness provides is a series of alternate options and an expanded viewpoint of your reality beyond where you have become restricted. And restriction uh, away from anything is what's causing the most harm. Um, even the, the idea of a white hat, um, a collective of souls who are here to save the planet, uh, causes a soul to restrict away from its inclusion in that. So by its very nature, it's causing undue um, separation uh, and judgment, we believe. So so certainly we're, we're validating what you are saying. Uh, we just want to put um, a, a different terminology on it. Perhaps instead of a responsibility, it's your innate essence and your nature to work within these energies and to bring them to calm. With regard to your earlier statement that um, for beings to come here and interfere with um, the human evolution or development process, what constitutes interference? So if they are coming here as a, as part of their journey to play a role in the evolution of humanity, and even though their consciousness may not be at the highest level um, and they're trying to be white hats is what is that interference then so so let's take this to a more earthly example and then we'll bring it up to a, a more larger scope concept uh, over the last several years many of you on planet earth have felt the need and the desire to change and inform others about what you know and what you have come to understand as consciously and highly vibrating beings and the intention there is very good. Yet what has tended to happen we see is more restriction and more separation because in the delivery of that information or in the desire to change another, sometimes we end up stepping on the toes of their own sovereignty. And, and we know this is a hard thing to hear. Yet if you look back at all that has happened, you are seeing the destruction of relationships and families with very different belief systems. And we don't necessarily think that that has to happen. So when you are interfering in a situation, trying to change something or someone or a planet or an entire race, it's typically very important to understand that free will reigns. You're not here necessarily to change the direction of a, of a divine plan you know nothing about. What you're here to do is, is change the playing field upon which that divine plan unfolds. And that could only be an energetic or vibrational offering, meaning we're attempting to bring souls into their confidence. We're attempting to bring them into their highest vibrational state, we're attempting to help them break open 
Akashic records and, and move through a threshold of consciousness that they may have been stuck in for a very long period of time. Now on the earth plane, we know that isn't easy because you believe to do that, you must prove why it is important. But the proving itself is often putting into the Akashic records or the spiral of time something that you don't want to revisit, which is hierarchy oftentimes. And and for us as higher dimensional guides and beings who have great love and appreciation for humanity, it is not our role to come in and say that you are doing wrong. It is never our role to come in and correct decisions that you have made or or even give you information about decisions that should be made in the future to change anything. What we want for you is to understand that everything you need already exists and to begin to trust more in your own intuition and authority. Because once that happens, everything around you will begin to change. What we're attempting to do is keep our ego and our judgment out of the the field in which we are co-creating. And and this is where we think so much of that contradiction we, we spoke of tends to harm, uh, where we're putting something in the way of awakening as opposed to facilitating it in a very um, loving and, and supportive uh, process. Okay, so let me string a few ideas together that you discussed to make sure my understanding is correct. So what you're saying is that... Um, the highest vibrational beings are focused, such as yourselves uh, and the Council of Light and so on, are focused on changing the playing field where these other beings who may be whatever is known as the white hats or that are being channeled by other channels as well, um, may be influencing physical things. And so physical things are not the playing field. Uh, physical things are for humans to interact and change our own journey. So when you're saying playing field, though, you're referring to consciousness. So it's okay for higher vibrational beings such as yourselves to increase consciousness because consciousness does not affect our free will. It simply provides more range of options for human beings to choose from. But ultimately, it's the human collective consciousness that has to make those physical choices. Is that understanding correct? We're the council of light and we want to clarify the the playing field analogy and, and give you some examples about how we would support humans in a situation where we believe they do not realize their power. It is very important, of course, to consider vibration. And that is always our upper echelon choice and go to in these situations. For example, you have started with war. When we see war taking place anywhere throughout the universe, uh, even on planet Earth, our goal is to raise vibration and to offer the matching timelines of that vibration to you, meaning we are attempting to find within the Akashic Records periods of peace and to raise the bar on the vibration of every human to access the energy of those timelines. And the way this translates is personal evolution, uh, desires, excitement to do things differently than what is actually being carried out. So even if 
a group of humans, a collective of beings exists on the opposite side of the planet as to where the war is taking place. If they are accessing timelines of peace and being inspired by what they are accessing and putting that into somehow uh, action around them, whether it is just feeling at peace and holding that vibration as a potential for others or um, applying it in, in some constructive way, that is going to make the biggest impact than us trying to change the war itself. But you've added an interesting um, concept here about the physical plane versus the, the vibrational plane. And we're talking about uh, a playing field. So if we see humans today, for example, making choices out of fear, and those are physical choices that are manifesting in concrete realities, uh, sometimes the vibration is not the only solution. Raising consciousness, which is a bit different than vibration, helps humans to see those choices through a multidimensional lens. And part of the problem that we've noticed is that you're repeating many of the same timeline experiences over and over again. And it comes from a very narrow viewpoint or a restricted level of consciousness where you believe there are only a certain number of options or conditions are put in the way of, of yes or no, we can only do this or that or the other thing. Now, we know the next question may be, how do you do this? And 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 as the Council of Light, we notice um, certain significant planetary alignments, for example, where energy is strongly moving through the galactic grids to Earth, and we can manipulate and change that vibration. And, and this is why at times you will see great leaps in consciousness. This has little to do with us only. Uh, what we're doing is we're providing a foundation, even a, a hertz or a frequency or a sound that facilitates what that planetary alignment is already apt to do. So, so we are searching always, we're, we're observing always for avenues of advantage, advantageous avenues where we are able to contribute something that is not going to change what's happening necessarily directly uh, through us or by us, but to offer humans the opportunity to see that change within themselves. Well, on a side note, um, I've noticed that sometimes when the guys speak through the channel, they stumble for words that are obviously some of which are in her vocabulary or they mispronounce words that she mispronounces. Is well, What's the reason for that? There are a combination of reasons for this. When we are providing a transmission, this detail that is coming through in a quantum fashion, which is a very high plasmic vibration. And that means that the physical plane or the physical words or vocabulary has to keep up and meet with that vibration. It is not always an easy task for the, the conduit who is not conscious to be able to do that. 
But yes, also as higher dimensional beings, we are searching for physical concepts and terminology uh, that assimilates and, and matches what we are trying to relay, uh, which isn't always uh, in perfect balance or equilibrium. So, so keep in mind that we're speaking different languages. Uh, we, we are different beings with um, different concepts. And there is a, a very brief second in time where those concepts become translated into something humanly understandable. And that doesn't always go smoothly. Okay. Now, I've seen numerous videos. I don't know if they're legitimate videos or not of um, spacecraft of some sort, UFO type of craft that are apparently disabling or disarming nuclear weapons. Um, is, does, is this something that higher beings such as yourselves would do, or is this some other what we would call white hats? We do see some of this going on, and, and we want to clarify that not all of what you are seeing is actually true. Uh, there is an initiative to lead humans in this direction, to help them uh, believe, in other words, that there is something handling a situation for them that they have no power themselves to contribute to. Yet there are, uh, on occasion, uh, ships and, and groups of beings who are attempting to destroy um, nuclear weapons, for example, and, and other things that exist on planet Earth. Yet we do want to go back to the original question and, and reiterate what the order of Melchizedek has said about this, because we believe uh, the same. This is not in humans best interest, even though you might believe that destroying a weapon that would be used against another human is saving the planet from something detrimental. It's putting more war and destruction and separation in your Akashic records to deal with in the future. You assume that there are white hats and there are black hats. And, and certainly in past transmissions, we've discussed a great deal about reptilian influence and reptilian consciousness and, and malevolent beings who have been here for a great many years. But in our dimension, uh, what we have come to is this. The universe is always rebalancing energy. If we will allow it uh, and stay focused on what we are here to do and, and how we are here to serve, we don't have to worry about taking drastic acts like that because a nuclear weapon by and of itself, even though it is a material manifestation, uh, is made of the contribution of energy of millions and trillions of beings, meaning the simple reality that that exists and is being reinforced on a daily basis in the minds and hearts of many is strengthening its potential to continue to exist in this way. And we're not suggesting that you should by any means ignore some of the more dangerous aspects of your physical reality or, or believe them to not be true because they certainly are concrete and, and very true. Yet how you address them within yourself, how you apply your consciousness to the situation is the most powerful resolve. So if everything is physical and vibrational at its core, 
And we only use a physical means to change it, but we haven't taken care of the vibration. We're missing out on complete and total healing. And that is something that we have learned in, in many different uh, incarnations and lifetimes and, and perhaps is the basis for why we assemble as a council at all. Uh, it is important for us to observe the, the vibrational ramifications of how energy is exchanged, but especially how the physical plane continues to repeat the same vibrational patterns in different forms. So we can take a nuclear weapon out of the sky in, in a physical sense, but the vibration that created it still goes on. And, and that's where we see a miss, perhaps, in what the intention of these beings are and the actual result may be. Uh, they are merely focusing upon uh, a physical result. And in, in fact, we could say motivated from a sense of fear and urgency of that fear. But the vibration still continues on. So unless we have some... Um, concrete uh, ability, uh, a process, uh, a modality to work with the energy that will never resolve these issues. So if we are the white hats, uh, we need to move humanity forward. Um, Then what I've noticed, especially in current times on the planet, is that there is a sense of victimhood that seems to be prevalent across all facets of society, whether it is uh, victimhood of racism or victimhood over sexual preferences or uh, identity or things like that, or just victimhood in terms of the feeling that we have no control because there are world leaders who are more powerful and have all the money and who are causing all these problems on the planet. And from psychological research, it seems to suggest that when people have a victimhood mindset, they tend to feel less confident, like they they are disempowered or they're at a disadvantage in society. So how does how does humanity move forward if we are the white hats to make positive changes and move society forward if there is this psychological programming that's taking place in the planet that's putting most people into the state of victimhood? Well, that's a very difficult question for us to answer because we would have to come at it from many different angles. But what we want to focus on what you're asking and, and simplify our answer to the best of our ability. This victimhood program that you're observing within the collective uh, to us, it's weakening the human DNA in a sense, because even though you would never make the relationship between what you believe is is capable uh, within you and and what victimhood suppresses being related to the DNA, it is. The strands of DNA, whether we're looking at physical or crystal, hold within them not only the information that we are apt to bring in from the cosmos to support our soul's divine plan, but but also all of the genetic predispositions that we somehow come to override. And if we go back to the very beginning of time, uh, we can see this seeded program of victimhood actually changing the DNA, uh, perhaps um, powering down uh, in a sense, 
the more illuminated strands, the ones, the ones in which help a soul to believe that it is not alone, uh, not because it must rely on something outside of itself, but because it is all of those things by its very nature. So in interconnection in, in unification, there is more power. So to cause a soul to feel as if they are a victim is to separate them from something that is holding them back in life. And you have become separate in a very unnatural way. Uh, and it, it begs the question, why are we individuals if we're meant to be a unified collective? Well, this is the beauty of Earth, is that you are here, in a sense, to through a unique experience of, of creative energy, understand yourself as God by interacting with a variety of other unique manifestations of it. And this is where victimhood gets in the way, we think, of not only the flow of energy, but the illumination of the DNA, because we think we're here to do it alone, and we think we're only allowed what we have been told we are given. And if that inheritance, quote unquote, is is dependent upon the color of our skin or our gender or the amount of physical abundance we have or the geographic region that we grew up in, it's a very convenient way of stepping out of a divine blueprint so beautiful and, and so immaculate that we will never realize it in our entire lifetime. But the question is, what do we do? about it and to perpetuate these ideals uh, is somewhat the answer. Uh, unfortunately, what we see, and, and many of you we know who are here with us are uh, very aware of, of hierarchies and what that means, is that there's a hierarchical structure that is feeding these concepts to humanity. And as they are fed and downloaded through a variety of mediums, they become law. Within every human, there is a belief that there is something working against them that they were born with, as opposed to an understanding that they were born with everything they needed to be the most powerful manifestation of God on the planet. And to perpetuate these ideals, um, however they have been throughout time, has to somewhat come to a, a close. And, and we'll give you an example, uh, because we are witnessing um, a great deal of finger pointing on planet Earth, especially when it comes to ancestral patterns, meaning the generation that went before us is to blame for what we are stuck dealing with today. And, and in that very notion, not only is there separation and restriction and judgment, but there's a weakening of power. If those who are here today who have experienced trauma and and fear and and lack of love from the generation that went before them were to supply it to the planet anyway as opposed to trying to go back and erase it from their experience the world could be healed instantaneously meaning we have to somehow come to a sense of not only forgiveness but purpose and in in our realm forgiveness is not about letting go of accountability. Forgiveness is about acknowledging what someone could not have given us before that we believed was necessary and now have the opportunity to give to others. 
where we are a self-generating force of healing because we choose to use our energy in the proper direction. And in terms of racism, in terms of, of, of gender orientation, in, in terms of uh, income level, this is the most important area, or these are the most important areas we, we assume where, where that has to take place. We can't keep looking backwards at who told us what and what we didn't get. We have to look forward as to how we reclaim it. And that could never be from other people. We're, we're seeing also, we're, we're observing this concept, we'll call it of reparations, uh, whether it be in a racial sense or in a, in a sense of income and, and money. And it is the same analogy as an intergalactic ship shooting a nuclear bomb out of the sky. We can offer someone material reparations for something they did not receive in the past, but that is never going to take care of the underlying vibration. You as a human soul are not responsible for changing the vibration of others. You are only responsible for changing your own. And as you do, it works somewhat like a web where the energy we build within us, the amount of love that we have for ourselves, regardless of what we were ever given from another, tends to spill over and implicate those in our field and, and even beyond. So healing is not as difficult as you may imagine, uh, but it must start within each individual. Uh, those of us who are here speak often about um, a, a tipping point. And, and this tipping point is a certain number of humans having to awaken to a certain threshold in order for the planet to change. And, and we don't necessarily think that threshold is a number. Uh, it's a vibration. And, and for you to reach the highest vibration within yourself does not require that you ignore anything that's happening on the planet. It simply entails uh, your belief that you are here to positively influence it through the amount of love that you are able to generate. So in previous conversations, we discussed things like the 369. Can, can a tool like the 369 be used to, to enter into this higher state of being where victimization or victimhood is neutralized? And this is the order of Melchizedek. It is a tool, yes. And, and those of us who were initiated into this order studied the philosophy behind this numerologic system for uh, a great deal of our, our, our teaching. Uh, we know, of course, that in today's reality, um, the dimension has changed and belief systems have changed. And, and there is a certain degree of belief or understanding in the system required for it to be put into a, a very concrete practice. Yet the surrounding yourself, uh, by these numbers, uh, it, it, in any form, we'll say in any form, it, it causes two very distinct advantages. Um, one, if you will recall, uh, the 369 pattern creates an unbroken connection to the universe. So universal energies begin to flow and, and amplify uh, either within your space uh, or within your body, 
however you're choosing to to use this number pattern. And, and that is a positive because um, the amount of energy that you are working with determines the magnitude of manifestation that you are able to tap into. And, and when we say magnitude, we're talking about the, the, the quality and the quantity, uh, meaning the ability to manifest not what you think you need, and, and what you quote unquote have been told you desire, but what lies within the divine field around you that is purposeful in each present moment. So, so you begin to see the support. In other words, um, the information, the knowledge, which in our day was key, um, as well as a, a shift perhaps in your own consciousness, an ability to work in a physical plane, to be in a physical body in a more expanded sense. Now, the other advantage uh, in working with the 369 pattern or geometry is it facilitates synchronicity. So in a, in a balanced energy pattern or matrix, uh, if we are quantum, meaning in physical terms, we are present with everything that's happening around us. Uh, we will again see the miracle of how the universe is orchestrating our our reality uh, certainly we are the ones through which it is being made manifest, yet at the same time, we can tangibly touch and interact with things that are coming to us that are perfect for what we need in the moment to either become a more uh, improved version of ourselves, expanded version of ourselves, or to be of service in some dedicated way. So these are the reasons we used these patterns. Um, some of us were taught a certain breath work uh, where we were chanting and toning in alignment with these various waves or, or energy signatures. Uh, other times we were taught to use geometries uh, or um, innate designs. We'll call them mandalas even. Uh, these were placed energetically within our field as a practice. And we often would arrange our lives, our living spaces, uh, for example, to meet these various requirements. Um, it wasn't the only tool at our disposal, but it was a very beneficial one. So, so what you're asking us here is, does the 369 improve a human's ability to move beyond uh, its traumas or where it feels it is a victim? And it, doesn't necessarily work that way exclusively. What it does is it helps a human to rise above the density through which those programs have been seeded and be able to see very clearly in the field around it the opportunity to to rise above them. Okay, I'd like to change topics now and go back to ancient times. In previous conversations, we've discussed how in our linear time, about nine to 12,000 years ago, there was a dimensional shift that occurred. And so prior to that time, time isn't quite the same as what we perceive it today. So it isn't exactly easy to quantify a linear time for events that occurred prior to nine to 12,000 years ago. Um, but one of my questions is, or where I'd like to begin is I'd like to understand Today on the planet, uh, we have this concept of money. And money, of course, has taken form in, in various forms. Um, we 
use gold as money. We use silver uh, as a form of money or value. Although those aren't really exchanged as much in in um, in form nowadays, we tend to use what are called fiat currencies, which are often in paper dollar forms or paper currencies in different parts of the world. And um, these financial systems are run by and orchestrated by a handful of people and large corporations around the planet. So where I'd like to begin this topic is go back to when did money as we know it today begin? Did it happen after this cataclysm about 90, 12,000 years ago where there was a dimensional shift or did it even pre-exist that in some other form? Well, you must consider that that money and, and the definition of money uh, is a form of exchange that has changed within many dimensional experiences, civilizations, and timelines. So certainly, uh, if we predate uh, the cataclysm that we have spoken of before, uh, we are seeing various material modalities of exchange, but each very tailored to to the civilization that it existed within. And, And we want to start by saying that the foundation of many of the more enlightened civilizations that were using a form of of exchange was a purpose or um, somehow driven through a soul's innate contribution, meaning the soul itself was valued as the energetic currency and what it was creating became the form of exchange. And this evolved by... um, focusing that exchange through a central channel. So when you begin to see money uh, in the way that you describe it today, meaning something that has no deliberate connection to the true vibrational essence of a soul, but is just flat in its vibration and able to be exchanged as a medium for something, this is where malevolent intent begins because uh, while you are in a much different uh, dimensional experience than many of these original uh, timelines we are referring to, um, the direct connection of souls to each other in a purposeful transaction and relationship to their divine energy is how the universe is meant to work. So anything that takes that and puts it into a medium where something that someone creates uh, becomes valued by someone other than it, uh, you're diminishing that energy. So we, uh, we see this continuing, of course, perhaps beyond the, the, the cataclysm we speak of in a more malevolent and, and deliberately driven uh, focus hierarchically, uh, meaning there are some who are controlling the energy of exchange to their benefit as opposed to those who are exchanging, receiving the actual benefit. So when you're saying beyond this cataclysm or, or, and, and um, uh, dimensional shift that occurred, around nine to 12,000 years ago, are you saying prior to 
meaning beyond? So prior to that, there were civilizations, civilizations on the planet that had a hierarchical financial system. We're, we're saying that was more rare prior to and more um, abundant after, in other words. Um, not that there weren't periods of time where, where rulers were taking, um, uh, we'll say, advantage of their um, communities and somehow um, involving themselves in the process of exchange. But what we believe you're leaning into and, and what you're referring to with money is more a reflection uh, after as opposed to prior. Did civilizations such as Atlantis use some sort of monetary exchange that was hierarchical or was it different? There wasn't necessarily a hierarchical um, form of monetary exchange in Atlantis. However, uh, currencies were more apt to be elemental in their um, um, in their manifestation. And and this is because Atlantis was a very elementally focused civilization, a highly technological civilization as well. But it does not necessarily mean that these elements were exchanged at a certain value. Uh, when you're working in a, a unified collective, there really isn't a need to necessarily physically uh, exchange in a, in a material way because everyone's pursuits are focused upon the same endeavor. There isn't any competition necessarily. Uh, everyone is focused on improving the whole of the civilization. Um, so we see some exchange there, perhaps more in terms of, of knowledge, um, uh, talents, uh, using various uh, elements from certain geographic regions of Atlantis that were precious and able to be implemented in other areas uh, and, and collectives would come together to form, um, we'll say, groups where these exchanges were evenly and fairly made. It wasn't oversight necessarily. Uh, it was all done in a, in a heart-based um, and more loving and compassionate way. So you're, when you say elemental, you're referring to things like gold and silver. Is that correct? We're, we're certainly including that in what we are speaking about, but it's more so even precious um, crystals uh, that were seen as highly advanced and technological in their power. So like rubies and other gemstones, that sort of thing? Yes, correct. So is there any connection between why we place value on those things today from, is that something that comes from ancient times? Uh, certainly we do see a trend coming from ancient times where the value has been placed on these things. Yet it, what's interesting to us to observe is that some of the more precious in their energetic output and strength in terms of uh, healing and, and technology are the ones that are no longer revered. Uh, and we're not saying that gold and silver, for example, these properties aren't of value, yet um, we might look at a civilization like Atlantis and, and, and notice um, uh, ancient Lemurian crystals that had been brought in from other dimensions that had very high potency and power. Uh, these were made of quartz and various um, um, 
we'll say genetic predispositions of that gemstone uh, fused together within the earth and and touched by the elements of of water. So uh, these were seen as the highest value uh, because they could be programmed. Uh, and the programming was never done to slight another uh, or for someone to hold more power than anyone else. Uh, this was done to raise the consciousness and the vibration of the entire civilization. So it's it's hard to say that they were exchanged um, in, a, in a sense of, of value or measurement of that value. There simply was great reverence for all of these things. And, and that's why the reverence, we believe, continues on today. You mentioned that in ancient times, the way that exchange took place was more based on the value of the soul's um, contribution or something along those lines. Whereas in more hierarchical systems, such as the financial system we have today, the value is not is outside of the soul. So let, let me know if I'm on the right track here. So value outside of the soul, meaning um, somebody else's contribution would be valued by, I would place a value on it versus that soul itself experiencing a value. Am I on the right track in terms of my understanding? Well, well, let's explain in our own words how we see this in a civilization like Atlantis. It's first important to note that a a council guiding and overseeing that civilization uh, was very much similar to ourselves in that they would never... um, involve themselves uh, in not only stating a certain amount of value as to what someone was offering to another, but putting any medium in the way or expectation in the way of that exchange. It was more of a free and open type of civilization whereby each person was valuating what another had to offer by what was necessary for them to thrive. And and this was less of an individual um, uh, endeavor and more of a collective one. Uh, so, so, so this is where we're coming from in terms of valuation. Okay, so to take that idea a little further, in that scenario, is it possible for one individual, say in Atlantis, for example, to have more value than another? Meaning today we have billionaires on the planet and we have people who are living in poverty. So there's the whole of society places a certain higher value on someone who's a billionaire versus somebody who doesn't have material or financial wealth in the current system. In ancient times, like Atlantis, did was that even a concept that they used? In Atlantis, the the highest value in terms of any type of rank or hierarchy had to do with access to the universe and, and universal knowledge. And that's why you see a council coming together at all. It had little to do with rules or regulations or putting value on certain things uh, more or less. But it had to do with a soul's ability to to teach something or to to offer um, energy uh, in a certain way. For example, 
uh, the the councils in Atlantis formed around certain intentions and, and activities. Uh, some of them were here to guide the youth. And they were often the elder grandmothers who had a great ability to interact with Gaia Sophia as a mother herself and, and to channel those energies appropriate to guide them in finding their own personal value. If we look um, beyond that collective, we would see another coming together to support healing. And it was not as if in Atlantis there were rampant diseases. Uh, the type of healing work that was being done had to do with energy. Uh, these higher dimensional beings, we'll call them only because of the access and the power that they had had, often came as a hybrid or from um, intergalactic councils elsewhere to assist and support those in Atlantis in up-leveling the, the physical manifestation of their bodies, uh, perhaps helping them to function better or to become lighter or, or more transparent, working deliberately with the DNA. Um, we see councils forming around many things like this. So, so councils themselves are very revered uh, only because of their access to energy and their access to knowledge. Uh, a monetary focus, uh, even though we'll say towards the end or the fall of that civilization, uh, began to to show itself, but not completely. In that, those who came into the civilization with with malevolent intent began to notice the inherent value of the elements that we speak of. These elements were powering incredible technologies that were fusing with the um, vibration of Earth, uh, using water, for example, as a crystalline and potent frequency to raise vibration and to raise consciousness. But they came to direct those technologies through a specific intention. And this is where hierarchies began to start and where um, a great deal of malevolent intent uh, began. So even though we don't see a necessarily um, material and concrete form of exchange, uh, what we begin to see is the desire to put one in place and the hoarding of certain resources and the um, uh, possession, we'll say, of more collective energies that were there to support the whole as opposed to individuals. So prior to the fall of Atlantis, when uh, the things you're describing just now, before those took place, before the hierarchical systems came in, was it possible for one person in the society to hold a higher value than another, like we have today, where the amount of wealth you have creates a certain stature in society? Was that even possible during that time? Well, it was possible, but it didn't actually happen the way that it does today. Because you must remember, in Atlantis, the the souls who came there were not inheriting the same programs and, and history that you are today. Uh, in fact, much of what you are uh, working with in terms of individual worth and, and monetary abundance came much, much later. So it's not to say that there wasn't a sense of ego 
uh, in Atlantis. In every enlightened civilization, there is an area that the souls there are meant to work on. But often this was looked at in terms of a soul's ability to offer something to the collective as opposed to another. Um, and, and we won't, we won't say this was the case in, in every situation, nor is it prevalent, but in certain, uh, individuals, uh, in Atlantis, we might see an inner valuation of what they were contributing as opposed to others. And there might be some contemplation of that, that they were in a lesser status than another. Yet because the technologies that were working in Atlantis were so uh, incredibly diligent at, at holding neutrality, we'll call it, or quantum state, these um, thoughts or, or feelings, they didn't hold on in resistance uh, as long as they do today. And, and we think that's a huge part of the problem. Some of you learn unworthiness or the certain value of money or even um, your status in the world at a very young age. And then as you come up through various ages, it simply becomes a very ingrained part of your reality that operates in the subconscious. Um, Atlanteans didn't have uh, that same subconscious density or amount of programming going on that humans today are working with. And so it was much easier for them to appreciate um, everyone's contribution as opposed to having to evaluate it as different than their own. So what point in So if I'm understanding correctly and correct me if I'm wrong, although some hierarchical systems did exist sporadically prior to nine to 12,000 years ago, it became more prevalent since that time. So um, at what point did those systems start to come into place? Was it immediately after that? So let's say approximately 9,000 years ago and sooner? We are seeing some malevolent intent coming in around this time. Yet you have to remember that everything that you're dealing with today uh, came up in various civilizations at various time frames and has has combined to, to manifest in what you're dealing with as the monetary system. So, so it's hard for us to pinpoint any one period or any one time as being worse than another. Yet we have alluded to the fact in, in many of these conversations that a, a reptilian consciousness is what has taken the planet away from its true and organic state of creation and, and put it in more of a restricted holographic type of experience. And, and this includes what you are speaking of today. Uh, we have even brought a great deal of information in about the Anunnaki, for example, and some of their focus on precious metals and resources and putting hierarchical systems and beliefs in place to ensure that they were the ones who had uh, ownership or, or access to those. Uh, these are some of the beginnings of, of what you are referring to and, and speaking to today. The, didn't the Anunnaki pre-exist the Atlanteans or coexist? They have, but we have to keep in mind that the timeline that you think has ended has continued on and simply changed. So even though we see Anunnaki influence prior to Atlantis, it doesn't necessarily mean that that Anunnaki influence 
has affected all of the civilizations beyond that time. So, so again, we're going to direct you back to what we're referring to in the unification of a collective, especially a highly advanced and elementally sound civilization. Uh, you're working with a spiral of time, but you're doing that very unconsciously. A highly conscious civilization is going to have knowledge of and experience of what happened before, but able to utilize that knowledge in a very completely different way than what an unconscious collective does. Uh, so certainly the timeline of the Anunnaki has continued on. And if we look at what's happening today in a sense of uh, what you call slavery, for example, uh, or uh, hoarding resources and, and valuing them for the slight and, and not the many, uh, this has just changed hands. It's 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 reconfigured. Uh, it's become something different in how it manifests. Yet the underlying vibration is exactly the same. So is it fair to say that the Anunnaki on planet Earth, anyway, were the ones who originated this idea of a hierarchical system where they're slaves and masters or where some people have power and wealth and others are the opposite? Well, again, you're trying to linearly pinpoint one race as being the cause of something so great. And, and while we agree that this is a highly influential timeline and a highly influential group of beings who who still exist and are causing destruction today, uh, we can't exclusively blame them for all that has happened. So, so we, we tend to put, um, uh, malevolent hybrids into one category. And, and sometimes we refer to them as reptilian and sometimes we refer to them as Anunnaki. Uh, yet there are many other contributors to, to what's happening today. It's the vibration that you're seeing manifesting in different forms. So what civilization was it on planet Earth in our linear timeline since 9,000 years ago that, um, for example, the Phoenicians or um, any number of those ancient civilizations that originated the concept of money that we are living with today? If we go back to ancient Mesopotamia, for example, we are seeing the beginning influences of some of this. But even before that, what we notice is a hierarchical system was put into place using different uh, formats. In other words, sometimes a soul had to go through a medium such as a, a collective of beings to approve what they were yet to exchange or that exchange or um, material manifestation uh, was no longer theirs to own. It became a collectively owned or a, or a individually owned um, value. Yet, if we look across the board um, from not only Mesopotamia, and then you have said, for example, the Phoenicians, uh, to many other civilizations, we begin to notice the need to um, uh, um, easier make available uh, a valuated exchange, meaning as opposed to having to go through a certain council or legally take ownership of something, uh, we instead value it and control it through an outside source. And this continues on today because what we have noticed is humans have been enslaved and entrained in this idea that they have ownership of nothing. 
they only have the ability to pay others for things that are owned. So you're thinking of money and we look back at civilizations where land, for example, uh, or real estate uh, became the focus of that hierarchy or that mode of exchange. And kings and rulers uh, fought many wars to claim ownership to lands that others had to pay in order to live upon. Uh, it's just a different way of exchanging material and and controlling uh, energy than in, in other civilizations. When you say Mesopotamia, you're referring to the Sumerians or that race? Correct, okay. yes. So they, at least for the sake of simplicity, we could say they originated the concept of money that we still use today. For the sake of simplicity. Right. Yes. Okay. So how did we get to a collective where was this because of the, and I understand what we discussed earlier about trying to quantify things in a linear format when things are happening multidimensionally. Um, But for the sake of our own intellectual understanding, I'm trying to solidify this into a timeline format that most people can comprehend. So where did this concept of slavery originate? Which it sounds to me, and I could be wrong, so correct me if I'm wrong. So the concept of money that we use today that originated with the Sumerians in this linear timeline is something that's really rooted in slavery, which originated with the Anunnaki. Is that correct? We're we're in agreement. Okay. So money is really not about money as we see today as a financial exchange system, but it's really an extension of slavery. Or perhaps ownership. Okay. Ownership of material things which human bodies or human beings are part of. Even beyond, we believe it's ownership of energy. Because if you have to output energy in order to receive something material that a slight few own, then even your energy has become uh, capitalized upon and and owned by someone else. So was the Sumerian race, and I know there are always exceptions to every rule, just like there are human beings that are very conscious today and human beings who are uh, not so conscious. But on the whole, was the Sumerian race primarily a reptilian consciousness-based race? Hybrid, yes. And and of course, we have to reiterate what you are saying. Uh, Every race has its exclusions. Uh, There are benevolent, malevolent, and everywhere in between. But, But you must keep in mind that when intergalactic beings come to planet Earth, they are apt to hybridize. And the hybridization process within itself it's it's very intricate uh, and meticulous, and and many things can go wrong. And and what we began to notice in in some of these civilizations, and and we can go back and tell many stories, is that uh, portals began to become owned and operated uh, by a a focus of a certain being or a race. And there were actually wars throughout the galactic universe over ownership to earthly portals. Now, this doesn't necessarily happen or exist today, even though we know that some of the portals that are uh, entry points for Earth become easily corrupted. But 
uh, alternate technologies have been put in these portals uh, to both assist as well as manipulate uh, beings who are coming through. And, and this we see as one of the um, detrimental events having to do with, with Syrians, for example, or the Sumerians, for example, uh, coming through these portals and, and being interrupted uh, genetically and altered sonically uh, into a different form. I see. So these Sumerians might not have been in this reptilian altered state originally, but when they came through those portals that caused them to have that influence. Yes, correct. So when we're referring to the Sumerians and so on, we're referencing people like Gilgamesh and, and so on? Yes. Okay. So what role did, did Gilgamesh play? Because he's a prominent role or at least an individual who we have some record of having existed. What was his role in this creation of the structure? Was he primarily of a reptilian influence as well? We do see some reptilian influence here. And, and there is um, many, many different um, vantage points that we can take on, on his journey because not only is he a hybrid, but, but he also sat on many councils throughout the universe having access to to the wisdom and the energy of these councils. So as remember, as beings come through certain portals, there are disturbances and changes that go on. There's alterations that take place. And sometimes this takes a being with, with malevolent intent and can turn them benevolent and vice versa. But you're asking about a role and, and we refer to a divine plan that may have been skewed from its origins. And and we do notice there was a, an immediate focus on ensuring some system in which there could be valuation of what others were providing, not to set people apart deliberately so much as to uh, create a structure that could be looked upon by others and mirrored in, in moving the earth into a more, um, not necessarily technological age from a, a technology standpoint, but uh, to mirror some of the experiences that have been had beyond the earth. And, and um, it's hard for us to explain how money works in the alternate realms, but very similar systems and structures have been put in place on other planets. And yes, some of them have been very suppressive and, and others uh, have not. They've been more free and sovereign and they've simply been to help create a more balanced energetic environment. And we think this was some of the original intent, actually, to level the playing field, to create a more balanced energetic environment. But any time that you put a material structure in the way of an energetic predisposition, you're going to have a very hard time. And, and so if we look at the, the being you're referring to, and we, we could bring up other examples as well, um, what we see is, is working in a material plane, attempting to use a more enlightened and metaphysical consciousness, but the two not actually matching up very well, where there are ramifications for that. And, and certainly this has happened in, in many different examples. So it's hard for us to explain his complete role in saying that it was all predestined and all that happened was how it was meant to happen. 
it's the same with many of you today. Uh, you come in with a divine plan and it is what you describe as an open container in which there are many options to raise it and lower it in vibration. Now, Gilgamesh is very commonly depicted in ancient um, sculptures of him and even to modern times as uh, holding a lion in his hands, as if the lion is about the size of a typical dog or would be for us today. Was, was that because Gilgamesh was a giant? We see him as a giant manifesting in this way, absolutely. But again, we want to remind you that that hybridization process is always the the reason, meaning uh, light is being transformed into material, which is ultimately information. So the the giants that you see throughout history or the gods and goddesses that you see in various forms came through this way as a material representation of light and information. And that means ultimately that he was working with more energy on a physical plane uh, than what those who were more normalized in size uh, were. But that does not necessarily carry through to the timeline that you are on. So, so we know that my next question might be, uh, are, are those who are taller in linear and physical size working with more light and energy? Not necessarily, because your DNA uh, has been completely changed. And, and you are still seeing a legacy and a lineage uh, play out from some of these time periods, but it isn't necessarily reflective of, of light and vibration. Well, some of the giants from ancient times were referred to as a Nephilim, uh, who were apparently offspring of the fallen angels. So would, would somebody like, um, like him be considered a Nephilim or was he just some other race that, that came through a portal to manifest here? We don't necessarily see the Nephilim as one race. So it, it isn't um, correct, we believe, to say that he would be a member of this race. Uh, we we know uh, historically and scientifically uh, it, it feels important to put all of these beings because of similar characteristics into one category. But if we're looking at an offspring of fallen angels, what we have to keep in mind is, is this offspring is going to manifest in various forms, holding different DNA genetic predispositions to, to that, um, fallen angel. And remember, this is a collective of many different intergalactic souls. So, um, certainly we see how the Nephilim could be looked at as as similar in their orientation. Uh, Yet, if we look beneath the surface as to the energy template and DNA that they were working with, there are some deviations. Is there any significance of why he's depicted holding a lion? Is there some representation there? When we see the lion throughout history, um, and, and there are very subtle differences in the appearance, uh, these are often relating to the Syrians as well as the Illyrians who came to planet Earth and, and took on these forms and characteristics, not as the lions you necessarily see today, but, but certainly holding a very similar uh, appearance. And the, the Syrians at the time, as we look at them uh, on planet Earth, they were more uh, love-based and benevolently focused 
uh, helping to teach mankind about the access to frequency and to joy and to manipulate that within their own physical bodies for the benefit of all. Um, not to say that the clutching of the lion within the hand was a desire to um, implicate that uh, whatsoever, but those who had a more prominent hybrid stance as a ruler were often attempting to show not only a genetic connection, but a, um, a hierarchical aspect of that connection, meaning perhaps on another planet, uh, they had taken a similar position uh, as a ruler or a guide or a teacher. Okay, so so we can sort of loosely connect that he was, was he referencing the Syrians or the connection with the Syrians by having the lion in his depictions? Yes. And uh, and you said that still carries through to today, right? Does, it, is the use of the lion today still represent that? Well, it depends on what you are referring to. Uh, if we are looking at ancient relics, for example, uh, certainly, we see the depiction of the lion as often representing the the Syrian presence on planet Earth. Uh, but remember, also there are uh, there are some Lyran influences as well uh, that may have been seen in a very similar light. What about the use of the lion in, for example, the film industry today? Is is there some reference point there to the the Syrians? There is some, but also not all. Um, we see the lion as depicting a sense of, of courage and especially being uh, the king uh, over its, its, its collective, over, over its family. Um, and there are many influences within the film industry that's supposed to be the, the king in terms of overseeing an entire collective. Okay, getting back to Gilgamesh. In, in that Sumerian civilization that he was part of, what was the means of exchange? Was it gold or precious metals of some sort? Yes, we are seeing precious metals, but not exclusively gold at first, uh, because the, the prominence of gold in that civilization um, was not something that was readily available at first, even though uh, you may look back at these um, uh, historic accounts uh, and see it as um, being left behind. Uh, we see some of the original form of exchange being in a coin, kind of similar to what many of you are used to in this day and age. Not that it was a pressed or a technological coin. There were those who were in charge of ensuring a similarity of the type of modality that was being exchanged, meaning uh, they were searching for similarly shaped objects and sometimes able to put them through a certain press uh, or a technology to soften the edges or to make it appear as if it came from the same source, in other words. Is it is it fair to say that the race or rather not the race, but the group of individuals who primarily oversee at the very top levels of the financial structure in society today are a bloodline relationship to the Sumerian civilization we're referencing? 
we more um, relate to a reptilian bloodline than we do this one, not because there is no influence of this bloodline there. Uh, but what you have to keep in mind is that the more predominant genetic predisposition is always going to become um, um, forefront or come to the forefront, be prioritized. Um it's very similar with all of you. you. You come as hybrids yourself from a melting pot of many different intergalactic um, families that uh, seeded humanity, but you are all taking different paths of discovering these various family lineages and coming up through a, a predestined, perhaps, um, um, focus. Uh, of those lineages. Uh, remember, uh, the reptilians on planet Earth, they came because of a strong seeded genetic thread that was prevalent within you. And that thread has been focused on throughout history. So regardless of whether a soul was a, a, a Syrian reptilian hybrid uh, or even a human with a predisposition towards that reptilian genetic, uh, it's become stronger and stronger. So how did we end up in a society today where, for example, in some of our earlier conversations, we've discussed how all human beings come to Earth with a... Um, let's say a cosmic bank account where we pre-planned for us to have the resources that we needed in order to fulfill our life journey. Is it, is it reasonable to say that that is actually happening today? Meaning there's this great discrepancy in society between the people who have money or wealth as we term it today, let's say dollars in, in a bank or whatever or and those who have nothing and so is it reasonable to say that that large discrepancy still accounts for each individual human being's ability to fulfill their mission meaning the ones who have nothing they have nothing because they chose or nothing meaning nothing as we would quantify in a financial sense they have nothing because they chose to have a life where that's all that they needed versus those who have billions or even trillions of dollars um, have that because that's something they prearranged to have in this life. Or, or is that something that is happening as a result of this slavery dynamic? Well, this is a complicated question to answer. And there, there are many different facets that we want to bring to your attention. But to assume that you have a cosmic bank account, it, it defines an energy field that you are all incarnated within. And, and this is where we want to introduce the concept of source energy and, and what it truly is. Um, if God or prime creator became conscious and began to understand that it was influencing a field, then knowing itself and becoming a creator, everything it has ever created, either vibrationally or physically, makes up that source field. So, so source field is, is a vibrating energy, uh, a connection that you hold to everything that ever has been created. 
And the advantage to this is, is twofold. If you come with a divine plan and, and you are here on a predestined course of both fulfilling your soul's evolutionary path as well as interfacing with the great spiral of time and, and changing some of the things that you saw about it that, that need to be ascended. Everything that you draw into your experience is here to support your unique contribution. But that unique contribution and that part of you that is connected to the source field is something very misunderstood. So if we go back uh, in time, uh, even in this lifetime, to the, the very beginning, to your first breath as a child, you have been trained beyond who you are as a human soul, what your talents and gifts are, uh, who you are here to be and what you are here to do. You even believe that when you face challenges, you are meant to suffer. And ingrained in you is a program that you must effort beyond what source provides in order to receive it. So your source is actually not your source any longer. Um, you speak of a hierarchy, um, reptilians, we could call them families, bankers, who hold that source energy. This is not the same thing. It's an artificial source. It's a medium. It's something that you have been trained to go through in order to get what you desire, which ultimately takes you out of the field where everything that you need will be magnetized at the perfect time to receive it. So so thoughts, uh, emotions, desires that are generated from beliefs beyond the truth of who you are, are causing you to go to a source to find something for happiness that could never fulfill you. And this is why you're seeing the, the billionaires and the millionaires of the world ultimately creating so much chaos because if they were truly fulfilled and feeling purposeful and joyful in who they are, they would not need to destroy the lives of others. And this is a vicious cycle. Many of you are destroying your own lives. You are here suffering so dramatically uh, over things that should truly come so easily. And, and to get back into alignment with your true source sometimes means to cut the cord on all of the things that lead you astray from it. And, and we know that it's a very um, lofty um, statement to make in, a, in our position because it may seem there are so many things that are leading you away from that field. But, but our advice is to take a fast on, on anything that's causing you stress or causing you to believe that you are not sufficient or worthy and step into the relaxation of what source is already providing because there are always tangible things in your life that are coming in to support you that may not be what you've been taught you are supposed to have, but will always lead you to a better manifestation of it. So what we believe is happening is you're moving through alternate dimensions in working with source energy. Uh, this is where the analogy of the container can beautifully come in. 
you can have an experience of a pattern of unworthiness or even slavery or bankruptcy in your life. And source energy is still going to provide what you need to overcome that. But if you think that you have to work very hard to show the the past, uh, the generations in the past, what they've done wrong, you're looking in the opposite direction of where all of that healing and energy exists, where you can raise it up into a higher and higher and higher dimension. So sometimes it takes letting go of all of the things we think we need to be and the things we think we need to do in order to become what we've been told we should be and sink into the acceptance of who we are now to get back into alignment of that field, which ultimately has nothing to do with money. But because money exists on planet Earth today in the form that it does, it has to be a part of your source field. So so in other words, you may think that uh, God and, and source do not want you to have money. But if money has become a requirement for, for living in a certain way, money is always going to be a part of the source field of every soul that incarnates into this experience. But if they believe they shouldn't have it or something is blocking them from it, it, it will not come. Uh, if there is a pattern that you are meant to experience from the past of losing that money, there's always something else of its equal value that is meant to carry you through that experience. And that equal value could be another human being. And and so this is where the analogy of Atlantis beautifully comes back in. Uh, Nobody was setting or determining the value of anything else. The individual was providing something uniquely of themselves through which value came back. And this is where we believe you are going to uh, in the future. And this can can organically change your monetary system. In fact, we believe it already is. So, so putting the power of a source that now exists outside of you and is owned by someone else back into your own hands starts within you. And there's evidence of this uh, already showing itself in the material and physical plane. Okay, so I want to string a few ideas together you just brought up just to make sure I'm understanding the concept. So let's just, for, to overly simplify the concept, let's say that a soul incarnates onto planet Earth in a human form, and they have a cosmic bank account of $100. And uh, so and they chose that cosmic bank, bank account of $100 because that's what they would need in this lifetime to fulfill their purpose or mission or human experience that they came here to have. So what what you're saying, if I'm understanding correctly, is that if uh, if they were left to their own and if society didn't have this hierarchical slavery based monetary system, they would have that hundred dollars in this lifetime to fulfill that mission or purpose. But because we're raised in a society where we're programmed to believe in certain things and even to believe in this hierarchical system that puts the power outside of ourselves. Uh, for example, the United States education system originated in Germany and was taught to or was brought to the United States in order to create a society 
of people who are workers, who work inside the system that the people at the top benefit from financially. Mm-hmm. So so is what you're saying that that um, if left to our own and if we were not conditioned through these methods such as the education system to believe and accept that this hundred dollars that we came in with um, was not our was not ours to have. So that's the reason why we see people in poverty today. So perhaps many people who struggle financially today are struggling not because they chose to have that little when they came here, but rather their belief systems have caused them to restrict or be in resistance to whatever bank account. So, for example, the the person who came with $100 may actually only have access to $5, but not because they couldn't have the $100, but because they convinced themselves that they can't. Again, there are many great points in here that we want to address, but we want to start with the concept of sovereignty. Sovereignty is not what you often believe it to be. It is equated to freedom and and being able to do the things that you want to do when you want to do them, which is certainly a a part of your experience. and, And we might even say an aspect of universal law. But if you have been taught that in order to be free, there are conditions placed around it, meaning there is a certain amount of money that you need to be free. That limiting belief or program that has been put in your field exists right along with that $100 or, or everything else that Source Energy wants to provide. In fact, we could never limit a cosmic bank account to $100 because it's such a small value for a human being who is here to live out a full and, and joyful life. And, and that goes beyond money because that money comes through the hands of individuals. It, it comes through the expression of your own soul's essence. So any restriction or any density that you place in, in your field, whether it be through a, a, a commonly held belief or, or even a collectively based belief that carries more weight than a singular one, um, you are going to be skewing your potential and ability to work with that field. Yet, uh, the energy of exchange and how the motion of energy uh, carries through you is, is a very important consideration. Um, remember, everything that is in your cosmic bank account or, or source field is an extension of who you are. You believe it exists somewhere else and that it is separate of you, but it could never be. So the degree to which you are authentically expressing yourself in the world is the degree to which your access to everything that is your birthright falls into your fingertips. But it could never be what you imagine, and this is the problem, is there has been so much programming, whether it has been schooling, for example, or or government, or uh, a family lineage uh, that exists within your DNA. These things are all accounting for a, a sense of suppression where we believe we have to work in order to receive or prove ourselves even in order to receive something that we are originally not worthy of. Let's take a rite of passage here. Uh, Many on planet Earth go through a rite of passage where 
they're able to first drive a car and then able to secure a job. And it is assumed that before that time, they don't hold a great deal of worth because they are not contributing either to their own lives in a monetary sense or even to the lives of others in some way. And this is where things get very backwards. Uh, it's not to say we are here to inflate the ego of our youth to become uh, so prideful uh, that they believe they must not do any work, but it's the idea that work is what creates the identity that actually slights a soul from what it is able to achieve. But beyond this, we must keep in mind that this field around us is also collective. So, so we're going to throw another high level concept in here, not to confuse you or even to disappoint you, but, but the world at large, uh, everyone who's incarnated in the timeline that you've chosen, it's entangled in a matrix, a web of consciousness through which that energy of, of exchange is perpetuated. So if you are meant to receive that hundred dollars, through the hands of an individual who also does not believe that they are worthy enough to receive it, there is a great deal of alternate suppression going on even beyond yourself. And that's why we believe it is so important today for those who are listening to these concepts to adopt them within their personal lives, because by contract, you are connected to souls who are family members and friends and acquaintances and those you won't even know for a very long period in your life who you are influencing through your vibration. So, so we are actually accentuating an entire field of exchange and our ability to receive through our own source field. Uh, the more we live our lives to our soul's true purpose and, and live it, um, to our, our true heart's content, uh, as opposed to all of the things that have been seeded within us. Okay, so I just want to reiterate the point just for clarity. Say, when I was using the $100 amount, it was not necessarily, it was just for an illustration of the concept. Let's just use $100 million as another illustration. Let's say a soul, what I'm trying to understand is if a soul came to Earth with a cosmic bank account of $100 million to, to, that would be made available to them throughout their lifetime to fulfill whatever purpose they came here to fulfill, is it possible for that person to, because of their thought process and the society in which they live today, to restrict that $100 million to, let's say, $1,000 or uh, $50,000 or whatever, something significantly less. I'm trying to understand if people who are living in poverty, because uh, uh, we live in a society today where there is such a discrepancy where uh, in the United States, for, for example, which is considered one of the more wealthy nations in the world, over 50% of the population is living in poverty and, and only a small fraction are would be considered wealthy. Is that discrepancy existing because all of those souls who are living in poverty simply chose to have that little amount because they wanted to experience that? Or is it because they are limiting themselves from their full bank account? Well, we understand what you are asking here. So, so we want to answer it in a couple of different ways. Uh, first, 
because poverty exists within the human condition in the spiral of time, it is guaranteed that souls will experience it until they rise above it. So, so poverty as an experience, no different uh, than disease, for example, um, or, or childhood trauma is something that souls will accept when they come for the purpose of rebalancing that energetic experience. So, so even though a soul never achieves the amount of money that it needs to move beyond poverty in its entire life, how it lives that experience vibrationally is the greatest contributing factor, meaning how it perceives the richness of its life beyond money can be just as powerful as actually achieving the amount of money it needs as well. But you're, what you're asking us is, does the inheritance ever change? So if, if, if everyone on the planet comes with a vibrational inheritance that can be monetarily and physically manifested, are they able to lower that amount simply because of what they believe and who they are? No, not necessarily. But what we want you to imagine is that everything in this field is energetic in nature. It, it isn't predetermined to be a physical monetary currency until you get here and manifest it as such. So if everything is an energetic match between you and the source field around you, and you have a hierarchical structure on planet Earth that is siphoning your energy, in a sense, you are lowering your potential to bring it into being. So it's not that the amount itself becomes lowered, but your energy becomes lowered to the degree that you're able to match its vibration. And and this is done in so many different ways. Uh, for example, the, the most prominent pattern that we're seeing within humans today is energetic depletion. Um, this can be felt in, in a physical uh, way because you have been stressed, uh, you have been put into fear, you've been asked to do things outside of the range of your responsibility, and you've chosen lifetimes and lifestyles that have been um, suggested for you as opposed to the norm of what you were meant to, to put into uh, your life. And this is automatically going to have an effect on your access of that bank account. In other words, if your energetic output or the sense of energy that you feel is not equal to the amount of money that has been predetermined you are meant to receive, you are certainly not going to receive it. But but this is where we know it begs the question, how does that manifestation process take place? Where does the exchange happen between the vibration and the amount of money and the energy of the soul who is receiving it? That exchange is actually happening in a quantum way. And and it gets tricky here, we know. We we talk about being quantum and being present. Uh, quite a lot. And we talk about the concept of neutrality often. Uh, souls are deliberately taken out of the present moment to stay in the past or to be in the future because this is where their access to that energy truly exists. To move it 
from a vibrational equivalent of a monetary abundance and into the physical manifestation of that abundance requires you to see where source or your own soul wants it to come from. Meaning there is always going to be an opportunity placed before you to create a bridge between where your soul resides on planet earth and where the money resides in the cosmic bank account. But you so often miss those clues and cues and synchronicities and gifts that you negate your own reward. Uh, in other words, there's always a subconscious program filtering you away or creating a density between um, who you are today and the beliefs that you have about yourself and where that monetary abundance exists. So, so we think it's, it's truly across the board and in, in how this comes into uh, physical reality. Again, whether it is uh, programmed in, in school, uh, whether it becomes a part of the enslavement system of society or, or whether you've inherited it as a genetic program, um, there are a variety of different outlets to keep humans beyond the um, true access and, and power of their spirit, which rests in the quantum field. Okay. So to clarify the concepts you just mentioned, the cosmic bank account, which is a vibrational potential that we all come in onto planet Earth to express our journey, cannot be altered. So that is a predefined thing. But what you're saying is that the energetic depletion that human beings are experiencing as a result of the hierarchical structures and our thought process and the kind of psychological programming we've had is causing us to diminish our access to that cosmic bank account. Uh, and, and as a result, some people who are experiencing poverty um, may not have had to experience poverty. It may not have been a journey that their soul chose to have, but they are, they have put themselves there as a result of their own ability to access this bank account. That's correct. We agree with you. And what we're attempting, uh, to demonstrate here is a relationship between the ownership of money and the ownership of your soul or your energy field, which, which is ultimately, um, a, a parallel expression. It, it just seems completely different. There are beings on planet Earth who are taking possession of the energy of your soul and in so doing also diminishing your ability to access the abundance that is truly yours to receive that isn't being taken away necessarily. Uh, but you will never realize and will offer and contribute to those who are uh, separate of your energy field. So is the monetary system itself taking power or taking our soul's power away and giving it to the few? Or is it what's the mechanism that's doing that? We understand that it's important for you to to reclaim your possession of uh, the monetary system. But we simply see it a manifestation of each soul's worth from a collective vantage point. 
Um, certainly things have been put into place to control uh, the monetary system, which is merely a, a centralized means of exchanging energy. But the more you are taking your energy and sovereignty back, the less that monetary system can be owned by someone outside of you, meaning you are going to see a change. And we've already indicated we're, we're seeing this change taking place on the, on the surface of planet Earth with the introduction of new currency models that, that are, are more sovereign. Yet, uh, this is just the tip of the iceberg. It, it truly hasn't come to the point of fruition where it's a, a free and sovereign system in reciprocity of what your soul's nature uh, actually is. Okay, well, we're probably going to come back to these concepts further in a future conversation, but but I want to sort of wind up today with an understanding. Um, so is it fair to say then that if more people had sovereignty or um didn't um let's say give away their souls energy to this current hierarchical system that we would see uh, more of an even playing field in terms of people's monetary abundance meaning let's take the united states as an example we wouldn't see 60 percent of the people living in poverty and only maybe two percent who are wealthy we might see the vast majority of the population having more of a abundance and wealth in society and maybe just a few who might have chosen that experience to have that poverty we don't think you're necessarily going for wealth even though we know that's an important consideration in the topic that you've brought to our attention what we believe you will see is more prosperity and fulfillment, meaning not every soul is going to require or necessarily need the same amount of monetary abundance to achieve the level of their soul's fulfillment that another will. But ultimately, um, what's going on today is there's been a skewing of that potential. And, and this is why you see so much suffering. It is important to note, because you have brought up so many themes of inequality, that the more inequality is focused on, the more it becomes strengthened in the field. And there is an agenda in, in the world today to ensure humans' energetic focus on solving inequality, because in and of itself, it is creating more of it, which isn't just a Affecting the people that you think it is. Um, we know that some may look at racial inequality, for example, as being a problem on planet Earth that, that must be solved by those who do not experience it. But the more that those who don't experience it actually get involved in the problem and focus on it, the bigger the problem it will become. You are not here to carry forth the issues of the past and to resolve them through the choices that you make today. You're actually here to, to be focused in what is working on the planet in such a way that it can be adopted by others and energy and information and knowledge can be shared. Uh, that we think this is one of the biggest issues 
that you're actually facing in all of these various areas where there seems to be suppression. It isn't necessarily suppression of resource, it's actually suppression of knowledge. And if that knowledge was made more available to everyone on the planet, you would see a, a tremendous change. Well, I just want to clarify a few concepts to finish up our conversation for today. When I'm referring to monetary abundance and poverty and so on, uh, I'm really referring to the state of being of that. For example, as you've stated, um, it's not a particular dollar amount. So it doesn't mean that a person, well, let's uh, explain the concept of poverty as I'm trying to use it here today. A person who is typically in poverty in, let's say, the United States or anywhere in the world has the perception of struggling financially, which which would imply what you're stating is that lack of fulfillment. Because if you if you're struggling financially or feeling the lack of things in your life, that means that you are all are not fulfilled. But you can just as well have no monetary abundance in terms of, for example, paper dollars, and still feel fulfilled and thriving in your life. So um, but but in the United States, as an example, when we use the concept of poverty, that concept of poverty is directly linked to a monetary abundance. And, and so we can imply that for the most part, that 60 percent of the population that is in poverty is not feeling fulfillment as well. They're they're limiting their fulfillment as much as we see a limitation in their monetary abundance. Am I on the right track there? We agree that there is no amount of monetary abundance that is able to generate fulfillment within a soul. And the monetary system, by its very nature, is a controlling system, which means it is taking the power out of the hands of those who believe they need it and, and putting it in the hands of a slight few. And the control has to be addressed as well, because the problem that we're seeing with those who do not have the amount of money that they desire is they are putting control in the way of receiving something very innate to them. And, and control is a very unnatural way of being on planet Earth. Whether you believe you're being controlled or you are attempting to control others, uh, you are not going to find the source of abundance that you need. Okay, so is it is it fair then to, as a generalization, to assume that if someone is struggling financially, so struggling being the, the operative term here, because... As we've stated, if a person has no money at all, but they're fulfilled, then they're abundant. Um, but if so, so if they're struggling financially, meaning I'm in a state of being right now where I'm in fear or I feel lack or I feel the lack of freedom to be able to do the things I want to do or even purchase the things I want to purchase to feel fulfilled. Um, that is what I mean by struggling. So if, so if I'm in a, in a state right now where I'm struggling financially in that way, is it fair to assume that means that I have, that I'm in some way limiting my access to this field of abundance or cosmic bank account, um, that I came here with? 
It is hard for us to say that this is true in every case, because remember, the theme uh, throughout the human condition of abundance or the lack thereof is going to play out in the, the divine plan of, of many souls. However, the the important thing to know is that no one soul is ever meant to experience poverty or a lack of abundance throughout their entire incarnation. So anytime we see someone who goes through their entire life or a very elongated period or stretch of time without the basic um, material needs of their soul being met, we know there must be some unnatural influence or orchestration going on from beyond them. And this is where we think it's very important to, again, get back into alignment with your divine plan, not having to know what it is necessarily, but to look back on your life and notice the areas where you have been creatively suppressed or somehow taken away from your soul's true talents or, or true nature and not to even put them into action right away, but but just the reunion with ourselves energetically in knowing that there is something of value we came to offer sets off a chain of events within us that can open us up to more abundance. But consciousness is also the key. And, and we've we've replayed this theme in various questions that you have asked us, even going back to Atlantis, these very high uh, scale technologies that were able to support vibration and consciousness of, of the entire civilization. Uh, we think these things can be brought back into your personal experience, even doing uh, a very um, uh, unique meditation practice practice that that relaxes you, takes you out of a state of control and fight or flight and puts you into a more expanded viewpoint is going to be essential because that expanded viewpoint, that that state of higher consciousness is inevitably going to lead you down a path of support or somehow finding the abundance that you need, even at the very lowest levels, to get you through to the next stage of your journey. And ultimately, when we don't think we have what we need, we're being called to our inner world to realize that we are everything that has ever been needed by the entire world. It's a period of time where we can contemplate uh, what we came here to offer and, and the gifts and abilities that we may have been in fear of accepting, but now must be embraced in order for us to live the life that we want as an example for others. Okay, we may not finish this conversation today, but I want to uh, ask one more thing. So let's take the billionaires of the world, and I, I believe there are trillionaires in the world today too, which we don't know publicly about. But So these are individuals who are on the opposite end of the spectrum, who have immense wealth and monetary abundance in the structure of the world we have today, and they control that structure uh, for that reason. So using this concept that we discussed today, how is it they're accessing that much? Do they come into this world 
with that much in their cosmic bank account or are they skewing it in their favor in some way to produce that result? So, so remember, there are many energetic practices that are being used by these families, for example, that are tapping into the energy matrix of the collective. And, and we could spend hours talking about these various techniques and ceremonies, but it's important to understand that uh, energy is, is going to flow where it is being called. In other words, if we do not take ownership of our energy, someone else will possess it for us. And that is ultimately what is happening. Um, from the material standpoint, however, there is a whole alternative source system that has been built and maintained in order for these individuals to receive more than perhaps what their soul's plan has offered. And yes, we can see deviations in a soul's ability to accentuate beyond its own field um, what it draws from others. This is often done in very uh dedicated and religious practices of siphoning the energy of others to assume some level of power. But this money or wealth that's being generated, uh, keep in mind, it's, it's often coming from very uh, materially creative ideas where systems and entire structures are being put in place uh, by those who want to sway an entire planet in their direction. And this could only come through an ability to work with energy so diligently that opportunities are seen to take advantage. And this is ultimately what you're going for. So uh, you having a kind heart and a, and a loving predisposition, you're not setting out to expand consciousness and to practice spirituality to receive from others, but to see the advantages of strengthening yourself to the degree that you are able to use that inheritance uh, for the benefit of others. And so it's a, it's a reverse type of equation in, in the sense of those in power. But we want to also add in the idea of law of attraction and the practices that are known to be um, used to to manifest in this way and they are not malevolently intended we want to say first and foremost yet there has been some influence here anytime you are focused on a certain amount of monetary abundance exclusively for yourself in order to build wealth or status for example it's no different then some of the more um, meticulous and, and, and advanced uh, systems and programs that those in power are using, they're accumulating wealth and creating a false hierarchical system that others believe is real. And in doing so, creating a lot of separation in that matrix that we speak of. So the second you become focused on a practice, to assume a certain amount of monetary abundance that puts you above and beyond others. Keep in mind that you can be creating contradictions in that matrix by your very intention. 
um, it, it is only with a pure heart and with um, an, an affirmation of, of sharing uh, or being of service that we think that these practices are, are truly the most beneficial. So just to clarify these practices or um, uh, energetic practices that the billionaires, for example, in the world are using, you're referring back to what we discussed in previous conversations about the secret Kabbalistic teachings, right? correct. Okay. So they're using these Kabbalistic teachings, and the vast majority of the human civilization is essentially selling their soul or their energetic um, contribution to these individuals who are using these practices to siphon that energy and which is what's manifesting as their monetary abundance, correct? Correct. Okay. All right. So this is a topic we're going to have to come back to, but um, but just if we can sort of wrap it up with maybe a simple um, uh, or at least a start that we can pick up next time. How do you mentioned meditation, but how do, how do individuals, so if you are somebody who is struggling financially at the moment and it's a pretty good chance that you've given up your soul's energetic potential to this system, how do you reverse that? There is a higher mind. There is a part of you that exists beyond the veil that is accounting for all of the things in your source field that that must come and, and can come, but it is not offer that often that higher mind that, that we are operating from. We are operating from a, a corrupted mind, one that has been trained in a certain way of thinking, uh, always comparing and judging and again, uh, focused in the past or in the future. So the most beneficial meditation practice is to access that higher mind. And that is a, a place of stillness where we are not reliant on manifesting anything. We're not putting intentions in the field to, to be or to do anything other than accessing our calm and, and our connection. This can set us up throughout the day to stay within range of that quantum field where all of the energy of our uh, bank account, in other words, actually exists, where it becomes tangible. We see it in um, a, a sign or a synchronicity. Uh, we're able to take advantage of the opportunities that show up for us in each present moment and, and especially appreciate uh, all of the things that we have in our lives that are supporting us right now. Uh, this is where we must remain. And it is perhaps the first step to obliterating many of those subconscious programs that we do not even believe are carrying us so outside of, of this very abundant field. Um, it is not one meditative practice that we, we always like to suggest because we know uh, each of you are individuals, but whatever brings you to a place of rest, place of peace, place of mindfulness, where you are able to interact with the physical field in a very clear, present and deliberate way is going to be the most powerful one for you to use in order to move beyond any experience of poverty. Well, we'll finish up there for today. Uh, it's a big topic we'll probably pick up on in, the, in future conversations, but, but thank you for being with us today. And thank you, Michaela. 
And thank you all for joining us for another show today. And we will be back again next week. You can also find us on other platforms now on different podcasting platforms like uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and Alexa, as well as Spotify and others. So uh, look for us on other platforms. Uh, we'll be expanding further from there in the months and years ahead as well. So thank you again, and we'll see you next time. These two are really insightful. I, that's the way we can put it. They are speaking in their conversation to the very moment we're in. And I hope this has helped you and all of us. Um, this is going to be intriguing. And in we played this gentleman... Um, um, the Shakespeare equation last week it was the very last thing we played and I just I started transcribing it I didn't get finished but he said so much in that tiny little half hour or so and, and uh, let's see how long was it it was 29 minutes last week this is 22 minutes, and Alan W. Green is going to continue. It's called the Royal Riddle. What are the lost links between Egyptian mystery schools and the Shakespeare equation? Author, join author, Alan W. Green to explore the anagrams, the annotations, the astronomy, and encoded iconography, iconographies connecting different eras with the mysteries of Shakespeare. From secret code numbers of royal ent- of royal elites to the interweavings of Hamlet and the Egyptian god Horus. Follow the, the breadcrumbs back to Holy Trinity Church and the hidden altar that was left behind as a key. Are you ready, Rama? Yeah. Okay, 22 minutes, the last of our beginning sharing. Here we go. Oh, my We know now that the structural center of the sonnets is April 23rd. So in order for Shakespeare's birthday to land precisely in the center, It had to be specifically chosen to be that day, which just happens to be St. George's Day, the slayer of the dragon of delusion. Given this precise planning, one would expect the center sonnet, number 113, to be very British and patriotic. But no, 
is celebrating Egypt's most central religious myth, the Eye of Horus. Since I left you, mine eye is in my mind, is partly blind, seems seeing, but effectually is out. Horus is depicted as a falcon, the world's fastest bird who can see his prey a mile away. Thus he's represented by the single, all-seeing eye of God. But of course he has two eyes, the sun and the moon, inherited from his father Osiris, the god of the afterlife associated with the sun, and his mother Isis, the virgin queen goddess associated with the moon. Osiris's brother Set is the god of chaos and disorder. He represents the concept of Maya, the magic trick that divides unity consciousness into an infinity of seemingly separate entities. That would be us. He kills Osiris to usurp his throne, to gain dominion over creation by cutting him into 14 pieces. But he's really just doing his job, dividing the one into many fractals of the unity who, as a consequence, think we're all different. It's the only way the universe can have a drama is if our divine eye is temporarily blinded and we see with two eyes of earthly vision, seem seeing, but our true sight effectually is out. Horus's destiny is to do battle with Set and avenge his father's murder. But it's actually the destiny of each and every one of us to overcome the delusion of Maya, slay the dragon. In one of the contests between them, Set locks out Horus's left eye in the moon reducing his sight even more. This is why the Shakespeare engraving has two right eyes. I suspect you're beginning to see by now the broad mixture of cultural and religious iconography that Shakespeare draws on for dramatic purposes. Pagan, Jewish, Catholic, Protestant, Egyptian. It's his way of saying, as he does in Twelfth Night, it's all one. He's never advocating for any one belief system over another. He deals in miracles. And no religion has a monopoly on those. They're just manifestations of the one universal truth. When Emperor Constantine beheld his miraculous vision of the symbol known as the Cairo Christogram, he saw the first two Greek letters of the name Christ in a spear forming the X and Rho. Rho is the Greek letter R, but it looks like a long-stemmed P. Another version called the Tau Rho uses a Tau cross T in place of the Chi cross X, just like D and De Vere favor. Either side of the cross, Constantine saw the Greek letters Alpha and Omega representing Christ's words, I am the beginning and the end whose English equivalents are A and O. The whole symbol ultimately represents the divine unity of the one, the I, the missing I. Altogether, a perfect anagram of Horatio, Hamlet's most loyal and trusted friend. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamed of in your philosophy. 
I am by no means the first to see that the author is telling his own story through the dramatic lens of Prince Hamlet. But most scholars have missed the Egyptian mystery school connections to Freemasonic philosophy. The Shakespeare equation revealed the speed of light and the average distances of Earth to Sun and Earth to Moon. I didn't fully realize it until 2020, but it's a macrocosmic reflection of the microcosmic Horus myth of left eye, moon, right eye, sun, third eye, light. It's all part of the puzzle Shakespeare has left for us. Indeed, when Hamlet says, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns puzzles the will, he really means revolve, wills the puzzle. The Horus myth is essentially the story of Hamlet. In Shakespeare's version, Prince Hamlet is Horus, King Hamlet's ghost is Osiris, Queen Gertrude is Isis, the prince's uncle Claudius is Set, the usurping brother who kills King Hamlet to become King Claudius. Did you know that in the late Egyptian period, Set was depicted as a man wearing a donkey's head mask? So in Shakespeare's fairyland play, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Set is actually the good guy, Bottom, starting to awaken from the delusion of his dream of separate existence into his true divine nature. In Hamlet, the many chorus set battles are all condensed down into one final sword fight. And it's very telling that there are two characters who don't appear in any of the source materials Shakespeare used for this play. One is Hamlet's challenger in the duel, Laertes. The other is the referee of the contest, Osric. Their names are totally made up by the poet to help us truly get his autobiographical play within the play. He's telling us Horus equals Hamlet equals Oxford equals Shakespeare. Osric shows up out of nowhere just for this last scene. Why? Because his name is an anagram of Rosie C, an abbreviation of Rosie Cross. And using only the letters of Rosie, we can make Osiris or Isis. As for Laertes, he's a proxy for Claudius Set, who's using a poisoned rapier to murder Hamlet. His name is an anagram of real Set. And Shakespeare has him ritually kill the real king, the truly mad King Lear, who, just like the Earl King of Oxford, had three daughters, one of whom he disowned. It's a puzzle, folks. Come on. The Hamlet Horus Oxford King. Shakespeare can't let it go, and he has to kill everybody off this time. Except... Except Osric. The Rosicrucian truth must survive. And Horatio, the Tauro truth, that we are all the divine I. That must survive too. One other character we've hardly seen at all, but who is given the last lines of the play because he gets to be the new king. He's another completely made-up name for the puzzle, Fortinbras. 
a firstborn. So you see, the master poet is equating the Horus myth with the St. George myth. Both are defeating Maya, Set, by slaying the dragon of delusion. But the most telling metaphor by far is that if Oxford is Hamlet, and Hamlet is Horus, and Horus is the child of Isis, a virgin queen associated with the moon, well, I'm just saying. But to make total sense of this, we're going to need to examine one sentence spoken by Polonius in Hamlet. And there are a couple of clues we need to understand first. One of them is the actual signature that Edward de Vere used for most of his life. Here are two examples of it. Notice the first letter of his first name is connected to the last letter of his last name. The last letter of his first name is connected through this strange symbol to the first letter of his last name, reminiscent of the revolved Hebrew alphabet code that started us off on this whole journey. The first shall be last. So what is this? It looks like two W's joined together. However, some Oxfordians believe it represents a crown and that he's hinting he's the true king. Stratfordians say, no, no, it's, it's just a coronet. What's the difference? I'm glad you asked. Coronets are reserved for certain ranks of nobility, earls, lords and ladies, and of course, Lord de Vere, the 17th Earl, certainly fits into that category. Crowns are symbols of monarchy, reserved for kings, queens and princes. For example, the last Tudor king, young Edward VI. But there's an important distinction. Coronets have points or mini ornaments attached to the gold headpiece. Crowns have arches connecting the ornaments, which coronets specifically do not. But there's one exception to this rule. The heir apparent can wear or display a coronet with one arch only across the middle. I'm just saying. There's more. How many slashes are there across this joining line? Edward the Sixth. Uh-oh. Edward Seven. It's hard to argue that he's saying anything other than he's King Edward the Seventh. But again. It's this redundancy, the same message over and over that makes the odds of probability of these clues being random coincidences essentially zero. For example, secret letters passed between King James of Scotland and Elizabeth's Secretary of State, Robert Cecil, reveal the code numbers of several high-ranking members of Elizabeth's court. Robert Cecil's was 10. King James was 30. Oxford's number was 40. At the very top of page 40, in the first folio, there's a scene where King Richard II is being forced to surrender his crown. When asked if he's ready to do so, Richard says, I, no, no, I, for I must nothing be. It sounds like he's undecided 
Yes, no, no, yes. But seen as numbers, this is one, zero, zero, one. Cecil's code number, ten, reversed against itself. He continues, Therefore, no, no, for I resign to thee. But that's four, zero, zero, four. Oxford's code number reversed against itself. Robert Cecil, the true power in real life, plotting to put King James of Scotland on the English throne, thus denying Oxford, who is clearly saying he's the true heir. Once again, the real play within the play. By reversing these code numbers, Shakespeare is saying, if you're going to negate me, Cecil, force me to give up my crown, I'm going to negate you. One zero becomes zero one. History is going to know the truth through the hidden codes I'm placing in these works. Carrying on, he says, mark me how I will undo myself. And for the next 17 lines, he lists all the ritual acts of a monarch's coronation ceremony, but in reverse. And at the end of the speech, at the very bottom of page 40, he says, command the mirror here straight. <laughs> just in case we didn't get the clue mirror imagery so now we're ready to fully understand Polonius's big clue where he says I will find where truth is hid though it were hid indeed within the center look at all the capitalized letters PT the Tau Rho the iconic Christogram symbol that hides Horatio's name. C, the Roman numeral for 100. C, I, Roman numeral for 101. <laughs> These are the absolute center pages of the first folio. And here's what's called the catchword. It's a printing device used to aid the compositors in putting the pages together correctly. The word at the top of the next page is also the printed word at the bottom of the preceding page. If they don't match, the printers know the pages are out of order. So the catchwords are at the very center. Ore, and then ore. This is the Latin word for mouth, but again, revolve them. And we get ero, ero, Latin for I will be what I will be, the future tense name of God. But of course, it's also saying very subtly, I will be the mouth of God. Exactly what his pen name anagram is saying, I am Asher, will speak. <laughs> Since the speech itself is about the center, we can be sure D has left something significant there, as usual. And indeed, there are two center sections, each containing their own solution, but each dependent on recognizing the other. It's Diffie's colored paints mixed together again. Named T is the first one. It's something whose name is holy, the T, cross. Or maybe the altar. But like his master code in the Enochian tables, there's an embedded trapdoor in it that will only make sense when connected to the second solution here. And that's 
trifle which can't really be solved until we dig deeper. So let's look at the grid. First, we see the De Vere cross. Then, this starts as a perfect southwest aisle cross, which we saw previously. But it goes further. The west-southwest aisle hill. How perfect. Richard Hill's tomb is there, but if we close this box shape up properly, what's U-M? It makes the word hillum, which is Latin for trifle. The word hidden in the second center. So, you ask? Well, if Hamlet is the play nearest to Oxford's autobiography, The Tempest is nearest to that of John Dee. And it's the one time Shakespeare uses trifle, Latin hillum, in its archaic sense, meaning a fiction, an illusion, a trick. It says, or some enchanted trifle to abuse me. How brilliant. It contains the name Hill, but it is telling us that Hill's tomb is an illusion, a trick. Set, right? It's even shaped like a double box with the letters H and E, a Hebrew word for God, within. There's more. The He and the TH combine to give the Hebrew letter Het, which means enclosure. And as we all know, the Hebrew alphabet was originally developed from the Phoenicians. Take a deep breath. Because here's the original Phoenician version of the letter Hep. Precisely the same shape. Hillam, trifle, named T, gives us the physical location under Richard Hill's tomb where we will find the altar stone. Or, reversed, find will. And of course, as usual, It's signed by D. Don't forget, this was coded 400 years ago as a pointer to let initiates know where they could find the missing altar stone at a later time when it would be safe for the truth to come out. But nobody looked, and now the stone has been found and returned to its Holy of Holies location. And we have the scientific proof in the scan. An extension of the math that he's determined will prove the codes to be genuine. But still, it didn't stop him trying his best to leave poetic proofs as well. For instance, in the very last sonnet, he writes, This by that I prove. By making the very last line of the sonnets, plus the Latin finis, which means the end, by turning that into an anagram, he reveals this truth. Love's fire heats water, water cools, not love, finis, becomes. Alter stone solves the final secret of WW1001, signed E. Vere. 
In the lover's complaint, he writes, the four betrayed. To betray means to reveal, but treacherously, what was previously revealed in the former sonnet code, which he's saying would have been called treachery at the time. So again, the very last line of the poem, plus the Latin finis for the end, gives an anagram that reveals from these words, anu pervert, a reconciled maid, finis, it becomes infine, that's another way of saying finis, in the end, print conceals, I am Edward de Vere. Could it be any clearer? As D and de Vere compound proofs on top of proofs, the scope of their system broadens, revealing more and more precise interconnections that ultimately confirm a 30-year master plan. But their magnum opus connects more than just the known works of Shakespeare. In the next episode, you're about to see proof that these Rosicrucian masters played a huge role in translating the King James Bible. everybody this guy is telling the whole story uh, and he's studying what the sonnets of Shakespeare uh-huh and Sage Shakespeare has an office in Washington DC and two other offices in Virginia and he hasn't even invited me there and I just remember the denial of Christ. Peter, and that's going on in the minds of a lot of people right now. (laughs) Deny me three times. Mm. Three is the magic number. And the last thing I was transcribing was his uh, information. Actually devised, defined by looking in the sonnets, there were six dots in this sonnet arrangement. And then it was an instruction to draw a line between uh, two dots and then another line between two dots and then a third line between two dots, which made the six dots and it defined, um, it made a, a triangle, not any triangle, but an isosceles triangle. And then you go to geometry and Pythagorean theorem. And Pythagoras was Katumi, the magical number three. Okay, so the, the right angle of an isosceles triangle makes pi. And pi is a number that never ends. And I like pi. I <laughs> to say it. Uh, Barack Obama again. <laughs> and 
the brilliance of the mind of all of us is enhanced as we blaze the violet fire and call in that divine government through us. And we got to take a break. So we'll be back with our brother Richard and a look at the stars. Tanya Gabrielle, K. Pacha. Until then, and music, of course. Until then, we will see you soon. Namaste. 10, 15 minutes. That was the who? Yeah, from uh, Mongolia, the legend of Mother Swan. I pass the talking stick to you, Richard. Thank you, sir. All right, good evening, audience, wherever you may be. Good evening, Richard. Yeah, it's the 3rd of June, and we're going to talk about the conditions in the solar system. Oh, I found a new website that I want to draw your attention to. Where did I, where did, yeah. It's called Heavens Above. Capital H E A V E N S hyphen hyphens above. And in there there's a tab called the solar system. Mm-hmm. When you tap on that, you get a picture of the solar system, where the planets are. And uh, it's uh, it'll help you with your perspective, you know, where we are, you know, relative to the other planets. Thank you, Richard. That sounds interesting. Yeah. Uh, let me just go. Don't just click on that. Right? Yeah, it's called HeavensAbove.com. All right. And uh, it's got all kinds of neat stuff on it. All right. Now we're in the full moon zone here. And it's at 14 degrees of Gemini Sag axis. And uh, Saturn's at 8 Pisces, so that's your T square. And then we got this other T square, which is Pluto opposite Venus. Mm. With, that's, yeah, with uh, Jupiter in the north node. Making another T square. North node's at four and Jupiter is at five. Taurus. Then we also have Mercury conjunct Uranus. In the other, in the higher zone of Taurus and Mercury's at 20 and Uranus is at 21. And that's, yep, that's our one, two, that's our four squares and two oppositions. And we got a couple of trines in here to help us out. Uh, that's, I'm not going to, that's not, 
that's not a trine. All right. Uh, Neptune at 28 Pisces is trine Venus at 29 Cancer. All right. And then Neptune sextile Pisces. So you got Pluto, Neptune, Venus. And you got Pluto, Jupiter, Venus. Mars is at 9 Leo now. And Sun's Sun's at 14. Chiron's at 19 Aries. Saturn's at eight Pisces, and that's that's your layout. So, if you're going to look at the solar system from the from the solar angle of it, that puts Earth in Sagittarius. Oh. So, from the sun, Earth is in the direction of Sagittarius. Alright? And that's always going to be the case. Alright, now, let's go check out what Kaipacha's thinking of. And I will see if he picks out some Sabian symbols tonight. If he does, that's all well and good. But I've got two in mind that I've already looked at that uh, I think we should look at. Yeah, I think we should look at 14 Sagittarius, because I'm fond of Sagittarius. It's my moon. Rama's moon is in Sagittarius. Well, maybe that's why I'm fond of Rama. Hmm. <laughs> Here we go. All right, then. Special announcement, special announcement. This weekend, the Astrology of Relationships, Part 3. Composite Charts. There is a way of looking at the expanding consciousness of why you chose a particular relationship, a particular person, and we're going to go through it. It is uh, June 3rd and 4th, and then another uh, couple of days, a couple of weeks from now. I think it's the 16th and the 17th. So four hours on Saturday, four hours on Sunday, recorded with worksheets, workbooks, so many people online all together. It's going to be amazing. Just like these rocks. <laughs> right? Wow. All right. I hope to see you there. There's a link down at the bottom, so check it out. Calamera, everybody. Yasas from Kitnos over here in Greece. Ow! It is a beautiful day for a Pele report. Wednesday, uh, May 31st, last day of May. Can't believe we're already into June. 
Oh, por Dios. Anyway, the moon's in Libra, and uh, she's going to be moving into Scorpio uh, today, uh, you know, uh, Wednesday. And then uh, by Friday, she moves into Sag. And on Saturday, we have the full moon in Sagittarius. Foreign lands, foreign journeys, expansion of consciousness. Here we come. The holy quest, as I say in the mantra for this week. And then uh, after that, uh, she's uh, uh, moves on into Capricorn by Monday. Yeah. So we do have that sun in Gemini. That's why I'm up here. We, you know, there are people in today's Pele report because the sun is in Gemini. Not only that, but then Venus is going into Leo. Uh, by, by Monday, Venus goes into Leo. So hot diggity dogs. We'll talk a little bit about that, possibly, but there's so much to talk about because there's so much going on. That Venus is trying to Neptune. There's a grand trine on Friday, okay, with Venus trying, Neptune trying, the moon in Scorpio. Grand water trine. Absolutely gorgeous, wonderful, full of feeling. Mars is in conjunct Saturn, okay, and Mercury is conjunct uh, Uranus. I mean, there's so much happening on so many different levels that I could really talk for a long time. But uh, probably most of all, what I really want to bring to you today is this Jupiter conjunct the north node of the moon. Uh, this this doesn't this happens maybe every eleven years or so. Okay, it's it's powerful, it's very strong, it is exact on Thursday, yeah, and you know that is yeah. I'm going to read the Sabian symbol for Jupiter conjunct the North Node. Uh, that is happening at uh, the fourth degree of Taurus. And then I'm also going to be reading you the Sabian symbol for the full moon, the 14th degree of Sagittarius. Uh, besides that, I'm just going to talk so much about, uh, you know, all of this action going on, what it means, what it implies, and how best to work with it, deal with it, maximize it, enjoy it, and yeah... Let me just uh, find a place, look at the camera, and talk at you. Okay, let's jump right into this and just kind of look at the big stuff here. I mean, Jupiter is big. (laughs) You can fit a thousand Earths inside of Jupiter. That's how big Jupiter is. Ow! Goes around uh, every 12 years. Spends a year in a sign and is spending a year in Taurus. Earth. Fixed Earth. Sustain, maintain, build up, survive. Survive the species through procreation. It is just like getting in touch with our five physical senses, with our need for food, shelter, clothing. And Jupiter is expansion. Abundance, opportunity. This is a time of us discovering and expanding. I want to be really talking about expanding because the full moon is in 
Sagittarius. Sagittarius is ruled by Jupiter, and it is the expansion of consciousness, ultimately. And as Jupiter goes around, it wants to expand our consciousness of Taurus. And Taurus is our bodies. And Taurus is our resources. And our fundamental resources that make us valuable, that bring us compensation, is our skills. Our, what is our, your capacity to survive, to get a job, to produce income? We develop ourselves. We develop our resources. And it may be dancing, singing, mathematics, muscles for construction. It may be any number of skills, right? And, and these make us more valuable. And, the, and, and so, you know, and, and not only Jupiter now, but now it conjoins the north node of the moon. The north node of the moon goes around every 18.6 years. It's been in Taurus since January of 22. It's only there until July 18th. So this north node is now the focus on our future soul evolution. I hope that you have been focusing on yourself, on developing yourself, on loving yourself, on feeling worthy to receive abundance. Because now, especially, baby, this week, Jupiter and the North Node come together. Now that North Node is at the fourth degree, which is, you know, uh, three degrees, zero minutes to three degrees, 39, I mean, 59 minutes. That's the fourth degree of Taurus. I'm going to read to you the Sabian symbol for the fourth degree of Taurus. And Jupiter is moving through and hitting the node right there, but then Jupiter's moving on. The node moves more slowly, and the true north node is at the fourth degree of Taurus, okay, from May 9th until June 16th. So just, this is not just for this week, right? This is a weekly Pele report, but like you can carry this symbol you know, and make note of it and get into it, right, for the next what, you know, two, three weeks. And what is it? The pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. (laughs) Yeah. In Genesis, the rainbow is the symbol of the covenant of God with Noah. In all mythologies, Chiron, the rainbow bridge, right, bridges together. In all mythologies, it expresses in one way or another a linking process or the bridge used by divine beings to communicate with mortals. What the linking process brings to the individual consciousness is elusive. 
as the rainbow never ends where you are. Yet it is the source of symbolic, universally valid wealth. All wealth, in a very real sense, comes from commerce, from the co-mingling of minds and from contracts, and thus is based on faith in the validity of a promise. So, the sun moving through Gemini, Gemini, Mercury in the third house, to me, deals so much with commerce and with communication and with networking and co-mingling. I mean, this is such a great symbol. This is this is a time I really encourage you. This is like if you're starting a business, if you're starting a website, if you're planning ahead for the future, I mean, you know, it is the time, especially at the full moon in Sagittarius, foreign lands, foreign journeys. If you're thinking of publishing a book, okay, or publishing a song or music, you know, Sagittarius is the sign of publishing. Gemini, the sun in uh, Gemini, is writing, speaking, teaching, you know, communicating, sharing. And it's also studying and learning. And that's that's really what I also want to focus on with the mantra for this week is that, you know, this is a time of great expansion of consciousness through learning through exploring. And I say that because Mars has been square the moon's nose. And here we have penetration, initiation, beginning, starting. It was opposite Pluto. Now Venus is coming in to Leo, right? And she's going to start off with an opposition to Pluto. (laughs) And she's going to stay in Leo, all right, until October 10th. Woo! Yeah, so we've got this Venus into Leo. And what does Venus want? She's the ruler of Taurus. She's the ruler of the North Node. Right now she's dispositing Jupiter because Jupiter is in Taurus. So Venus becomes ever so much more powerful when she rules the north node of the moon. In July, when the north node of the moon goes into Aries, Mars will become more important because Mars rules Aries and Mars will be the ruler of the north node. Get it? Anyway. Venus is coming out of cancer where the need has been for safety, security, so that we could feel our vulnerable emotions, our needs, our inner child, to really come home and get a sense of belonging to family, to friends, to planet Earth, to Gaia. It's a very introverted, you know, you know, introspective time period. And that's been this last month of Venus in Cancer. And now it's time for her to come into fire. What does, you know, Aphrodite want as, you know, the queen 
of the jungle, the lioness. Okay, Venus moving into fire, Venus moving into Leo is seeking to play, seeking romance, gambling. Uh, and, and what do these all have? You know, love affairs and children and creative self-expression and dancing and singing on stage and being the center of attention. What, what do these all have in common? Trusting life and trusting that I am an agent of life and as such, life supports me. I'm going to gamble because I feel like I'm a winner, right? You know, I feel like, you know, I am worthy, I am awesome, and life is going to compensate me. Life is going to reflect back to me, okay, and support me and hold me up. So Leo is about trusting life. Leo is, you know, really about, you know, healing any kind of wounds around persecution, around being rejected, around, you know, past lives of, you know, really uh, not feeling supported by life, not feeling lucky, not being able to play. So with Venus and Mars both traveling through Leo now together, uh, you know, for the whole rest of uh, June, it's, it is a time of great healing, and that healing occurs through doing, right? It's a young, masculine, fire sign that wants to come out there and go for it and do it, baby. <laughs> yeah. So let's also look at the opposition to Pluto. Now, you know, Venus was conjunct Pluto, I think it was January 1st, okay? And that conjunction was, what, intense transformation through relationship, right? Really just like, you know, osmosis, merging, uniting, coalescing, and being transformed through that powerful, intense cauldron of relationship, Venus-Pluto, that could have been a time then of starting, of initiating a transformative process. Also with relation to our bodies, Venus is our bodies, it is our money, it's our finances. You could have begun something or, you know, bought something or really gotten into something back in the beginning of January. You may just have made a New Year's resolution around money, love, or yeah. your body. And now, six months later, Venus comes around to that opposition. And it's like this full moon of illumination so that, you know, you may, you know, now it's time to take it to the next level. It's time to take that relationship to the next level, that expenditure or that possession or that, you know, uh, you know, you, you know, your body or, you know, your business or your creation it's time to bump it up. <laughs> yeah. 
And what do we have to do when we do all this? Like, I'm talking like, you know, Mr. Positive here. You know, I mean, the economy's going down the drain and all the governments and all the, you know, there's all this paranoia and all this, you know, fluff and fluff and look out and oh my God, inflation and uh, cost of living and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. yeah. It's all like trying to do the opposite. I mean, that Pluto in Aquarius going back into Capricorn, this is like external forces and sources and everything trying to, like, dominate, control, exploit, manipulate, mandate. And we just, like, you know, we have to summon up the Kundalini. we got to summon up that chi power and have courage. Yeah, Chiron in Aries is healing Right? Our wounds around fear. And we have to face fear dead in the eye. And face it and do it anyway. It's like, I am not going to be stopped. I trust. I believe in myself, in life, in the future. And, you know, I gotta, I gotta dig my way through all this bullshit. You know? And stay on track and stay on focus. So that's what this is about. I want to read you the Sabian symbol for the, for the full moon. You know, it's powerful. It's the Great Pyramid and the Sphinx. The 14th degree of Sagittarius. The enduring power of occult knowledge and of its quasi-divine custodians. Seed people of a previous cycle of existence. We need to go deep here, folks. The belief in an original tradition based on the perfect knowledge of the archetypal principles and forms which underlie all manifestations of life on earth is deeply rooted in our consciousness. You get that? Yeah? There is an original, whether you call it the Tao or the, yeah, whatever you want to call it, but it's deeply rooted that there is, a, a, you know, an explanation. Sagittarius. The Great Pyramid and the Sphinx are witnesses to such a tradition, especially for the Western world. The symbol implies that such an archetypal knowledge remains the foundation upon which our minds can still build solid and valid formulations as new evolutionary developments are pending. This symbol suggests that this occult, which is secret or hidden knowledge, and the traditional process of acquiring it is still available. And that by accepting their principles, modern people can best meet the challenge of our present world crisis. The symbol, interpreted from a personal point of view, points to the greatness of a soul's past incarnations and achievements and the value of trying to re-evoke this past. 
What is revealed is the power of spiritual ancestry. What we're saying is there is a way, there is secret, hidden, traditional, ancient, occult knowledge that gives us the pathway towards truth, the Holy Grail, the meaning of life, Sagittarius, Jupiter, the ninth house. There are ways. Astrology is one of these ways. Astrology is the oldest science art on planet Earth. And it points us to natural laws that govern all evolution. So we can find a way, and that's what I'm talking about today with today's mantra. I must carry on my holy quest searching the north, south, east, and west. For there is more I wish to know. Penetrate, ingest, transform, and grow. This is Sagittarius. This is the full moon in Sagittarius. Strengthen, illuminating the sun in Gemini, the student the youthful fool walking off the cliff. Yeah, the curious one that is excited to expand, learn, and grow. Venus and Mars both moving through Aries, having opposed Pluto, squaring the nodes, squaring Jupiter. They want to penetrate. Think of penetrate, right? The scalpel penetrates. Okay, the phallus, the lingam penetrates the yoni. Yes, all these forms of penetration, the rocket penetrates, okay, the night sky to get to distant, distant, distant realms. You know, the drill penetrates, okay, into the earth to dig up the minerals and the diamonds and the gold and the silver. <clears throat> so there is this penetration. This is that Mars energy of the masculine penetrating. And then ingesting is the Venusian, right? I am going to draw in the new nourishment, the new wisdom, the new meaning, the new understanding. And I want to ingest it. I want to digest it, right? And and then from that, I'm going to transform yeah, you know, so we penetrate, we ingest, and we transform, and that is growth. That's growth, man. Physical growth, emotional growth, we penetrate into relationship. We, you know, we, we ingest, you know, the love that lies in the relationship. It transforms us, our, our loving relationships transform us and we grow through relationship. You can, you can take this into any, any part or any area of your life. And it's a very powerful week, a powerful time. These are very Powerful aspects. And I didn't even say all of them. But this is also Mercury conjunct Uranus. Mercury conjunct Uranus. 
That is downloads, flashes of insight, inspiration, liberation, enlightenment. It's like, get your mind blown and then trust that it's from source and it's a download and you're supposed to act on it instead of just like sit there and take it all in and meditate on it and talk about it and uh, imagine it. Uh, 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 uh. This is creating out of that heightened state consciousness and taking that rocket ship even a little bit farther. Ow! One more time. I must carry on my holy quest. Searching the north, south, east, and west. For there is more I wish to know. Penetrate, ingest, transform, and grow. Yeah, baby. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. The talking stick to you, Richard. All right. He uh, he picked uh, the two. Uh, the two Sabian symbols. He, he picked the two Sabian symbols that I had picked out as being important. Absolutely, I do it. I do it. I absolutely do it. <laughs> so we're gonna do. Four degrees of Scorpio, which is where the south node is, which indicates where we're coming from. Okay? Okay. A youth carries a lighted candle in a devotional ritual. The educative power of ceremonies which impress the great images of a culture upon its gathered participants. A community of human beings is ensouled by a few basic symbols which structure and illustrate the group's particular culture and way of life. Rituals and social ceremonies of all types, from a baseball game to a ticker tape parade for returning heroes or a religious service in an old cathedral, incorporate these symbols in traditional forms of activity. As they participate in these collective presentations, 
of commonly accepted values and ideals, the minds and feelings of young people are formed by these symbols. They take the values for granted until the day when they choose to assert their individuality or their participation in a generation's revolt by scorning the traditional rituals, including as well business rituals, then they may poignantly search for new ones to participate in. All right. I think I think uh, the the older among us can relate to uh, revolt against the elder the older generation. This was particularly obvious in the sixties and seventies. All right. Now that's for Scorpio. Now. 14 Gemini, right? Because, you know, I always, I always suggest that we look at the opposites or the, the entire axis. You know, when you're looking at any one particular point in the zodiac where a planet may sit or a, an, uh, another uh, significant, uh, point in your chart is always check the the uh, the 180 degree position okay so 14 Gemini is bridging physical space and social distinctions two men communicate telepathically the capacity to transcend the limitations of bodily existence. Right? That's like working in a different place than the physical plane. Right? That would be the closest, you know, it would be the astral plane. Right? In order to function in the world of material entities, man needs to focus the energies of life in a limited organism and an ego mind that is formed by the pressures of a particular culture and family background. Yet a time comes when the individual can still transcend the limiting boundaries of culture and ego. An effort should then be made to enter a realm of consciousness in which the communication from mind to mind can take a more direct form because the minds then operate within the one mind of humanity. It is then as if 
two cells in the human body were communicating to each other, perhaps through some kind of invisible nerve channel, or, as it were, from nucleus to nucleus by means of vibratory resonance. Mm -hmm. At this fourth stage of this five-fold sequence, we see the potentiality of a new technique to be used in the newly opened lands confronting the pioneers in human evolution. It is a technique of transcendence. It evidently can also bring confusion and many failures, as well as illusorily claims and self-deceit. So that's, that's where the sun is right now. All right, so you've got you got both the the capacity for intimate communications telepathically, and you've got to beware of the dangers of confusion, illusion, and self deceit. So remain humble, my friends. All right, now let's let's go on and listen to Tanya and okay. see see what she's got to say this week. Mm, here we go. Gabriella Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to Star Codes, the podcast where we look at an upcoming event in the stars and numbers, the astro numerology to help us navigate the energy as best as we can. And in this case, it's June 2023. We're going to look at the numerology code. June, the sixth month, adds up to a 13 universal month in 2023. So you add six for June plus two plus zero plus two plus three and it equals 13. Now notice right off the bat that 2023 ends in a three and 13 of course ends in a three and three is the triad, the mother, father, child triad of creation. So there's a lot of creative energy. There's a force coming through that is reminding you that you create your life. And that's not to put any kind of guilt or fear into you. It's to actually give you the confidence to know that no matter what is going on, you have the power to change it by being creative. So let's look more closely at June's 13 universal month. This number is extremely powerful in that it represents creation, life, death, rebirth. And as it happens, and this is obviously not a coincidence, as there are none, we have 13 weeks 
in a season. 52 weeks a year divided by four is 13. Four seasons a year. Four is the number that 13 reduces to. One plus three for 13 equals four. So within this number 13, we have the whole natural experience of the four seasons represented here on planet Earth. We also have 13 lunation cycles in one calendar year. So not only do we have the 52-week cycle, which is divisible by four and results in 13, we also have 13 lunation cycles in that same year. So that shows you that the moon is intricately connected to nature, to change, to growth, and to life, death, rebirth which is truly what we naturally go through as well. We all are born and we all eventually die. And depending on your belief or your sense of life in general, we come back and we return and we have these cycles. So cycles are very important in order to understand that nothing stays the same. So if we find ourselves in a bit of a, pickle, we know that eventually, most likely very soon, because your attitude is really what matters, we will be able to move out of that feeling. So there are 13 lunations in the year, 13 weeks in a season, and there's a number, another 13 to share with you, and that is that Venus has 13 cycles as well. Now, Venus and the moon represent the divine feminine So this number is very much part of our divine feminine experience. However, it doesn't mean it's associated with women. It is just part of the experience because we all have the sacred masculine and divine feminine within us, just like we have light and dark within us, right? So this experience of the 13 in June coincides with some major shifts that are presently occurring. And that is that in June, on the 11th, which is a master number in numerology, it represents a portal, Pluto, the planet that represents the same qualities as number 13, life, death, rebirth, transformation, which is exactly what 13 stands for. On that day, the 11th of June in a 13 universal month, Pluto is actually moving back into Capricorn. So what is changing? What is it that we're focused on, especially since the 2020s started, but even before then? It is that we are calling for a transformation in power structures. Pluto stands for power, 13 stands for power. 13 has, and this is a bit of a side note, because I've talked about this before in previous Star Codes podcasts, 13 has been cast aside for many centuries in a very deliberate way because it does represent your intuitive gift to empower yourself. And that and the divine feminine and intuition were not really welcome when the powers that be wanted their people to follow their rules. Intuition goes where intuition goes. It doesn't follow rules. And 
the divine feminine, the, the energy that is about love and nurturing and is a very strong energy of change and support and emotional heart-centered connection was not welcome in this top-down system that had layers of you know people who are more considered more important versus those that were not so pluto changing direction and moving back pluto actually changed direction on may 1st but pluto moving back into capricorn for over half a year it won't be till january till it moves into Aquarius for a few months again. It's it's going back and forth, Pluto between Aquarius and Capricorn, because it's a very slow-moving planet and it has two retrogrades. So before it actually moves completely into Aquarius for 20 years, which happens end of 2024, it has these back and forth hovering over the zero degree, going into late Capricorn, 27, 28, 29 degree, and back into Aquarius. So having said that, there truly is a moment now where we need to accept a real change in consciousness. We need to actually revolt against everything that's holding us back. And that's been holding us back for eons. We need to challenge the structures which are represented by Capricorn, where Pluto's moving back into on June 11th. We need to challenge those structures that are limiting our authentic progress. We need to challenge everything and everyone who is creating a false reality in order to gain control because Pluto and 13 are about power. So the way that they would gain control is where you feel you have no choice. And that means you are put in a victim position. You're the powerless one. And it's time not to just sit here and take it. It's time to, And not just sit here and talk about it, it's time to rebel and say no and put our feet down and take our power back. So the number 13 in June is about this empowerment through transformation. And what is the transformation? It is the change in the way we put things into form, transform. So this is a call for revolution but not in an aggressive way this is an assertive revolution it's focusing on what you really want to achieve regardless of whether it feels like it's outside the box or not 13 does represent genius so 13 will bring ideas into the collective that seem outside the box. They actually are not, but they have not been utilized in so long, maybe never before now, that they seem outside the box. So it's not to shy away from that. It's still to move forward with that achievement, regardless of whether it seems pie in the sky or out of the box. So it's important to move towards achievement, regardless of whether the established order represented by Capricorn rejects it or not. It it doesn't matter, in other words, because the established order is seeing their last days, their last years, their last decades. That is going to really be transformed as we transform. So we need to stay the course with this inner genius represented by the number 13, our ingenuity, inner genius, 
genius, invention, transformation, they're not usually comfortable because they break through, they break the rules. They're less likely to be accepted because ingeniousness means new. Remember the number one is the first time. It's forging ahead. So it's not usually accepted by the mainstream. And this isn't about the mainstream. It is truly about being the royal star of the lion of the number 2023, the year that we're in. 23 is the royal star of the lion number. And this is why the number 13 and 23 are merging together this month in a big way. So it could be that the structure of your internal world is alerting you to the need to do a complete overhaul somewhere or to literally see things in a way that would have never dawned on you. And this is a place where you're seeing through the darkness. You are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. You're seeing actually the dawn. You're seeing the sunrise already. And that is what the 13 represents. Remember, it's the four seasons where we go through the dark winter into spring, into summer, into fall, and we continue this cycle and we're not afraid of it. So in order to transform and go through these cycles of life as gracefully as possible, we must let go of our fear of change. We can't be afraid of something ending because it's going to bring something so beautiful, the birth of something that is far greater than we could have imagined before the death happened. So that fear of change is being addressed this year, the year of courage, the year of leadership, the year of risk and adventure, the year of fearless exploration. Because when you live in the moment, you don't fear anything because you are to the core of your being aligned with grace, with the light. So when you have these ingenious epiphanies, which are only light bulb moments, right? The light turns on. Epiphanies lead to miracles. And epiphanies come from listening to divine source coming through you, to God consciousness coming through you. It is being open to that, surrendering to it, and letting go, and being humble, having humility. So this is the revolution. It's accepting as you truly are at any moment. It is truly the cyclical transformation that you are now joyfully participating in. Understanding that revolution is just the revolution around a wheel. It is literally the cyclical revolution that we go through. It is the same word. So it's not to be afraid. And it's to allow change, which is what 13 embodies. And it's to empower yourself by assisting the change, which is also what 13 embodies so be that source of light and allow yourself to go there and be that for yourself and for others. Because as you step into that empowerment in you, you literally exude it. You express it, you share it, and you inspire it in other people's hearts just as they do to you.
So for more on this incredible number 13, I have a free excerpt for you at premiumwealthforecast.com. It's the edition for June, and I think you'll really enjoy it. And that forecast that comes out every month before the month begins guides you through every star code day of the month. You receive a 40-plus page PDF for the astrology numerology for every day of the month so you can plan ahead. You receive the lunation forecast, and you also receive a wonderful monthly transmission channeling from Merlin and Metatron. I channel the collective and the messages every month are truly invigorating and inspiring. So take a look at that forecast. Enjoy it. You can cancel anytime. And again, the free excerpt for June is at premiumwealthforecast.com. Have a beautiful month of June. Enjoy this number 13. Invite it into your life. And I will see you in next week's Star Codes podcast. Lots of fun.
Chapter 4 is the nature of the soul and its location. Holy cow. That was interesting because there, uh, back in the day, there was a, there was a, uh, uh, oh, a lively discussion about the location of the soul. And then chapter five is oriental teaching as to the soul, ether, and energy. And chapter six is the seven centers of force, commonly known as the chakras. And then there's a a conclusion chapter. And there's a bibliography. And I love writers who put their bibliographies out there. That's really good. You can look all that stuff up. Yeah. You can look. You can look at that. All her sources. Let's see here. Let's see here. Let's see here. Looking at she her she's got this bibliography uh, in in categories. So she got one on the glands now. We know a lot more about the glands now, a hundred years later, yep. than they did back in uh, whenever, uh, you know, in the in the nineteen twenties. But in and the twenties, are right in the, the same places as chakras, Richard. Well, she makes that point that the chakras are the energizers. Of the glands, mm-hmm. right? All right. Then she's then she's got a uh, uh, three, four, five, six, seven. She's got seven uh, psychology references. She's got uh, references on the chakras. And uh, oh, Ledbetter wrote a wrote a book on the chakras. Uh, the the Bhagavad Gita. Yep. Uh, talks about the the four centers in the body, the etheric double, Hatha Yoga, Indian philosophy, two volumes by S. Radhakrishnan, <laughs> and she also was reading the Kathnopanishad, the Kenopanishad, uh, the Light of the Soul that she wrote also. The Mysterious Kundalini, Nature's Finer Forces by Rama Prasad. Now, I've got that one. And, again, that's a very old book. Outlines of Indian Philosophy, The Philosophy of the Upanishads. What's the name of that book again, Richard? Can you say that name of that book again? The Philosophy of the Upanishads. By Paul Dusen, D-E-U-S-S-E-N. And then another another Panishad, the Prashanopanishad. Uh, Raja Yoga by Swami Vivekananda. The Serpent Power by Sir John Woodroffe. Shakti and Shakta, also <laughs> by Sir John Woodroffe. And uh, 
Chakra Nirupanam. That's S H A T C H A K R A N I R U P A N A M M. These are all, you know, Indian sources. And then here's another uh, popular one: the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. That's that's an impo- that's an important. That's one. a good one. That's an important one and easy for the for the Western uh, mind. Yeah. And then she's got then she's got uh, a category here called general. So uh, it's a great it's a great little. Uh, uh, Reminder or a textbook for you to the subject, for youth or whoever's new to this subject of the uh, the human uh, physical body. So, yes, uh, yep, I, and it's it's fairly it's fairly thin. It's only like a hundred. Fifty pages or so, and it re- it reads pretty easy and pretty fast. But anyway, I reread that just because I like to reread some of these things just to keep me fresh. You know what I mean? All right, yes. Then. All right, all right then. Well, everybody have a great week. Enjoy your new moon, and uh, if you're in the mood, get to work. You know, I've got a project in mind, and I'm going to get to work this week. So, oh, I'm, I'm interested. Maybe you'll share something about your project soon. Uh, well, okay, maybe maybe later. Let me let me uh, let okay. me let me let me get it. Or- I've got it all organized in my head, right? Right. But, and uh, the 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 hint that I'll give you is I'm going to. I'm going to hire a man with one of them power shovels mm-hmm. to work on uh, clearing. I've got a I've got an old road that I built years ago that's all grown up with pines and I'm going to I got to I'm going to clear that out and collect the, the larger pines which might be 4 inches or larger, you know, pines about 12 years old or something like that. Uh-huh. I'm going to re-clear that road because I got a leaning, I got a leaning tree that the the wind blew over. Oh, <laughs> and that's a good piece of firewood, so I want to get that out of there. Oh yeah. So uh, that's that's the first that's the first part of the project. And then I've got another I got another tree that's on the other side of the property that's. Just dead. It's a uh, standing dead oak, and it'll be another good piece of firewood. So I need to get that moved and cut up. You're going to be busy. Well, again, it's, you know, when you're when you're working, when your art when your art form is terracing and landscaping, right? You know. You don't you don't cut hardwoods when they're full of leaves, but but pines are always green, so it doesn't matter. You can work work on them in the summer, right? So we'll take the itty bitty pines and we'll make them into mulch, 
and we'll take the bigger pines and we'll make them into I've got a some fencing along the power you know where the power line comes up that side of the house right behind yeah. on the west side of the house is a power line I figure I'll take I'll take the big pines and and make me a a little decorative fence out of them uh-huh. and then we'll get that then we'll get that oak tree processed for heat next winter so uh-huh. that's my project thank yeah. you yeah, you, you wanted to know, you know, curious uh, minds want to know. Give me all the details, sir. Yeah, now you know. So, uh, okay. namaste. Namaste, Richard. Namaste. Until we meet again. Peace out. Peace out. Okay, Rama, the telephone number. Uh, 720-716. 7301 and the pin code is 353863 pound. Wow. All right, everybody. Off we go to the wild blue yonder of our conference call. (laughs) And we'll be right back here on BBS radio, the best radio there is at the top of this coming hour. So see you there. On the conference call, that is. For now. Namaste, everyone. Namaste. Are we all done with the music, Rama? Yeah. That was Vangelis. Memories of Green from Playground. You know, I've been asking you to play Democracy is Coming to the USA for Uh, months. (laughs) Okay. Wow, I was thinking, I guess I won't. I, I just was thinking, you know, I just want to repeat that 46 Democrats, they're all in the progressive vein, did not vote for this compromise. And there's good reason. And um, it's got to do with the banksters, it's got to do with the Republicans, uh, and it's got to do with democracy. And I was thinking of playing, Rama, before you go running, I was thinking of playing Elizabeth Warren, you know, with uh, Chris Hayes. That was on the 16th of May. And then Bernie Sanders with Chris Hayes. And they had a few things to say about banksters and about the uh, so-called deal. Uh, And I think it just, then we can go to, Okay, so we'll play these few things before we go. What's the name of this that we're going to... Oh, this is Dr. Robert Gilbert, Fractals, Patterns, Biogeometry, Spiritual Science with Doncia Patrick. Yes, she's Danica. Danica Danica Patrick. (laughs) She is smart as the whip. She got together with Patty Cota Robles and somebody else. Yeah, and not seen. Not seen her. I mean, what? Yeah. She knows her stuff. Yeah. Okay, well, let's do this little moment here. The House it is expected to pass the debt ceiling deal. Once it does, the bill is going to head to the Senate, where Senate Majority Leader Schumer has promised quick action. I cannot stress enough that we have no margin, no margin for error. Either we proceed quickly 
and send this bipartisan agreement to the president's desk, or the federal government will default for the first time ever. There are still lots of timing negotiations going on in the Senate. Several senators have already said they will be voting no. Among them, Bernie Sanders. Sanders said that while the debt ceiling gift could have been much worse, he cannot, quote, vote for a bill that takes nutrition assistance away from women, infants, children, and seniors, yep. and that fast-tracks the, quote, disastrous Mountain Valley pipeline at a time that the future of the world is literally at stake. No. Senator Sanders, an independent of Vermont, and chair of the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, joins me now. Uh, Senator, was this a hard or easy decision to get to on this vote once you were able to survey the 99 pages of the deal? It was not a difficult decision. Look, the bottom line is, in America today, we have more income and wealth inequality than we've ever had. People on top doing phenomenally well, middle class struggling, lower income people really facing desperate times. And you don't do deficit reduction in any moral sense on the backs of some of the people in this country who are barely making it right now. Meanwhile, the wealthiest people in this country who are doing phenomenally well will pay no more in taxes. Large corporations that have raised profits, seen huge increases in their profits in recent years, they're not going to be asked to pay a nickel more in taxes. As you indicated, there's going to be a disastrous pipeline uh, to be expedited at a time when the scientists tell us we've got to do exactly the opposite, cut back on fossil fuel uh, production. Uh, so to my mind, uh, and I should also add, uh, in two-year time, a $56 billion increase in military spending, despite the fact that the Pentagon is the only federal agency not to have been audited. Massive waste and fraud in the Pentagon to get $56 billion more over the next two years. So, so here's, here's, to me, the sort of argument for the deals to the extent there is one. And I don't think anyone on the Democratic side is particularly enthusiastic about this deal. In fact, you just may have seen Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill is a very centrist member of Congress. She's not, like, waving a flag of victory around this deal. She's going to vote for it. Basically, it goes like this. There is divided government, right? Spending and appropriations constitutionally originates in the House. It's going to have to be. Whatever the government spends this year is going to have to be the product of some sort of compromise between a Republican-controlled House and Democratic-controlled Senate and a White House. If that's just the case, and this is basically about what you would expect from that kind of divided government. That's a reasonable argument. I don't think it's quite accurate. I think we could have done better through the normal appropriations process. But what we are surrendering to is the Republican hijacking of the appropriations process right. and basically holding the world's economy hostage, and we're surrendering to that. And, Chris, let's be very clear. In two years' time, they're going to be back again. We're going to go through this whole process again. So, you know, I, I think we certainly this agreement is nowhere near as bad as the Republican original proposal, which would have been devastated. Uh, but I think for a variety of reasons, the no vote is right. Okay, i got to talk about the Mountain Valley Project. Now, this is a pipeline that would bring natural gas uh, down through Virginia and West Virginia uh, into parts of the southeast. This has been hung up in courts for a long time. It is a priority of Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, you see there. Uh, there is a special language in there that, that blanket that protects this from judicial review, just statutorily just comes in and takes it out of the courts, gives it the permits it needs to get built, and the craziest thing about this is Tim Kaine, who represents the state of Virginia, through which the pipeline would run, 
says that no one from the White House called him or asked him about this, and he just found out about it in the press. What do you think of that? Well, I think it is outrageous. I mean, and the bottom line, it's not only how they treated Tim. Uh, the bottom line is caving into mansion, caving into the fossil fuel industry. Look, yeah. it is nobody who's watching doesn't understand that climate change is an existential threat to this country and the world. We got to transform our energy system, not build more pipelines. So this is just one more reason why I think the no vote is appropriate. Um, there is going to be um, an appropriations process after this. Yep. And one of the, the silver linings here, as I understand it, is that if the no deal is struck, the cuts end up being slightly more favorable to Democrats than a deal being struck because defense spending will be capped in a no deal scenario. Do you think that gives you a little bit of leverage as you go through the quote unquote normal appropriations process? The answer is we will see. Uh, certainly our Republican friends wanted to actually increase military spending far more than is in this legislation. Uh, they are very concerned about the deficit, except when it comes to tax breaks to billionaires and spending more money on the military. All right, Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thank you. As we await the debt ceiling vote in the House, what does Kevin McCarthy's deal mean for the ever-growing, I mean, really by the day, a field of Republican presidential candidates. That's ahead. Forget about that. The fault would crash the stock market and hurt the retirement security for millions of older Americans. And the default would dramatically increase costs on people all across the country. And it was a very positive development that everyone agrees Today was another day of debt ceiling brinksmanship as Republicans continue to hold the economy hostage in return for spending cuts that would slash government services. While congressional leaders sounded optimistic about reaching a deal, the clock is ticking. June 1st is the deadline, which is fast approaching. If no agreement is reached before then, the U.S. would then run the risk of defaulting on its debt for the first time in history. Senator Elizabeth Warren is a Democrat of Massachusetts. She's chair of the Banking Subcommittee on Economic Policy, member of the Finance Committee, and she joins me now. Um, Senator, maybe first I'll start with just your understanding of where things stand right now in, in this back and forth. Well, that we've got a hostage taker who is saying that he is willing to blow up the economy and put millions of people out of work. If he, Kevin McCarthy, and the House Republicans don't get to make a lot of very painful cuts in the budget. And he claims to be fiscally responsible, care about the increasing national debt. And yet, every time the president and other Democrats like me talk about bringing in more revenue as a way to reduce the national debt, um, he says no. Can't possibly do that. So while this fight plays out in this moment of we've got someone that's willing to take a hostage, that's willing to do a lot of damage to our economy, that's willing to destroy our good name around the world, that they claim that it's for fiscal responsibility. But this is really just a fight about our values. And Kevin McCarthy has made clear that we must at all costs protect every billionaire, every billionaire corporation, every loophole in the tax code. And if that drives the national debt up, 
okay by him. While Democrats are saying, we've already incurred this debt, let's raise the national, uh, raise the debt ceiling mm-hmm. and go on and have ordinary budget negotiations. Right. So really from very different angles on this. Yeah, there was some reporting that the, the, the White House team, uh, had a list of loopholes, uh, to close yeah, as revenue. A dozen. Those were rejected out of hand. There's also this, I think, an interesting thing I'd like to get. I'm going to play you some of your colleague, John Fetterman, said. One of the red lines, as enunciated by McCarthy, is work requirements for a few different government programs, including possibly Medicaid, it's unclear, uh, TANF, food stamps, SNAP, right? So these are three government programs. Now, from a budgetary standpoint, this would not save a lot of money. So that, that, even if you're talking about this, this is an ideological pursuit. Here's what your colleague John Fetterman had to say about SNAP, uh, food, uh, supplement, supplemental nutritional assistance program and work requirements. Take a listen. The Republicans want to give a, a work requirement for SNAP. You know, for a, 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 a hungry family has to, to have these, this kind of penalties or these some kinds of word working, uh, requirements. Shouldn't you have a working requirement after we sell your bank with billions of your bank? That's him asking uh, a, a bailout bank CEO about work requirements for bailout banks. My suspicion, though, is that you would have the same view of anything like work requirements around Medicaid or SNAP particularly. Well, you know, actually, this thing is even worse than it sounds. You realize that more than 90% of the people who currently receive help through Medicaid either have a job, or they have a disability, right. or they have right. a little tiny baby at home that they're right. trying to take care of. In other words, they're already slotted in the current system as either working or not eligible to work. Right. So you have to ask yourself, what are the work requirements really about? And I want to be clear, they are not about more people going to work. What they're about is loading a whole lot more red tape into the system so that many of the folks will get themselves tangled up and then lose access to benefits they are fully eligible for under the rules, but they get tossed out. That could be a a twofer for the Republicans. It could save them a little money when they knock people out, and it could cause a lot of pain to a lot of people who are doing their best to try to hold it together for themselves and their families. Because that's who the Republicans are. Well, speaking of someone who's not in a lot of pain, though, has caused a significant amount of it. You had uh, the Silicon Valley Bank CEO, uh, Gregory Becker, in front of your committee today. Um, I've I've been sort of astonished by the interviews he's given afterwards. Seems clear that he screwed up. They all screwed up. They made a bunch of bad bets. I mean, again... This happens. I mean, people make bad business decisions. They they made bad ones. They didn't think interest rates were going to go up. They had too many insured depositors. They had a bank run. You know, uh, I want to play this exchange uh, about his compensation uh, back and forth today and, and what he plans to do with the many millions of dollars he got while making these very bad bets. Take a listen. The collapse of your bank cost the FDIC fund about $20 billion money that someone is going to have to make up. How much of the $40 million that you earned from loading up SVB Bank with risk are you planning to return to the FDIC? Senator, I promise to cooperate with the regulators as they do. Are you planning to return a single nickel to what you cost the fund? Senator, I know there's going to be a process review of compensation. I'll take that as a no. 
Uh, I took that as a no as well. Do you think that that money should be clawed back? You bet I think that money should be clawed back. And here's the good news. Uh, I'm not the only one. So we've got a bunch of Democrats and a bunch of Republicans who think that money should be clawed back. We've introduced, we are introducing a clawback bill that will basically say to these corporate executives that when you load a bank up with risk and then give yourself these gargantuan uh, bonuses, Mm -hmm. stock options, and then the bank blows up, (laughs) you don't get to keep the money. Because the only way we're going to get them off this idea that the cool thing to do in banking is take a lot of risk and pay yourself a lot of money is to say, when you blow up your banks, you're going to lose that money. So I've got a bipartisan bill. We're going to be introducing it in just the next couple of days. We're putting the finishing touches on it. I want to get it through the banking committee. I'm going to ask for a markup on it and take it to the floor of the Senate and get a vote. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the biggest bank failures in American history. I think probably you shouldn't walk away at 40 mil. Just me. (laughs) Not just me. A lot of other people. Thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up. I just had to play those two pieces because it's an ace in the hole in terms of knowing what's up in the zoo. All right, Rama, let's do this. All right. Mm. This is an hour and 48 minutes, and what's it called again? Um, Dr. Robert Gilbert, Fractal Pattern Biogeometry Spiritual Science. Okay, let's get started, everybody. This is with, with Danica Patrick. Hello, welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. Long one for you today, but if you're interested at all in the nature of reality, I think you'll stay tuned. Today, the guest is Dr. Robert Gilbert. He has a PhD in international studies. He was also a U.S. Marine Corps instructor in the field of nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare defense. I think that just means smart. Um, and that's what you'll experience today in the interview. He educates in the fields of spiritual science, biological science, biogeometry, which is he is the first person that has been able to teach biogeometry outside of Egypt. He also studies and shares on the Rosicrucian order. Point is, I didn't really know where to start because he's so smart and there's so much information that he is so, so studied in and so, so intellectual about, but he is so articulate. And so those spaces that we got into the most today were spiritual science and biological science and just how the body works, chakras, energy, how we can move it, what is disease, how to move the energy body, how we're interacting with the world around us, people. It was honestly just fascinating. It's densely packed with vital information to live your best life. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it's about. Like, what are we here for? How do we make the most amount of progress in this life so that we can progress through and we don't have to come back and do it again? Because that's essentially what happens. If you want to know any more information about Robert, you go to his website at Vesca.org. If you want to watch videos, you can go to Gaia TV. He has an entire series there. So enjoy this deep dive into the world of patterns and geometry and how that interacts with our life. Please hit subscribe. Let me know what you think in the comments and see you next time. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means that there's lots of salt and no sugar. 
Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited to any diet or lifestyle. For me, I drink Element all day, every day. I put it in just about every single drop of water that I drink. For me, it feels like it helps keep me full. It helps give me more energy. And I feel like water is absorbed better by the body when it has Element in it. It truly feels like magic to me. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you use drinkelement.com slash prettyintense. That's drinkelement.com slash prettyintense. That's an interesting backdrop you've got there. It's very, very colorful. What is it, that? It's a tapestry from Zimbabwe that a friend of mine brought back from there when I was in uh, college in international studies. Very, very cool. I love that. That's beautiful. Yeah, thank you. I'm very into color and shape. So. Well, I wasn't sure if it had some... Geometry, uh, <laughs> nature to it that calibrated your <laughs> energy. This isn't a joke. I'm deadly serious. Like, love that stuff. And that's mostly what I want to talk to you about. You know, biogeometry, I'm fascinated by. I'm fascinated by energy. My biggest question in life is what is this reality we're living in? Like, what yes. is the truth about this reality? Because well, I feel it's a big question and I'm not 100% sure we can get down to it, although I bet with this conversation you could probably enlighten me and tell me what the answer is, or at least that would be fun. Um, but when we know more about the nature of our reality, we know how to, we know how to play the game. Yes. We know how to, how to maximize it. We know we, we are then not only also hoping or even trying to believe something, we know it. And when we know it and we embody it completely, then it's a real, real reality. There's no contradicting energy from sort of believing, which implies that you don't and you need to effort for it. So let's I would love to get to the point where we can all understand and embody the truth about this reality. So I think we start with biogeometry. Just a little bit of, of background to that. I had uh, been an instructor in the Marine Corps in the nuclear, biological, chemical defense field. And at that time, I began to study aspects of biology, chemistry, physics that are the background to all physical reality. And I got fascinated by how what we know about these systems that create everything in our world actually goes back to ancient knowledge from the great temples in the ancient world, the great systems of spiritual initiation. And so when you begin to study the foundations of modern atomic science, you come back to the platonic solids that were taught by the Greeks thousands of years ago. And even the first nuclear weapon was based on one of the platonic solids that the Greeks warned against thousands of years ago. Hmm. So... Getting into this aspect of looking at modern scientific research and what we had discovered about the patterns behind things, and then seeing that many of those patterns were known in the ancient world, but they understood those patterns in a much larger holistic spiritual context. Then in the time that I was uh, after the Marine Corps got into field of international studies, I was able to study systems all over the world and, and how they understand the patterns of creation to not only change our own lives, but to change the world around us. And that led me to the field of sacred geometry, 
And I was very fortunate to be able to create a series on the Gaia channel that came out last year on sacred geometry to be able to introduce people to some of the most important concepts in that field. And I like to approach it in such a way that it's really the study of patterns. Sacred geometry is the study of all the patterns that exist because there's a pattern to everything. And the key to empowerment is understanding what the pattern is of that thing, whether it's our finances, whether it's our relationships, whether it's our health. There's always a pattern behind success or failure. And in the ancient world, they understood that these patterns also exist for understanding who am I? Why am I here? What is the purpose of this current incarnation? What is the purpose of us incarnating into a physical body in a physical world to begin with? I was very fortunate to now over 20 years ago, uh, meet Dr. Ibrahim Karim from Cairo, Egypt, who's an absolutely remarkable natural scientist and professionally he's an architect. And he trained me in his field of biogeometry, which we'll talk about here in just a moment. And I was very fortunate to be the first person outside of Egypt that he invited to become an instructor in the field because I came to all of his trainings and I took copious notes and I arranged it all in a new format and I was very, very engaged with it. And I have a natural resonance with ancient Egypt and this type of spiritual and vibrational knowledge. It's something that's very important to me. As a kid, I never understood why people focus their attention on such transient things and didn't ask the most basic question about who am I and why am I here? And how do we use this current incarnation in the best way before it's all over? Oh my God. Well, that's literally like what I, like, I obviously come up with a lot of questions. I do a lot of research. I already knew a ton of your work. I listened to it a bunch, which is what drove me to want to talk to you. And that was my, that is literally what I wrote down as sort of like an orderly formal final question is like, what is the goal for each life or being a human being at all? Well, let's not start there. We can end there (laughs) or we can start there. It doesn't matter. But actually I'd like to take a moment and go backwards because I feel like we can spend lots of time with like the information, the data and what to do, but let's just go back in time first. And so let's talk about these ancient temples, ancient pyramids, um, ancient um, structures um, and civilizations and what it was, what their role was. I have, I went to Egypt um, two years ago And I had always, just like you, I've been fascinated with it. I was a teenager and wanted to go to Egypt and to see the pyramids. I didn't know why. I didn't know why I was so drawn to it. I mean, I can watch The Mummy on, you know, the movie (laughs) The Mummy and be intrigued just because it has to do with Egypt. Like, I'm so drawn to it. So what was the role with temples, the role with, you know, the, the pyramids and the also putting in perspective the locations of them as well. Yes, so the ancient Egyptian temple science was a qualitative science. Today, when we think about science, we think about it being quantitative. But in the ancient world, they understood things in terms of qualities of energy. So there's an energetic aspect that comes from higher spiritual realms, higher spiritual planes to create this world that gets expressed in the powers of color and shape and angle, and proportion, and number sequences. All these things are a kind of divine code or divine language of this world. In the ancient world, in every ancient tradition, including ancient Egypt, they had systems of initiation where people went through certain 
step-by-step processes that would expand their consciousness to higher levels. So they would begin to perceive themselves as a multidimensional being operating on multiple planes at the same time. They would begin to understand the way that human consciousness can be developed much, much further than it is currently to develop abilities that we tend to think of today as magical. And the human energy system can be developed much, much further and to do things that, again, today would be thought to be impossible in working with natural forces. And so it kind of comes back, I can paraphrase the work of Arthur C. Clarke, where he says, any sufficiently advanced form of technology that one does not understand will appear to be magic. And that's very much the way it was in ancient Egypt and these other ancient cultures. They thought about things in a completely different way than we do. And that makes, if you see things from a different perspective, it makes things that seem to be impossible, possible. And so there's a whole system of temple initiations in ancient Egypt that were very advanced. And we need to understand some of the fundamentals of what spiritual initiation really is. So one aspect of this that's been almost forgotten today is that when we do anything with our consciousness or our energy, it starts to create an energy pattern in our physical body and our energy field. So whatever thoughts we keep generating, whatever their quality is, whatever energies we're generating with our heart or with our actions in the world, it's developing a pattern that then creates a type of sacred geometric structure in our energy field. And so for advanced masters of this work, they could check out somebody's field and see what energy structures are present. So this is a very simple way to explain that. Uh, Certain chakras in their energy field would be more activated or not very activated, or they would be balanced in a harmonious way, or they would be unbalanced, or the energy meridians and patterns in the body would be fully open or they would be blocked. All of these things are components of larger geometric patterns that can be created in the human energy field. And so this development of the consciousness and energy gets reflected in energy patterns in a person's field. And that's the pearl of great price that we can take through the gate of death and then into a new rebirth. And this is a classic idea, but this is like the thing that really matters. We can just while away our time here and not have it add up to much of anything. And we're no more advanced at the time of death than we were when we came here in the first place. Or we can do some really serious development work with our consciousness and energy and become more than we were before. And again, that gets preserved in these energy patterns in our field. That's like the one thing you take with you. Yeah. So what's the consequence of not improving in this life so we can quickly hook more people to listen so that they understand how they can fix their energy field and make progress and improve the patterns of their life or, or whatever those things are that we're going to, you're going to help us understand. There are many consequences, but probably the most fundamental thing that that will drive it home for everybody is that if you do not use this lifetime for advancing your state and you don't understand the patterns of life, then basically you're just going to be condemned to keep repeating the same mistakes. And you're going to repeat yourself to an endless cycle of suffering. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the main concepts in Buddhism is how much unnecessary suffering are we exposing ourselves to by not 
striving for enlightenment or not doing the basic work to be able to observe and control our mind, to observe and control and direct our feeling life, to observe and control our energy and our actions in the world, to control and direct our speech. So this is really a universal concept. Uh, but for the Buddhists, they talk about skillful action. Take skillful action. You'll develop yourself to a place where you have more pleasure. You have more freedom. You understand how things work and you can make an educated decision. Or you can take unskillful action. Just be in the reactive mind and react emotionally to everything around you in a way that's destructive and destroys relationships, destroys possibilities. And then you'll just stay on that cycle of suffering. So that's really the most fundamental part of it. But the other part of it is there's a deeper aspect of suffering beyond our usual day-to-day experience. And that is there's a type of subtle suffering that comes by not knowing who we are, by not mm. remembering who we are, why we're here, what we chose to do in this incarnation, this larger spiritual context. It's often very subconscious in people, but it drives them to try to fill their lives with other things that just become destructive in the end. Well, help us get off the wheel of karma. <laughs> I'll do. I'll do what I can. I'm, I'm working to get off it myself. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, is that? I mean, as a, as a, as an additional little question right now, is that innate within the human existence? Is that we will never be able to fully see ourselves and remember our past and remember where we came from and who we are, and that is confined within this dimension as part of the human existence in the in our in our in our challenge of this reality is that part of this matrix this was understood in the ancient world in classical initiation as what was referred to as taking the draft of forgetfulness this means that when you incarnate you are made to forget who you are where you're from what this whole purpose is your past incarnations the whole we thing sure do this classic understanding of the draft of forgetfulness is the thing that we come in not remembering. Now, this is not true for people of certain levels of higher spiritual development. Because of the structures they've created in their subtle bodies, they can bring in the remembrance of who they are pretty much from the beginning. And these people can recognize the people around them in their lives from their connections with them in previous lives. And and they they maintain more of this knowledge, but that's based on certain structures you create in the subtle body. That that takes work. It takes knowledge to to create these. Now, initiation, well, major part of it has always been to go through a remembering process. In the European Rosicrucian tradition, there's a great initiation saying, which is, in the beginning was the memory. That means the first thing that we have to do when we come back every time is to regain our karmic memory of who we are, because this is not our first rodeo. We've done this before, and so there are certain types of karmic exercises a person can do to start to remember who they are, where they come from, etc. And that that gate is not as closed for some people as it is for others. And particularly, there's a lot of this going on now because there's been such a resurgence of what in the ancient world was particular types of plant medicine that were used in initiation processes and is now coming back with the mass use of psychotropics, often related to the old plant medicine. And that can often help people regain their karmic memory through certain activations. But the key thing here is to remember, again, who we are, why we're here, because otherwise, you know, it's like we're in some movie where we're amnesic and we have to go through this whole process of where am I? What's happened? What's this whole thing about? 
But once we start to remember that, now we regain our purpose and we begin to remember who we've been and how that's led to here and that this is itself only one bead in a chain leading to a particular destination for us to become a unique spiritual being in the world. It's what from the Greek word is called teleological destination. It's like we're being pulled toward what we're meant to become in the future. And all these interesting things happen to us, people we meet and experiences that we're given and things we didn't expect appearing in our lives, helping to pull us toward this. Mm-hmm. And so, like again, in the old Rosicrucian initiation, this was referred to as reading the name inscribed on the stone. And this is where we begin to remember who we've been before. Now, there's a lot of challenges with this because it's very easy for this to fall into fantasy where we're just projecting all types of things about, I'd like to be this, I'd like to be that. So if people, if their first memories are something that's very elevated, like I was this fantastic, famous historical figure in the past and I'm just drenched in glory, then often that should be questioned because when you actually start doing past life regression with people, it's very common that first thing they remember are traumatic experiences. Now, being a scullery maid in 13th century France where you were horribly abused, this type of thing. Mm-hmm. But the larger aspect of it is that there is a purpose to our series of incarnations. Now, again, going to the modern European Rosicrucian tradition, which I believe is a kind of transformation of the old Egyptian initiation, the Essene initiation, the Greek, the Holy Grail tradition in Europe into a modern format there's a, a whole aspect of this where human race has a esoteric name, just like the higher angelic beings have names that, that point to what their power, their function is. Mm-hmm. The name for the human race in the Rosicrucian tradition is that we are spirits of love and freedom. And so that's one of the hardest combinations to get right, because love is all about uniting and becoming one with other other people, other beings. And then freedom is the ability to separate from other beings and make completely independent decisions. Now, higher spiritual beings have the ability to do something that another teacher of mine, uh, Dr. Samuel Sagan at the Clear Vision School of Australia, back in the 90s, I was training with him, and he had a concept called combinescence. So combined essence, combinescence. You may perceive in spiritual perception that there is what appears to be a, a gigantic angelic being, some great spiritual being. But then you perceive that there are other beings starting to peel out of this larger spiritual being as independent entities. And you begin to realize that non-physical spiritual beings can actually unite together in a Mm. combined energetic form that appears to be one being. But then they can separate back out again into separate beings. Now, in a physical body, we have a very limited ability to do this. But out of the physical body as energy fields, they can actually combine together. And so that's part of this thing of being spirits of love and freedom. We're supposed to find the right rhythm, the right ability to make free will choices, to be able to unite with another person or persons to become the one again. Back to the divine plane, back to the Godhead, back to the original unified state where we're all one. And that's what we all seek emotionally. We want to find that partner that we can become one with. Oh, like the combination of the energy that we see as like one thing. But we know it's like when you say that, I'm like, yes, uh, I was just, you know, I have done some plant medicine ceremonies and recent experience I had 
you know, whenever I'm explaining it, it's a they. They want me to know, but it seems <laughs> singular, but it's a they. Yeah. It just, you know, it's an, as you know, it's a collective energy, but it seems as though it's one voice in a way. So this is really part of the classical knowledge about multiple planes of creation. At the highest level, what in the West we might call the divine plane, everything is one. There is no polarity. There is no duality. There's no yin-yang. There's no masculine-feminine. There's no separation of any kind. Everything is one. Mm-hmm. That's like the highest state that people attain in psychotropic experience. Mm-hmm. But you feel like you became one again in like the cosmic ocean and the cosmic being. Mm-hmm. And it's a very real state. And it's something that we yearn for, that we have embedded in us. It's something that we yearn for to experience with another person or to experience in high spiritual states to get back to that state of oneness. But the level beneath the divine plane, what we might call the spiritual plane, is where that oneness divides into multiplicity, all the different mm-hmm. powers of the divine, or they say in the Hamalias, the Siddhas. Mm. And so at that level, these are great beings, beings of a tremendously high stature. We think of them today as mythological. I was just going to ask, are they the gods? Are these, are these the, you know, in ancient Greek stories or even ancient Egypt stories? Like yes. these are sort of the gods are the, are the, are the fractions of a higher level, higher dimension of reality? Absolutely. They're, they're the one divided into all of its separate powers, functions, qualities as conscious beings on a very high spiritual level. So if you're in India, you might talk about the Shiva and Shakti. If you were in ancient Egypt, you would talk about the netters, the conscious powers of nature. These are all aspects of these higher spiritual forces that then move down through the planes until we get to more microcosmic beings like ourselves. And so one of the mysteries in the ancient world is what they called the the mystery of the black cube. How is it that we're amnesiacs in this physical world and we begin to realize that we're a spiritual being having a spiritual experience in a physical body, in a physical world, and how did I get here? And so this mystery of the black cube is on how higher beings create a space-time enclosure for us to move into as young spiritual beings going through an educational process like going to kindergarten. So everything's brightly colored and solid, and so we become very self-aware in this process. But it's really the whole question of how we are able to attain self-awareness, and then attain the higher goals of developing both love and freedom. And that becomes part of what, well, in the Chinese tradition, they call the nine heart pains, the things that become the most challenging for us in life. We're all going to seek that partner that we can become one with again and unify with and have that love with, because love is all about unification into the one, no separation. But then you have to have the freedom. And you've got to be able to have your own time and your own space and make your own decisions and not just give yourself over to another person. That rhythm of love and freedom, particularly in intimate relationships, you know, is one of the greatest challenges in life. It can have the greatest pleasures in life, but it can also have the greatest pain. But the whole of human life is really about how do we balance love and freedom, service to others and self-development without flying off into mass narcissism in one sense or losing our freedom and independence and the other polarity. Codependency. So let's talk about how to do that. <laughs> how do we how do we evolve spiritually, um, geometrically, pattern wise? Our I've heard you talk about you know our our energy structure. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure the right exact direction to go. This is the hard thing about interviewing you is you are so wise and knowledgeable about so many things. It's hard to know exactly which way to point the ship, but, um, <laughs> I get maybe, the idea. <laughs> <laughs> maybe thank you. Um, bear with me. Um, maybe what creates our energy structure? Is that something passed down from lifetimes? Is this something created? Is this something, uh, through DNA and um, our parents in some way, genetically? Um, what is it that creates our energy structure? And, you know, then, of course, they probably roll into how do we change that or how do we evolve that? How do we grow so that we can reach a point in space and time with our bodies uh, that we can then be confident and comfortable and know ourselves well enough to be able to uh, unite, but be free and not only do that with ourselves, but in, but with someone else, because freedom is the having, giving the other person freedom too. Yes, absolutely. So one of the core aspects of this, and thank you very much for the kind, the kind oh, comments. It's so true. It's just like, I could just listen to you for hours and, and I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. So again, this all comes back to the study of patterns. There's a reason why every classical tradition teaches sacred geometry. Because if you don't understand the pattern of something, you have no ability to co-create with it or to use it for your own benefit. You're just a victim of that. And again, that's true for everything in life, whether it's relationships, finances, health. Everything is based on this, including our spiritual development. The problem we have today is what I often refer to as the blessing and the curse that we actually have more access to different schools of spiritual knowledge today than at any previous time in recorded human history. Right. Stuff that you would have to go to incredible lengths in the past to like go to another country and try to be accepted into a temple and have right. them teach you and they wouldn't even teach you the main stuff for 10 years. Right. Now you can buy a book on it. It's yeah. incredible. Or the listen high- to this. <laughs> exactly. And so, for example, the higher level... Chinese Taoist internal alchemy systems, which are some of the most advanced energetic work in the world, was super hidden until the 1980s, and then it began to be published. Today, you can get books about it. You can go to courses on it. It used to be super hidden. Your work, even, being with COVID, I remember you talking about how making that platform available instead of doing things in person that created such a such a bigger reach. It, It really did. So, again, there's blessings and curses involved. So, the, the blessing of this is that we have incredible access to very deep spiritual knowledge and practice information that in the past have been almost impossible for us to access. So for those of us that are really excited and stimulated about these types of possibilities, this is an amazing time to be alive. But the curse of it is that a lot of this information didn't come out in a whole form. It came out in these broken fragments. And so and a lot of the way the information is coming out is either slightly twisted or corrupted or just plain wrong or it's a half truth that's sometimes more dangerous than a complete falsehood. Is that partly why the information was held tightly and usually given verbally is because that way it couldn't they wanted to make sure that the people that were getting it were able to use it responsibly and not manipulate people with it because it's very powerful technology. That's absolutely right, is that you had, I mean, they didn't even teach you the main stuff for years because they had to test the quality of your character sure. because, again, you could misuse this knowledge terribly. Mm. And and so that was one reason why it was kept hidden and 
and these very closed initiation systems. But again, we have this, uh, the blessing of the access to the knowledge, but the curse that is completely fragmented today. Okay. And so we have to put it back together into a unified whole because if we don't understand how the pieces fit together, again, we don't have what we need to make informed decisions. We have very limited time and energy in our earthly life. And we have to be able to make informed decisions about what's the most important things I need to learn. What's the most important things I need to experience? Yes. What's the most important practices for me to do? Because there's a bazillion practices you could do out there. Overwhelming. It, it can be. Mm-hmm. But if you can put it into a context, if you can see how it all fits back together, then you can navigate in an informed way through it. And that's part of what I created the Vesica Institute for. I don't claim to have all the universal knowledge, but it's meant to put the pieces back together to be able to express in the most clear, concise form possible so that people can make informed decisions and understand how those those pieces do fit together today. And so going to your question about, well, what's this about? Where's our energy body come from? So every human being, once we understand those patterns, once we see the larger context, Again, that's why sacred geometry is so important, because it's really the study of patterns, not only metaphysical patterns, but also those for our daily life and the physical world. So every human being is based on the same sacred geometry pattern, which, as I describe in the Gaia series, is a thought form in the mind of God from the high divine plane level that then manifests down through the planes as a particular pattern of energy and consciousness. We all have that exact same blueprint that's why we all have the same chakras, the same energy meridians, mm. acupuncture points, etc. It's the exact same blueprint for all of us. Because originally we were all one. We were all one in the divine plane with mm-hmm. the Godhead and the unified mm-hmm. field. We were all one there. But for what's sometimes described as the pleasure of the Godhead, the pleasure of the one, uh, we separated out into separate beings so that we could magnify our experience as separate beings, and we think we're completely individual and separate from everything else for a period of time, so that we can now develop in a fractal way as separate beings and magnify the whole experience set of everyone and everything. So we all have the exact same blueprint that gives us the capacity for consciousness, energy, making free will choices, but also unifying back to the one if we choose to or learn how to. Mm-hmm. And so that universal pattern of energy can then be individualized. And so every act that we take, every thought that we generate, every emotion we generate, every action we take actually creates an emanation of a particular quality of energy out of our energy field. That's why some people are very pleasurable to be around because what they're emanating out from the quality of their thoughts, their feelings, their actions is something that feels good to be around. For other people, it may not feel so good. Because you can get caught in the reactive mind, a lot of detrimental, trauma-based, aggressive, fearful, whatever states. But it's always being projected out of the field. So whatever we do on a regular basis begins to etch these patterns into our energy field. Certain energy centers become hyperactivated. Some others become sedated and not properly active. And so we begin to individualize in an idiosyncratic way our own energy system and our own consciousness. And so we then become more and more individual beings as we go along. And that's considered by higher spiritual beings to be something very beautiful. Uh, I've heard it expressed before that, you know, for us, the higher spiritual beings are our religion. But the religion for the higher spiritual beings is the human race. We're like we're like their children. 
And so they yeah, I love can't see that, but wow. They, they love looking at us and seeing how is this person going to use their free will to become a unique being in the universe, a being that has a quality that's different from any other being that exists. Because it's a part of them. It's a part of them, but it also is creating something new at the same time. And so it's, it's like is this like the opposite. Is this like in contrast to entropy? This is sort of like is this like a balancing force to entropy? It is. It is. No, we look at only one side of this equation in modern physics. So like we look at gravity and, and we understand the gravity force, but there's no discussion of the levity force. But levity is an opposite force that exists just as much as as gravity. Right. And, right. and so if the higher spiritual beings, if we're their religion, it's this whole question of if we truly become at the end of our process of incarnations, a spirit of love and freedom, then we have the capacity to be a unique being in the universe with unique capacities. And the metaphor that I often used with this is that all snowflakes are crystallized water, but every snowflake crystallizes in a completely unique pattern that is never duplicated. So every human being is becoming a unique being. We have many overlaps, but you know, everybody's got a different flavor to them. You know, if you really experience that internally, different people have what they call in the Himalayas a different nectar. They have a different vibrational quality. Right. And so they become unique beings in the universe. And then our interactions with them, our energy field, particularly in higher tantric work, our energy field connecting to their energy field makes something unique in that energetic blending because we're two separate fields to begin with. And what comes out of that union of the field is then another amazing thing. So when we co-create with another person and whatever work we do with another person, whether it's highly intimate or more external, you know, we can create these amazing, unique things. And there's a mystery then about human relationships. Is this perhaps where, because there's in some spiritual spaces, people talk about how powerful it will be if even just one couple comes to two people come together in this unified way, become one Yes. And and in and the frequency and the pattern that that creates will be so very very powerful that even just one set of this can make a difference because when you take I'm thinking about like how cymatics and how when a structure goes from one form to another a new more complicated form it kind of does it kind of gets messy and then reestablishes at a more complicated level but if you put two people together you're adding essentially two fields together that inherently create a new higher dimensional more complicated form they create a unique new energetic structure. Uh, and also there's a very important part of this that I want to bring out, which is we've gone from a unity state to a duality state. Mm-hmm. And when you're in a duality state, you always have a magnetic attraction to the opposite polarity. It's I like know. Paramagnets. You I always know. have that magnetic attraction. That's what, <laughs> that's what allows us to grow and develop and have some passion in life. You know, keep looking for the stuff. But there's an aspect of this. Whenever you bring two opposite polarities together, there's an, a gating effect that happens. When the two opposite polarities come together and connects to the one, it creates a type of a spiritual gate. So that's one of the secrets of what we would think today as like higher level tantra. Two people join their energy fields together. When the two opposite polarities mix together, 
that can open up this higher dimensional gate and allow in energies, forces, a vortex from higher worlds. So this is something of great significance. So, for example, in my uh, Gaia series, I talk about a very important energy practice of creating a toroidal circulation around the energy field. Now, this already exists, yeah. but a lot of fundamental practices are about becoming conscious of what already exists and now co-creating with it and making it stronger, making it better, fixing how we've screwed it up unconsciously. And so we can do it from the earth to the heavens circulation or the heavens to the earth. But I brought out in the series that it's rarely spoken about that the highest level of this is to do both simultaneously. And when you have that yin and the yang circulations passing through each other, they create a zero point, which opens up a gate of energy, really a hyperdimensional gate to another world. Does this take two people, though? Because I, yes. I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm actually second, I'm thinking about sex magic and the things that yes. I've learned about, about, about taking the energy and you can push it in a more masculine direction up or a more feminine direction down. And so does it take two people creating the opposite toroidal fields that intersect? Or is this about you doing it yourself? Because that seems very hard. Well, this, it's actually both. So... Wow. It was understood in the classical tradition that there's solo cultivation, the work we need to do on ourselves. And we got to do a certain amount of work on ourselves or we're not able to do higher level work with other people. We're just too screwed up. So, <laughs> so, so, so there's a certain amount of solo cultivation we can do. And when we do things like in the energy field, have the toroidal fields pass through each other, then we can do that in our own field. And we can feel some of that, that opening of that gate just through that in our own field. Yeah. Another very important part of our working on ourselves, and then I'll get to the part about the dual cultivation, is that we tend to get stuck in the West today with healing. And somehow healing has become this idea that it's almost like a goal in itself. It's like the, you know, we're just healing forever. And that's true to a certain extent. There's there's layers of the onion, and we'll keep on healing as things go. But I found out years ago, if I put the word healing in the name of a class I offer, I'll get three times as many people as if I don't. And it's like people are somehow this conscious or subconscious idea that it's like everything is all about just healing, heal, heal, heal. But And that's fine. It's absolutely essential because if we don't heal, we don't become whole because the root of the word heal in the ancient languages is the word whole. We have to become whole again. And the trauma that we suffer coming into physical incarnation as an amnesiac, as a completely helpless little infant into God knows what kind of family and situations that you we probably do. chose. <laughs> probably chose it. But nonetheless, it has an impact. Yeah. And we have to become whole again. So we're not just like crazy, reactive mind, emotional suffering. So healing is essential. I'm not putting down healing. But we lost the context of that. Healing is just the first stage. So again, this is in solo cultivation. Healing is the first stage where we have to become whole enough that our energy field and our consciousness is coherent. Once we're coherent and basically, to some degree, have our shit together, then we can actually do the real work. And so we might refer to that next stage as activation. Mm-hmm. Activation is where we start to activate all of our latent potential, all of our latent power, all of the latent energy centers in the body, each of which hold a particular siddha. They hold a particular power in our different energy centers of the body. Every chakra, every acupuncture point, there's a power there which is why that's the basis of healing systems in India and China. Activate the power of that point. All Mm -hmm. kind of things can happen. 
So activation is the next stage uh, beyond just the healing. Then activation itself is not enough because you can find people doing plant medicine and things and activating all kinds of stuff. Sure. But, but their lives are still in chaos mm. because the next stage is to stabilize. Stabilization is the next stage. So you have to heal enough to become coherent. Then you need to start activating your latent potential, the powers of the mind, the power of the energy field. And then what you've activated has to be stabilized. And then at that point, you're getting something that will stay with you throughout your life, throughout your incarnations, past the gate of death, as a permanent thing in your structure. So let's put all that on the side of solo cultivation. Then, like you were talking about with sex magic, we have the dual cultivation. And that's where higher level work can only be done with another person. And so some aspects of this are reflected in spiritual teachings like in the Christian tradition, where they say, when two or more gather together in my name, I am there with you type mm-hmm. of thing. You can't, it can't be done. The higher level work connection to these higher forces can't be done solo. It has to be done with another person. Now, that is then bringing together the two opposite polarities, whatever polarity you chose to incarnate in, whatever polarity the other person has, and you bring those polarities together to open up the gating of that field. And again, the highest level of this is to get to the point that you're no longer conscious of your physical body at all. You're conscious of yourself as an energy field, and the other person is an energy field, both are specific qualities. Then the two combinesce together into one, And it becomes a state of complete oneness. This is the state of the highest bliss with another person. Mm -hmm. All the other things are building up to it. All the basic stuff in a relationship and then the sexual stuff. And you keep Mm -hmm. building up. It becomes more energetic. It becomes more spiritual. And then when you get to the point that you unify into the one, you've managed to open up a tremendous force that can greatly accelerate the process of development for both people. And it generates a force out into the world that like you were talking about when two people do this work and generate this power. It's like you have one nodal point in a great grid of nodal points that's now lit up and becomes activated and it helps to activate the other points in the grid. Now, this is also linked to sacred geometry. So like in the Rosicrucian tradition, they talk about the minimum number of people to form a group that would change the world would be 12 people. It takes 12 different perspectives on the same well, that's an reality. That's number, isn't it? Yes. It takes 12 different perspectives on the same reality to be able to understand all the possible aspects of it. Because you don't understand it from just one aspect. Then you're the blind men of the elephant. You know, you think the elephant is a wall or a spear or something. you got to have 12 different perspectives to know what the thing really is. That's why there's like 12 disciples around Christ. And so that harmonic number of 12 is, is very significant. So there's 12 signs of a zodiac, 12 different perspectives on the sun. And so this then moves to the point that if you had 12 groups of 12 on the earth for the 144, that would really transform the earth's energetic field. So this is all based again on... That doesn't seem that hard. You wouldn't think it would Probably be. That does not seem that hard. 12 groups of 12 that are able to... So, like, let's talk about, let's get, like, a little nuanced with that. Like, what is that group of 12 achieving? You say all the aspects. Like, how can that happen? So, again, the classical idea on this is that every person would bring a different perspective into it. Naturally, they already do, though, right? Like, let's just, naturally, they already bring a unique perspective. They do. But on an archetypal level, 
one would have more of the power and perspective of Aries. One would have the power and perspective of Taurus. Those types of things. And then you got the unity coming together in a microcosm. And that comes together into a very powerful whole. But the challenge of this is that if you've ever worked in a spiritual organization before, things tend to always get screwed up in spiritual organizations because of people's petty ego conflicts and all this type of thing. It's very hard to work in spiritual organizations because you have to deal with all these different personalities. But again, this is the archetype. It certainly would be possible. It's often easier to start on the, the dual cultivation, finding that one other person to do this work with. <laughs> Why? How does, how does polyamory work? I mean, come on. You can't even, it's hard enough to make it work with one other person, <laughs> let alone a couple. Like. <laughs> well, but the whole thing, I think, with uh, the polyamory movement that we have today is that uh, it does have a very important deconstruction aspect to it, which is that in our culture today, we have so many thought forms and programmings about we're going to have one other person that's going to perform every function we ever needed to have brought into our life, everything to make us feel loved and whole and everything we want to experience. They'll share all of that with us. And this becomes a huge burden we put on somebody else. Like this one other person is supposed to fulfill all of my needs in life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very unfair. So right. it can it can be really rough. And this also then leads to the whole thing where we start, as I talked about in the episode in the Gaia series on sacred geometry relationship, we start casting people into our own psychodrama. So like this person is going to get cast into the role of my the bad mommy. This is the bad daddy. This is all the things that I need to work on my conflict with. And I'm not going to tell you about it, but I'm going to project all this on top of you. So I think this idea of polyamory is, is something that actually is uh, part of a spiritual progression. If it's done in an ethical and healthy way of being able to get out of the grasping of someone to, you must perform this role for me, to leaving them free, but finding a way to unite. So is it a transient phase for humans to move closer to love and freedom or a path, like actually a landing place for love and freedom? Is it a part, is it on the path to love and freedom so that you can be able to do that with one person? Or is that actually what, where you end up when you get to love and freedom? I don't know if I have a completely solid answer to it, but it's one of those things where in the end, we're going to have to explore all kinds of different things to get to the final result. We have to be able to extend our flexibility in all kinds of directions in life. You know, this is the heretical aspect of the prodigal son teaching from the, the Christian tradition that most mainstream Christians completely ignore because it's simply too heretical and too dangerous to say that, the, you know, the son that went and experienced all kinds of crazy stuff in life is more esteemed by the father than the one that stayed behind. Exactly. And got so, all the, and got the, and got the big, bur- big, big, big party when he came home. <laughs> that's right. Cut the best cow or calf or whatever it was. And, you know, slaughtered exactly. that one and. So, so no doubt at the end, we're going to have to experience all these different things to get the maximum flexibility. I mean, some people may disagree with me, but this is all just my perspective. And so the, we're going to have to have that experience of focusing on just one person and seeing how far we can take that at some point in our incarnations, but also this aspect about being able to be free and explore where we feel connections with multiple people in a way that is not constrained by all of these societal conditionings. I think is a part of a natural growth of humanity right now 
that's extremely healthy because when you see the amount of suffering that people have based on these ideas, you have to stay with one person forever. They're going to fulfill all of your needs. And even though you've been absolutely miserable and you're just waiting for death after being together for 30 years, you still got to stick together. I'm not sure that that actually leads to a better outcome. No. So I just uh, got done. I interviewed David Buss today, who is an evolutionary psychologist. And he said they, he was just explaining the exact same thing where, you know, say you are in a monogamous relationship for a very, very long time. Most of those people are really happy. Yes. Yes. So common. So common. And if, again, when a person is at a particular state of solo cultivation and can find people that they're a match with, I mean, that's that's magic. And that's another thing I think is very important because it's so easy, particularly when relationships fail. It's so painful when intimate relationships fail. It's very easy to fall into this type of country music story about, oh, she done me wrong and my person that loves me is my dog. And it becomes like this type of very lower consciousness thing about I'm the hero. I was in the right. They were in the wrong. They're the villain. But and, you know, there are abusive relationships where that could be the case. But most of the time it says comes down to the very simple fact that it wasn't a match. And people match on different levels. People may match more toward a, a physical or energetic level or sexual level. They may match more emotionally or mentally or spiritually. And hopefully they may match on all kinds of different levels. That would be, be awesome. Or only but match for a little while until you change and, and then you don't match anymore. Exactly. The only constant is change. And, you know, one of the worst things they ever say to somebody in a relationship is you changed. And like, that's not permitted. You have to stay who you were before and all of the pledges you made when you were a different person, you now have to, to stick with, even though you're a completely different person now. Mm-hmm. We can't freeze a person in place. So I think it's really healthy to get out of the who's right, who's wrong in the relationship breakups and just recognize it's not a match anymore. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes something really clean. It's like, do you match with this person? If so, explore it on whatever level it's a match. If you're not a match with the person, admit it and save your both of you the suffering and, and move on in whatever direction you need to go. Relationships and matching and being triggered and growing. And the old saying, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. <laughs> All right. Yeah. How explain that, explain that expression and how true that, how that can be explained from a geometrical pattern sense. Because everything splits into polarity from unity. This also happens with developing our consciousness. And there's two aspects then. There's an essential polarity to develop our consciousness. And so whether we see things as they actually are or just see them as our projections is related to our needing to develop two types of meditative practices. The first type is a type that was primarily developed in the East, and that is receptive meditation. Receptive meditation is things like Zen or Vipassana. Mm or transcendental meditation. You're not generating any thought forms. In Mm -hmm. fact, you're holding your mind completely clear. The mind becomes a clear mirror. And they say in Zen, for example, that you're developing the ability to have a direct view of reality without any filters. At an objective one, a real objective view. A real objective view of reality, what's actually right in front of you at that moment without all of your projections about what's right, what's wrong, 
what do I want this person to do or not do? All of these types of embedded perspectives that we carry with us. So a true receptive meditation is getting into a clear mind state where the mind is often likened to like a clear sky or to the surface of, of pure water as a pure mirror. And we learn how to not project our own content onto people or situations and just see it in its reality. So receptive meditation is absolutely essential. That's what's really been focused on more in the East than the West. Then the other side of it, equally important, but completely different, complementary polarity, is the active meditation. Active meditation is things like what we think of today as creative visualization. It's really the ability to create a thought form. Now, this can be a magical power. The thought forms that we create can change the reality in our own lives. They certainly change the reality inside of us. They can start to change the reality outside of us, too, if we create a coherent enough thought form. It all gets projected out. Every thought, every emotion we ever have gets projected out of our field, out into the world. It happens automatically for all energetic beings. The power of this is now you can begin to take action through the crafting of thought forms. And, of course, you have to take action to manifest it in the world. But the thought form is the beginning of the process. It has a power of its own as well. Isn't that that's in and of itself is an action? It is. It is. But then we also can take action with our feeling life and our ability to take action with the physical body out in the world to manifest anything we ever dreamt of. And so the thing is that we have to have both aspects of this. And the thing is that almost all traditions today will only teach one or the other. And if the other side of it even comes up, they'll tend to ridicule the other side. The people that do the creative visualization just kind of mock the the clear mind state stuff as, oh, you know, they're not achieving anything. They're not doing anything. It doesn't have a purpose. And the people in the clear mind state say, look at those people doing all the, the thought form generation work. They're not even able to see what's right in front of their face. And they're both right. So this is another again, the, fractal, another, another, another example of duality. It's another example of duality. And you can't just pick one duality and say that's good and the other is bad. It's always the union of the two dualities to get back to the one or what the Tibetans would call the middle path, the middle way, right? Really? That, that creates the miracle when the two come together. And so that would be my my main geometric answer to this. You have to develop both types of receptive and active meditation. And just like breathing in and breathing out or stepping with the left foot and the right foot, that's how you get somewhere. One of the things that for me has been a big, big shift in my experience in this life of of my reality going through it each day is becoming the observer. It's really like, not taking things personally, not projecting. And I'm not saying not at all. I'm just saying less, I should say, because um, I'm still human. But to be able to really see from an observer perspective, the dynamic that's really existing and how, you know, if somebody is irritated with you because, you know, your dog's off of a leash, well, instead of reacting and being, I got it, like, seriously, like I have an electric collar on them. i Trust me, I've said this. I'm like, if I put this collar on you, you'd listen to. I've said that before. But to know, like to have enough perspective and wisdom and observer perspective now to go, wow, I am either they've been hurt before in this scenario, so they're protecting themselves, or they would never, never go against the rules of the road. And they would always have their dog on a leash because they're a rule follower. So now I've triggered them because they would never do what I'm doing. And mm-hmm. so they believe that I should live the same way. And so... Like I see. So how can I progress that observer, more objective perspective in life 
and and how can how can one kind of get get on that path? Because I've felt for myself, it's been really valuable for just staying calm in so many more situations and not not creating drama. I think that is so incredibly important uh, for us not to generate conflict. And so part of it, again, is the receptive meditation to get to where we hold a clear mind state. Because even if people are very annoyed with you and acting aggressively, it changes the energetic situation. If you're completely calmed, balanced, not reactive, but then it needs to go to another level. And this is what is one of the teachings from the Holy Grail tradition of Europe. Very misunderstood today, often very misinterpreted as a, as a bloodline type of thing. But the real Holy Grail tradition had to do with certain types of spiritual development to get to a higher level, regardless of any bloodlines. And one part of this is what they call the speech of the grail. So there were knights of the sword who cut with the sword. And you can, in your relationships, cut people with your comments and your actions and try to dominate them and be right and make them wrong and enforce your perspective on top of those, be a knight of the sword, or you can be a knight of the word. And the knight of the word is the more advanced level in the grail tradition. And that's where you develop the speech of the grail. It's a a dynamic ability to think on your feet and to find a way to communicate to other people in a way that heals and enlightens them. That any, any case of conflict that we have with another person, if we can keep the clear mind state and then use the speech of the grail so that we don't cast them in the, in a role of some inferior being while we're the superior being, but we're two human beings going through our experience and we keep an open heart and an open connection with them and speak to them in a way that clearly reflects our perspective while also respecting and honoring them in a way that hopefully brings light rather than heat to the situation. That's another major part of it. And again, this a lot of this is based on the development of the heart. Can we find a way to keep our heart open and communicating to another person without caricaturing them in a particular conflict situation in a way that respects them, even if what they're doing is absolutely absurd and destructive? But it's like the concept of namaste from India. Namaste meaning that the divine in me sees and respects the divine in you. Mm-hmm. That we're actually, any time that we direct energy to the divine plane, we activate that energy. So there's ways to do that, like in biogeometry and in, in energy work, to connect to those points and activate them. But in this case, what we are talking about is whenever you're with another person and you are actively seeing their divine core, their divine self, no matter how screwed up they are and how badly they're acting out. Which is essentially seeing the best in them, right? Is that is that a way to like sort of bring that to a tangible sort of way, way of thinking? It, it is seeing the best in them, but it does literally become seeing the divine light in them as a very literal act, seeing the divine light and core and knowing that they come from the same one that we came from okay. as an absolute internal knowing. Mm-hmm. Not like an abstract idea, but like feeling it in the heart. And it's like the way that the Buddhists get over uh, conflict, like they have ways to solve anger. And so they talk about one of the first things you have to do to overcome being angry with another person is to ask ourselves how they suffer. And once you start seeing how the person's actions are coming out of their suffering, no matter how badly they're being destructive, it's easier to work with it. 
Is it easy to say always for that? It's always coming from their pain, their, their challenges, their suffering. Yes. Because for some people, the best defense is a good offense. Yeah. Are these what would be like biosignatures in someone or what are biosignatures? Okay. So now we're, we'll move into the ideas of Egyptian uh, biogeometry. Mm. And so the knowledge of what was done in the ancient Egyptian temples was basically lost. And they have a, a saying in Egypt that our mysteries were never betrayed, meaning that what was secret in the temple stayed secret in the temple. Fair enough. We'll now, remember. So, we'll remember, right. won't we? Absolutely. That's what we're doing right now is we're remembering this. Now, it's a very interesting thing, just on the road to answering your question, that, you know, for myself and for many other people who begin to remember past lives, one of the first past lives they remember is Egyptian. Now, I find that fascinating because we've had other past lives more recently. Why don't we remember those first? There's something about the Egyptian incarnations that are so significant to us. Would the energetic frequency that we lived in that life be so loud is maybe the like a, just a slang word, but so such a high frequency, such a standout frequency that we're picking up at that energetic signature in our past first, because it's like the most complicated, the most progressive. Could it be that? I do think that's one part of it. Many of the images you see in classical religions are sacred geometry forms that have a deeper meaning or teaching behind them. But only the initiates are taught the deeper meaning. The average person only understands at a surface level. Example, the original Jewish menorah from the Jewish Kabbalistic tradition. Mm-hmm. So there's seven candlesticks. The first one is connected in a great arc to the seventh one. The second in a great arc to the sixth. The third in a great arc to the fifth. And the fourth one stands alone. Now, the Jewish Kabbalistic tradition has a very deep understanding of time and time cycles. And so what this embeds is that certain periods of time are divided into seven stages, like a seven-stage alchemical process in time. Cutting to the chase, you are going into all the details. In the time since the Atlantean catastrophe in the Western tradition, it's understood, for example, with the European Rosicrucians, that the third post-Atlantean epoch was the Egyptian epoch. And the one we're at now is the fifth epoch, the European epoch. Where the Europeans became the dominant people. That's what we're in now? That's right. And so there's a connection between the third and the fifth because it's like the fourth is the dividing point. It's like a mirror image. So the third and the fifth are mirrors of each other, second and the sixth, first and the seventh. Without going into all the details of it, this means that we're in a part of a time cycle right now where if you understand the greater structure of the time cycle is we're having a certain type of reflection going the opposite direction of what we had in ancient Egypt. And so we have a natural fascination with our time in ancient Egypt. And if you turn on, you know, some documentary channel on TV, the vast majority of documentaries about ancient cultures are all about Egypt. There's very, very few about ancient Persia and other cultures. They're all about Egypt. But that's because that's being reawakened in us. The knowledge we had then, but now in a later stage of evolution, so there's all of there's hidden sacred geometry patterns of time as well as in space. So that's my answer to the whole thing about you know why is the Egyptian yeah. so important now? Let's go into that more. I, I I like to I wanna I wanna understand this better. So since you're the this is you're the, such the perfect person for this because 
you you look at things in the way that it feels tangible for me, which is through patterns and energy and it's tangible thing. While we can't see it, I can feel it. I know it. I believe it. I be I know it. Um, so how is it that we're connecting to these different time space rea- time space realities, the third and the fifth, the first and the seventh, these things? How explain that from a geometric standpoint, from a pattern standpoint? So when you have a cycle of seven, there's a natural relationship where the very first stage gets reflected in the in the last stage. It's a it's a polarity relationship. Everything's polarities, right? Yep. So, yep, so you're yep, you're coming yep. in and you're going out. They talk about that with dimensions a lot, where yes, um, like the the last connects back to the first again. That's always the case. Okay. And it's just like the Ouroboros eating its tail sort of thing. So you've got the the first and the seventh are connected again, and the menorah's got a great arc showing you they're connected. And so the first Persilantian epoch was the Indian epoch with the time of the oldest book in the world, the laws of Manu and the creation of the great civilization in the Indus Valley and the Vedic culture. Second was the Persian Zoroastrian tradition. Mm-hmm. The third was the Egyptian. The fourth was the Greco-Roman. Mm-hmm. And the fifth is the current European. And then there's more to come with the sixth and the seventh on the way. And so it's always the case then that the fourth, just as shown in the menorah, is the dividing line in the center is the place that the whole process inverts. What was coming in is now going out. And so there's a a development the opposite direction in those later stages. So all of us in that have these recollections of ourselves in ancient Egypt, there's a part of that that's being activated right now. Now, once we get into, if we're incarnating, let's say, in the sixth post-Atlantean epoch, we may be much more focused on our ancient Persian incarnations. That's something that will be called up inside of us. There's a great idea in what's called uh, Vedic astrology or Jyotish in India, which which is uh, that in, there are certain moments in time where your karmas will ripen, your karmas will be activated. They have a whole science of this in, in India, of the Dasha periods. It doesn't exist in Western astrology at all. Hmm. But in the Indian system, you can get your Dashas read and you'll know what karma is going to ripen at what moment of your life. Certain experiences will happen then. Same thing for us with our whole incarnation right now. There's a certain karma that's ripening from ancient Egypt having to do with the abilities we gain there, remembering, regaining those abilities, bringing them to bear in our lives right now, and bringing them to bear on the earth to help the earth as a whole right now. So that's that's the basic idea of it. So do we continue to add these memories? So let's say we move from the fifth, we pick up all of the information in the third by the time we complete the fifth. We, we reintegrated. We've reintegrated the third with the fifth. And then we go to the sixth. We've kept that information. And now we go into the sixth and we pick up the fourth. Is that right? The, the sixth so, and the second. Six and the second. So now yeah. we pick the, we pick up the second. And so we continue to pick it up until we arrive at the end of these time cycles. And then, and then we a new start time over. Cycle. That's right. So we're in a constant, I have this like, I'm so incapable because I don't understand it well enough. I can't explain it simply. 
but maybe this will strike something in you. But I think about reality in the sense of fractals a lot. And then when I put into that, when I add in quantum entanglement, which is just so hard to understand and comprehend because it's so beyond our scope of imagination of what's really possible. Mm -hmm. And I start to think about black holes and I start to think about like time looping, like reality, like time and space looping. And so is there anything within the fabric of reality with geometry or anything like that that would create looping? Because like quantum entanglement, two thing, two two particles a- acting instantaneously in the equal and opposite way is just such a hard thing to understand. So there must be something that closes the gap between what we would look at between point A and point B, and there must be sitting on top of each other in some way. That's right. It's the whole idea of the unified field. It's that those two particles that are affecting each other uh, are part, they're connected through a much larger matrix and again, this is why in my sacred geometry series on Gaia, the very first episode was about the net, the matrix of creation that everything is a part of. So we have an aspect of this where everything is intricately linked in a larger energetic and spiritual system that modern science has no concept of. They only look at the broken fragments that appear into physical reality. They look at the collapse of the wave function where the energetic waves have become a physical object, but they no longer understand the larger matrix that the waves are in, including at the higher consciousness levels mm-hmm. before a wave that created the physical world even came to, into existence. Mm-hmm. So understanding it from the classical traditions of multiple planes of existence, all of which we participate in, we all have those within ourselves and can experience all of them mm-hmm. ourselves is a way to understand this. And fractals is a modern concept that really helps us to understand how the same pattern at a higher level of scale, the same pattern at a higher uh, plane level, manifests here on this plane with the same pattern, but reduced in scale. I'll, I'll give you a particular example of an idea of, of fractal reality from 2,000 years ago in Alexandria, Egypt. In the early Christian centuries, when they were trying to understand what is the nature of the Christ being in early Christianity, one of the great, now called a church father, Origen, living in Alexandria, Egypt, wrote an incredible book called On First Principles. And in it, he says, the only way you can understand what the Christ being is, we're not talking about the master Jesus as a human being. We're talking about this larger cosmological being, the solar logos, the Christ being. He says the way to understand what this being is, is that the Godhead is so vast. The Godhead is everything. It's so vast that you don't get a a, a, a view of what that being is because it's everything everywhere. He says what the Christ being is, is a macrocosmic being that has all the qualities of the Godhead but reduced in scale to the macrocosmic level to where we can actually perceive and interact with this being. Mm-hmm. And then humanity also has the qualities of the Godhead but we're reduced to the microcosmic level. Mm. We're another level reduced, but it's the exact same fractal pattern. Mm. And, and so we are microcosmic beings with all the potentials of the Godhead latent inside of us, most of which have been neutralized because people are so screwed up today. If you actually had these higher powers, you'd create incredible destruction all around you. But 
This idea that it's a fractal movement from one level to another is an ancient concept, but today we can express it in geometry and math and, and get it as a visual hit. That's why I like describing the idea about how the seven time periods in a cycle work together by giving the geometric form. And that's what they thought in ancient Judaism too, which is why they gave the image of the menorah. They didn't explain to the average person what it meant. That was for the initiate to understand that's the structure of time cycles. Is there something to be said about these geometric structures, even being in Egypt? They said that the, you know, the, um, you know, the ram or any of the heads of the lions of the, of the animals were, were actually geometrically activating something within you when you looked at it. Mm. Is there something happening by just observing these structures, these patterns, these, um, these actual physical things sitting in front of us that will activate something within us? Absolutely. So for this, let me go to the work of biogeometry and my friend and teacher in Egypt, Dr. Ibrahim Karim. And he's got some amazing work on this within the the biogeometry work. Mm. So one aspect of this is that he talks about the way that in ancient Egypt, they knew an incredible secret. And that secret was the design code behind everything in creation, the design code that allows you to crystallize physical forms into a physical world from higher energetic states, and that this became expressed through things like the hieroglyphic text and through some of the expressions that they had with design in ancient Egypt. And so there are certain energy emanations coming from certain hieroglyphs that if you test it with energetic methods like vibrational radiesthesia, where you can detect subtle energy waves coming off of things. Some of these hieroglyphs have very powerful energetic waves coming off them because of the shape information. Oh, wow. Like the indentions into the walls of the yes. shape that it is, it would it would bounce off of it and create energetic it, structure? It, cre- it creates an energetic effect. So like you were saying, if you look at it, does it have an effect on you? And the answer is yes. So they found ways to work with shape information to be able to bring forward all types of energy states. So in biogeometry, to explain how we get the effects we get with the work, one of the the concepts that we use, developed by Dr. Kareem, is that energy into shape creates function. So energy is a proteus. It could take any form. But how do we program the energy to do a specific thing? We have that energy move in a specific pattern. Mm-hmm. So the energy movement pattern programs the energy to take the action. Now, that's why your heart has a specific geometric shape that's completely different from the shape of the liver. That's different from the shape of the spleen because the actual shape is related to the function. (gasps) And so that's what biosignatures are. You mentioned earlier biosignatures, so I'm just cycling back to that. So so once something matters, it absolutely matters. It's like it's like form follows function. Right. So energy into shape creates function. So the shape of everything matters. And any two things with a similar shape can exchange energy and information. Now, that's the idea that we have today in electromagnetic theory. We have to have a specifically shaped antenna to pick up a specific electromagnetic signal. If it doesn't have the right shape, it can't pick up the signal. But that's true energetically with all living beings. All right. Like a, so heart connection, like a heart to heart coherence. Exactly. It, exactly. Because it's a heart. So a heart can connect with a heart. And so what Dr. Kareem did, I'm jumping forward a few levels here to explain biosignatures, is that 
he looked at, it's not just the outer shape, although the outer shape is very important. The boundary of anything contains embedded information. The shape of a human body is important. The shape mm-hmm. of an organ is important. Mm-hmm. But what he then looked at is that that shape of the heart, that shape of the liver, that shape of the kidney, it actually then becomes a container that has energy circulations inside of it. And not just one energy circulation. There may be nine or ten or a dozen different energy circulations inside the heart. Every energy circulation inside the heart is creating a different consciousness, energy, physiological function. There may be one related to the heart beating. There may be one to the heart doing filtration of the blood. There may be another one for whatever the, the physiological functions are, but also related to energy and consciousness. That's why in some Sufi traditions, they'll have you focus on a specific point in the physical heart mm-hmm. because it's what connects the beat of the physical heart to a higher cosmic origin. That is what it's entrained to. Mm-hmm. And so with the biosignatures, he then began to use radiesthesia, which is the ability to detect and trace out energy movements of subtle energy. He then was able to trace out the way energy moves in the human heart in a whole variety of different ways. It was originally a three-dimensional energy movement pattern that he then flattened and simplified into a two-dimensional image to become a biosignature. But that, that's just this two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional energy flow in a particular part of the human physical body or energy field that's linked to a specific function. So in the biogeometry trainings, when we teach people the biosignatures, we show them how they work energetically in the body and how you would test a person for which ones they need. Because what happens is those energy circulations in the body can become impaired. They become impaired through trauma. They become impaired through physical illness, they become impaired through toxin buildup, any number of things. When that energy circulation in the organ becomes impaired, then the function begins to degrade. So what you're doing when you provide a biosignature to a person is you're creating a resonance effect, reminding the body of the correct energy circulation, and then restoring the function to it. Now, we don't make any medical claims for it, but that's the idea. So like what Reiki, what they do in Reiki by being able to go into the energy body and look at where the energy is. I'm very curious about the somatic work has become more and more popular right now where you're using sort of your breath and, you know, your own. You're using your essentially a lot of your breath and moving your body to find and move stuck energy. So can you explain what stuck energy is? Yes. So, for example, if you were to go to a Taoist Qigong healer mm-hmm. from China and you had a lung problem, they may have you make the same movement a thousand times a day because this is a movement of your body following the, the etheric energy flow mm-hmm. that's actually going to restore the right circulation to the body. And that's what a lot of this Qigong type things are. Oh, my God. Yeah, you're moving the field, right? You're like you're moving the energy, the, the toroidal field. And, exactly. And, and so, then, oh, my God. So, so the mistake that, that they make teaching it in the West is they try to teach it to you like a dance. Yes, like, like a dance. Like, exactly. like move this and move that and then move there and move there. And then it's <laughs> hard to remember it because it's like, oh, go here, next, or go here. But you're focused on the, the physical body part. Instead, if you had the person focus on the energy movement, and just let your body be moved by the energy movement, then it has a completely different impact and it makes a whole lot more sense. So like one of the basic movements in Qigong is like you let your hands like, like moving through water. 
And so if you just say, okay, move your hands like this, the energetic effect is limited. But if you tell a person, feel a rising current of energy coming up from the ground that is lifting your hands up and your hands and arms are completely relaxed, being pushed upward by the column of energy, that's what's really happening. And so that's that's the concept behind it. It's the energy flow moving the body was the original concept. Then it became more focused on the physical movement, which still has an energetic impact, but it's not as powerful as feeling the energy move the body. So what is the benefit when you say like they might have you if you have some something energetically that needs to be moved, they might tell you to do like a certain motion yes. to align and coordinate that energy in a more coherent, balanced, flow, f- flowing way. So if you're just letting your body move, like, I mean, I think about like there are, you know, people that do incredible work with getting people to move their bodies and you know, they're very, they do more intuitive kind of interpretive, interpretative yes. dance. And, you know, that is so uncomfortable for a lot of people. I mean, me is one, like, I mean, I'll do it, but it's like, you know, I also, I'm, I'm really good. I like to execute. So like, it's like, what's the move again? Um, but to just kind of move like freely without anything. So what are you actually doing if you're, if you're, if you're following the energy instead of leading the energy with a certain movement that makes it all more, co- more coherent? Well, it could actually be either. You could be following a particular energy movement that's present and letting your body move with it. Or it could be that you are almost magnetically creating the energy movement with the movement of the body, mm-hmm. the movement of the hands, etc. That's when you then get to all of these energy healing systems like chronic healing or things of this kind, where you learn how to project energy out of the hands. Mm-hmm. But again, it's the energy movement that's doing the work. Mm-hmm. The body's just following along, but it's the movement of energy that's creating the effect. So mm-hmm. for example, in Chinese medicine, they describe that the vast majority of the psychological and physical illnesses we have are simply due to blockages in the body of energy. Because if the energy is moving properly mm-hmm. in all of its places, all circulating, then Health is automatic. Mm-hmm. But as soon as there's any blockage to the movement of the energy, then stagnation comes in. They talk about a whole series of different stagnations, blood stagnations, food stagnation, lymph stagnation. There's a variety of stagnations you can have in your body that then lead to these problems. And that can happen either through external trauma, like physical impacts or illnesses coming in, or it can be internal trauma, like our, our doing what Wilhelm Reich called armoring. When we have traumatic events, the part of us that doesn't want to feel or remember that traumatic event, we hold it really tight. We don't remember it. We'll hold the temples really tight or we'll have ocular armoring and hold the eyes really tight. Or if we don't want to say anything about it, we'll hold the jaw really tight uh, or if the throat is constricted. And if we don't want to feel it around the heart, then we have shallow breathing and we constrict the chest or things like this. That's there's really fundamental work that Wilhelm Reich did to start the modern mind-body therapy movement like a 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing here is that we're then suppressing the movement of energy because we're trying to suppress the feeling of the trauma. Yeah. And to some degrees, that's a coping mechanism because we yeah. might be in a situation that we're not able to cope with it right now. Yeah. Now, when you are able to cope with it, you need to let it move. You need to let it out. Yeah. But, so by you know, letting your body lead the way, you're starting to liberate that energy. And so when you're doing things like authentic movements and spontaneous Mm -hmm. movement, 
Part of it is loosening up all the myofascial adhesions and stuff that most of us have because we're just too rigid all the time. And that feels fantastic. But it can also be in deeper levels of that work, and we've already got the physical body a little more flowing, then we can really allow ourselves to unify with larger energetic flows in an environment or that create certain functions. So like many of the different Qigong sets that you have from China, they create different energetic functions in the energy body. And they, they again, they're part of the activation process like we talked about before, that we have healing, then we have activation, then we have stabilization. Mm-hmm. The actual then movement of the energy activates something. Or in the case of biosignatures, it restores the correct energy movement inside the system of the body using the correct energy pattern of that flow. Yeah. So what is disease then? Well, disease, <laughs> that becomes another larger topic. There's actually a section on that in the advanced training of biogeometry. But in dealing with it in a very short frame, one aspect of this is that we have lost the correct energy circulation that created the function of that part of the body to begin with. Mm-hmm. And at a deeper metaphysical level, it means that we've lost a resonance between the health-giving source at a higher level of what comes into the body. We're no longer connected to it. We're no longer resonating with it. Oh. we got to reconnect with it. It's like stuff. It's dormant. And so that's why this healing is very important. But again, it's to become whole again. The energy circulations are back. We're reconnected to those larger metaphysical levels. I mean, why is cardiac disease one of the, the biggest killers in the West today? Broken and hearts. Exactly. Everybody's got a broken heart. Everybody's got an armored heart that they hold rigid. I mean, I do a lot of, I've done a lot of body work with people in a way that's like energetic body work. This was a natural thing for me. Mm-hmm. And, and so what you find when you're palpating around both the person's front heart center and their back heart center where the more subconscious stuff is, mm-hmm. is the amount of rigidity people have there is incredible. Now let me just throw in something here that might be of interest. So, In the Chinese tradition, they understand that there's three major elixir fields in the body, three major alchemical fields in the body. Mm -hmm. And so one is in the head. They call it the upper elixir field or the upper dantian. And that's where we work on our consciousness. Then there is the middle elixir field. That's around our heart and our lungs. And that's related to our feeling function and rhythmic processes in life. And then... And the lower abdomen is the lower dantian. Now, the only safe place to store energy, like dynamic life energy in the body, out of these three, is the lower dantian. It's not safe to store it in the head. It's not safe to store it in the heart. That'll create migraines. That'll create heart palpitations. The only place to store the really powerful energy in the body is the lower abdomen. And that's like a battery in the body. That's where we had the navel, right? Everything we took in from the mother came in through the navel. And so the lower abdomen, all the metabolic processes there, all the sexual energy generation, that's all lower abdomen stuff. So one thing that you'll find, just like you find the armoring around the heart, is something that's really impactful for a lot of people. I've done a lot of work with women on this, is in the lower abdomen, you'll find that for a lot of women to protect themselves from too much aggressive energy, particularly for men coming toward them sexually, or other grasping things toward them. They armor the lower abdomen to a degree that they're not even aware of. They don't know how armored and rigid they're holding the lower abdomen because it's such an intrinsic state. 
It may have happened in childhood or it may have happened around puberty when they started to get attention. But it's like something that holds back the dynamic pulsation of the life force in the abdomen. It can be true for men and women, but it's particularly significant for women. For because that? Oh, it's, it's, you can simply feel it. You can put your okay. hands on the abdomen and feel the rigidity okay. that's there. Now, what a lot of women do subconsciously to avoid that area of being stimulated is that if you start to touch them in the lower abdomen, they'll say, stop, it tickles. But the tickle response is a defensive mechanism. And if you start to actually loosen up all of the, the fascial tissue and things in the lower abdomen, it has incredibly powerful effects for the whole energy system and the psychology. And for women, this is one of the most important things they can do is open up the lower abdominal energy, soften it, allow it to pulsate again, and then the amount of dynamic energy generation in the female body is incredible. Mm-hmm. What's um, what's a practice, because maybe not everyone can do this. I'm not saying I'm the best, but I can definitely... Energy is my field of information. Like that's yeah. how I that's how I sense things. I sense coherence and frequency with someone. I I have three EMF reducers in my house. I took the Wi-Fi out of my bedroom. Like that's just something I'm sensitive to. Yes. So if we were able to energetically sort of tap into each chakra, what is and we can feel whether or not it feels tight or whatever information we're getting. How can we approach and maybe I'm not even directing it towards the right places, but you're talking about the lower abdomen and I start thinking about sacral, solar plexus, mm-hmm. all of the chakras. So, and some people are very blocked in their throat chakra. So what, if we went through them, is there something that we can do to um, loosen it to get yes. it to flow? So for what I was talking about the lower abdomen, a lot of this is like myofascial release. A lot of this is, is like actual physical opening up the the ability of the flesh, the muscle, sure. to be soft and mobile and pulsating again. Right. But behind that, again, at the next energy layer behind that, then you've got the chakras, the meridians, things like that. Okay. So what I would mention just very briefly, as one of the most important of all exercises, because it allows you not only to open up the energy in the center, it also allows you to become aware of the actual spiritual power that's held in any location in the body, any chakra, any acupuncture point, is the basic energy movement that I teach very briefly in the uh, Gaia series, and I teach in more detail in other courses, which is what I refer to as zero-point centering mm-hmm. and radiance. Mm-hmm. So if you think of a sphere, and the sphere is losing air, and it's collapsing into its own center, mm-hmm. becomes a point, and mm-hmm. it just the point gets smaller and smaller. It's going into the center of the center of the center, mm-hmm. constantly shrieking. This is related to the movement of the planes as well. This is explained very well in Egyptian biogeometry. Mm-hmm. But the basic idea is that normally when we are needing to understand the world around us and navigate safely in a physical world, all of our attention from our senses is going outward. It's going outward in a sphere of information around the body. Make sure I'm not hit by a truck or whatever it is. But if you're going to become aware of things in the inner landscape, aware of the spiritual reality, the energetic reality, instead of the awareness going outward, it needs to go inward. So, for example, you could put your attention at the Ajna center, which is between the eyebrows, slightly inside the skull. 
Mm-hmm. This was a particular system I, I learned from Samuel Sagan at the Clear Vision School in Australia, but it's really a universal pattern that uh, is understood by many traditions because it's based on a sacred geometry archetype. And that is, you put your attention in any energy center of the body. We'll just say Ajna as an example. Okay. But it could be the lower abdomen, could be the sacral center, so places, whatever. You put your attention there and you go inside. As you move from the physical plane awareness, you then move into the awareness of the vibrational state of what we might call the etheric or the chi or ki or prana. That's the next level beyond the physical. It's the dynamic life force. And then your awareness the will shift. body as well, the, the Egyptians. Exactly. The, they talk about the ka body, the, the energetic field around you. It's exactly the ka body, exactly. And so all the traditions had a name for it. Yeah. And so as you move into it, you are shifting your awareness of it to to modality where the etheric shiki prana ka is experienced as vibration or tingling or density or pressure or mm-hmm. hot and cold. These are all sensations inside the energy body. Right. And so when you feel that, again, it could be at any energy center, mm-hmm. you then move all of your energy and attention into the center of the center of the center of the center of what you feel. Mm. And as you do that, you're actually moving through the planes. Now, again, this is best described in Egyptian biogeometry, which talks about how the planes are assembled outside of our body in a series of layers, but also inside of our body in a series of layers. Mm. So as you're going into the interior, you go from the physical awareness outward to now going in at the vibrational. You feel the vibrational. You go into the center of the center of center of whatever you feel because you don't want to have it be an abstract thought form out here. You want to feel it in your body. That's mm. the only way it's going to work. <laughs> and then when you go deeper into it, you then get to the astral layer. That's the first level of consciousness. Now, rather than feeling the vibration, density, pressure, you become aware of light and color. That becomes the the modality of the astral plane. Mm-hmm. And then you keep going into the center of the center of the center. And what will happen is you go through all the planes until you reach the absolute center, which is the divine plane. Divine plane is in the absolute center of everything. And so as you've moved all the energy and tension into the center of the center of the center of this place in your energy body, when you touch the divine plane, it activates it. When you've moved into the absolute center with your energy and attention. It's like when you namaste recognize the divine in the other person, and in your seeing the divine in the other person, you're actually activating it. Mm. And so when you move your attention tangibly into the center of the center, it builds up energy, you touch the divine center. What happens then is it activates it, and now the energy begins to flood outward, and it Mm. becomes an illuminated sphere of light around the head. So that's where you see all these pictures in classical traditions about like an illuminated sphere around the head of the initiates, or they have a whole illuminated energy field, but they don't tell you how to activate it. Right, right. Uh, they just they could, I feel like in, in history, they would just say it's like a crown. Yeah, uh, but they're not telling you because they probably didn't know what the actual initiation practices were. So this is one of the most important practices of creation. Everything came from the one, from the... They say in physics it's the singularity, right? The singularity is an infinitesimal point in space, zero-dimensional. And then that expanded outward, like in the Big Bang, to create the space-time enclosure of this world that that we live in. But the, the cosmological movement is from that center 
outward and then back from the expanse back into the center. From like seven back around again to one or. <laughs> it, it, yes, the cycle will always repeat, but that's the whole thing. This is love, right? We're getting back to the one freedom, freedom. love, freedom. So I do have to, like a question because of the uh, you're such a your awareness for the energy and what's really happening. So when I picture energy coming up my spine and into my head into the pineal gland, I if I focus there, it is like it almost is like a headache. It's like a it feels like incredible heat. Yes. And what is happening? So this is something very important. Uh, in the 1960s and 70s, we had a lot of Indian gurus coming to the United States and teaching people things like kundalini meditations mm-hmm. to, to blast the kundalini up the spine to the top of the head. Mm-hmm. But the problem with this is that, first of all, the energy body isn't cleansed enough like they were doing the ashrams for decades. Mm-hmm. Then it can be what's called a diverted rising, and the energy can go into a secondary channel, which doesn't have the ability to hold that level of voltage But the other problem with it is that raising the kundalini all the way to the crown of the head would be used by some other traditions like the Tibetans in the Palwa practice as a method of conscious death or excarnation. You shoot the pearl of your spiritual self out of the head, and it's a conscious form of excarnation. Now, because we're only given fragments of information today, we don't always know how all these practices fit together. And so what can happen is that when we get the spinal energy rising up, when we get activations of centers in the head, particularly on the pineal, pituitary, like I said, it's not safe to store the energy in the head. It's not safe to store the energy in the chest. It's only safe to store it in the lower abdomen. That's just the way the body is designed. The lower body, the lower abdomen is the battery. It's the life force enclosure in the body. Mm. This is for consciousness. This is for feeling. The mm. life force vibration, that's for the lower abdomen. But we're so neurotic about the lower abdomen and sexual stuff in our culture. Like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. But that's where the energy needs to get stored. And so in the 1980s, I mentioned before that the deeper Taoist work uh, for inner alchemy began to be released to the public for the first time. It had been very secret before. So one of the things that they did that helped a lot of people with this problem is they taught people the idea of the microcosmic orbit. So the microcosmic orbit is that there is a channel of energy running up your spine that in Chinese medicine is called the Dew Meridian or the Governing Vessel. Mm-hmm. There's another channel that runs up the midline of the front of your body that's called the Conception Vessel or the Ren Meridian. And the two of these are meant to link together and then become a flow of energy. Mm-hmm. Now, to do that, you need to touch the tip of the tongue to the roof of the mouth because this meridian coming up here terminates at the tip of the tongue. Mm-hmm. And the tongue also acts like an electrical conductor that's why in sex and things that, that the tongue is such a powerful stimulator. It has an electrical charge to it. Mm-hmm. So when you plug the tip of the tongue into the roof of the mouth, it then connects to the energy coming up the spine, coming over the top of the head, and then to the upper palate. That's where that terminates, in the upper mm-hmm. palate of the mouth. Touching the tip of the tongue to the roof of the mouth, now you're connecting the front and the back channels together, and you let the energy then run down the front channel until it begins to circulate up the spine, down the front. Now, what this does is it allows you to not build up the energy that is coming from the spine to the head. It's meant to circulate. 
If it gets mm-hmm. jammed up up there, it leads to what's called kundalini sickness, where you have too much tension and pressure in the head. Yeah. It's meant to be circulated. So after you circulate it up the spine, mm-hmm. down the front, this is just a very simple explanation of what can have other aspects to it, is the, then uh, when you're finishing that practice, is you start to make a vortex movement at a level below the navel in the lower abdomen, about an inch and a half below the navel in the center of the body. Okay. And that's a, a place that when you make a vortex movement there, you can pull all that energy in and store it in your internal battery where it's safe in the lower abdomen. Uh, so it comes up your spine into the to the tongue. Now the tongue touches the roof of the mouth. mouth, which connects to the front energy channel. So then you send it back down mm-hmm. into a vortex that essentially charges your body with more energy. That's right. There's a type of physiological energetic battery in the lower abdomen. Mm-hmm. This provides, it can hold a lot of charge. And then we do that. So you actually circulate it. This is a very quick explanation of a larger process. But you circulate it multiple times up the spine, down the front, so that mm-hmm. the whole flow is happening. Yep. But then if you want to end the practice by making sure the energy is ending up somewhere beneficial, Got you it. create the vortex to hold the energy in the lower abdomen so it yeah. doesn't build up in the head, so it doesn't build up in the chest. Because we need to open up the pineal gland, absolutely, for higher consciousness. We mm-hmm. need to open up the heart chakra, absolutely, for mm-hmm. higher consciousness. Mm-hmm. But again, that's not a place that we can store the dynamic energy. Every one of these three elixir fields has its own function. And once we begin, again, see it in context, when you understand the bigger context, everything fits into place. Just your explanation, you're so extremely articulate and um, so intelligent that it's, you know, things just land so well because you understand it so well. So thank you. Um, Okay. Let's try and wrap up, even though, you know, I could absolutely go on and on. As you see, my pure curiosity is just I've abandoned all my like notes and stuff. I'm this is just my pure curiosity carrying on with what your answers are. What can people do to explore biogeometry at um, an entry level or um, uh, uh, at, a, at, a, at a level that we can start accessing and using so that we can understand ourselves and and improve the energetic structure of of our bodies and how it all works and then also i'm curious where to go next with the rosicrucian order because i i know we didn't talk about it a lot but but i i find that very fascinating i find the the lessons within it that you've shared and that i've sort of touched in other ways to be um really powerful so let's be clear most of what we talked about today is along the lines of what I teach in spiritual science or in vibrational science. Okay. And I have a, a series of courses on my website, vesica.org. And a vesica with a V at the beginning, B-E-S-I-C-A. Like is, the best uh, Exactly. It's where you get two opposite polarities in the two circles. They perfectly overlap, creating an almond-shaped enclosure. And again, like we talked about before, that's where the magic happened. The two opposite polarities where they overlap becomes the portal in the center. That's actually in the iconography of, of the Institute with uh, the Vesica form. So at vesica.org, I have the spiritual science and the vibrational science courses related to most of what we talked about here. Okay. I also am very fortunate to be able to teach the biogeometry work developed by my friend, Dr. Ibrahim Karim from Cairo, Egypt. And so we offered that the... The other courses I offer are all online courses. You just do them at your own time. There's not a live component. They're just there for your own study when you have the time to do it. The spiritual the bio- sciences. 
the spiritual science and the yeah. vibrational science work. Spiritual okay. sciences that work more focused on developing the consciousness, okay. vibrational science more in developing the energy body okay. and being able to work with energies in and around us. Okay. Then the biogeometry is Dr. Kareem's work, which is teaching nature's own design language, mm-hmm. which is how shape, sound, color, motion, number, angle, proportion can create specific energetics that we can use to balance our homes, our offices, and at a higher level within our own energy system and activate the energy system, as well as balancing with biosignatures and things like that. So that's also listed on our website, vesica.org. And this class has a pre-recorded component and a live component where people will join us for three days on a weekend in a row, three weekends in a row for one day each weekend. And there's uh, four hours where we have practice reviews of things I've taught them in the class. We'll give them a summary. We'll send them off to coaches to work with, to ask any questions they have, etc. So all of this is available through my website, vesica.org, as uh, structured courses that can be taken. And ask about the Rosicrucians. The Rosicrucian work is primarily in the spiritual science side. I always tell people to start with essential teachings and practices of spiritual science because that gives you some of these fundamentals I talked about, like the receptive and active meditation and things like that. Uh, but I also have a course that's specifically about the Rosicrucian work, which is uh, called the, the True Rosicrucian Tradition. And it's got multiple courses that go into a lot of the deeper Rosicrucian knowledge. And that's a, one of my favorite topics, so I always love talking about that. No, okay. I mean, I hope that I didn't use too much of your time up for you to um, say no when I ask you to do this again. But I'd love to dive into that another time because I I find I find that work to be it's very magical. Wonderful. I would I would absolutely love to talk with you again specifically about the Rosicrucian tradition because it's really, in a sense, a modern expression of the Egyptian and like a modern cultural context. It has mm-hmm. so much in it. And uh, I'd also love to talk to you sometime about the biogeometry, because that's a huge topic in itself. And it really makes available to us what was previously very hidden knowledge and practices from the ancient Egyptian temple science, but in a modern context where it's easier to understand and apply. Sure, sure. Absolutely. I I, I was totally on my list of questions was like, what about a house and like light lines <laughs> and energy grids and the, the geometry and like shape of the house and like should I have a friend who does crystal grids underneath houses and like there's so many places to go, which is why I struggled so much with like where to go with all of my uh, with with the interview today. But it was so enlightening and so fascinating. And hopefully it's got people uh, has people inspired and motivated to dive into more of your work and go to your website and do the courses. And I sure do. And, you know, be ready for the next interview. So. Thank Thank you you so so much. much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button. Oh, my God. Mm. That's called mastery, everybody. Oh, my God. Uh, well, we're going to hear more from <laughs> that wise being. Let's just put it that way. Mr. Gilbert. Yeah, and pretty intense. That young lady is 
Patri. Pa, what's her name? Oh. Um. <laughs> it's okay. Mm. She is very. She kept up with him. My goodness. Ah. Mm-hmm. Oh. Okay, we're going to do one more tonight. Mm. And Rama's choice here. This is called Secrets of Mount Shasta. Mm. The Ark of Time with Ricardo Gonzalez Corpancho. And um, mm. Mavis Staples, by the way, is doing a hot new piece here. We'll do that another day. I, I know we're going to enjoy that one. Mount Shasta is at the center of many mysteries. The site of close encounters and UFO sightings. Find out why this mountain and many other places on the planet called neutral zones are so special. In this mystical mountain was where Ricardo had the last extraterrestrial meeting with Antarel inside his ship. In this episode, you will learn the details of this astonishing experience. <laughs> We're going to have to have a listen. That's all I can say. Mm-hmm. Are we ready, Rama? Mm. Hmm? Okay. Okay, here we go. This is 29 minutes, everyone. 29 minutes. Rami's going to go look for our Sufi master tonight. If there is a place in the world that brings together underground mysteries and reports of UFO encounters, it is Mount Shasta. What is hidden in the bowels of this mythical California volcano? I'm Ricardo Gonzalez Corpancho. Welcome aboard the Ark of Time. Mount Shasta, located in Northern California, is one of the biggest and most impressive stratovolcanoes in the world. At 14,179 feet high, its gigantic figure is the source of numerous legends, UFO reports, and even extraterrestrial close encounters. But let's start with the name. What does Shasta mean? Historians assume that it's an old indigenous word that means White Mountain. In addition, Shasta has been reported to be the name of an Indian tribe that, in 1840, lived in the vicinity of the volcano. Most likely, the Indians have been so named in honor of the mountain. Regarding its discovery, we know that in 1817, a Spanish explorer, Friar Narciso Duran, was the first to sight the mountain he called Jesus Maria, But several years later, precisely in 1841, the Wilkes Expedition then renamed it Shasti Peak, publishing the first known illustration of Mount Shasta. 
Today, everyone just calls it Shasta, the name displayed on the maps of the United States since 1850. One of the first esoteric writings about Mount Shasta dates back to the year 1886. It was written by Frederick Spencer Oliver. Inhabitant of Two Planets was his work. It is about a pipeline that already mentions an alleged inner temple with Mount Shasta and survivors of Lemuria and Atlantis, information which would later be replicated in Ruskrusian and Theosophist writings. Feeding this idea even further, an idea that seems to be backed by testimony of several visitors to the mountain who affirm to have seen tall human figures dressed in white tunics wandering in the middle of the forest and suddenly they would disappear unexpectedly without a trace. Digging a little deeper into this information, I found the story of a strange discovery occurring in 1904. The protagonist was geologist J.C. Brown from the Lord Calgary Mining Company of London. Brown claimed to have found a tunnel that went into the hollows of Mount Shasta. Intrigued, not thinking much about it, he went inside. When he had gone in, according to his testimony, over three miles, he found traces of copper and gold mining, and this which, according to the geologist, had nothing to do with recent mining activity. Everything seemed very old to him. He looked around the area and then continued through the tunnel, which soon led him to a very large gallery full of metallic objects. There, Brown observed statues of gold and a shiny disc, golden in color. Immediately afterwards, he found some plates that also appeared to be made of gold, which contained symbols similar to Egyptian writing. But that was not all. Brown also claimed to have found 27 skeletons. The extraordinary thing is that some of them measured close to 10 feet tall. According to Brown, two of those giants seemed to be mummified. Years later, precisely in 1931, U.S. esoteric M. Doriel, author of a famous channeling called The Emerald Tablets of Thoth the Atlantean, declared to have found those secret corridors that, according to him, appeared to be Mayan. Nevertheless, even though Brown's study stretched for more than 30 years, specialists questioned his discovery. And the fault lies with Brown himself because he did not want to guide a scientific expedition into Shasta's depths to show his supposed gallery of records. You will recall when we talked about the Cave of Tayus, it is a very similar site. Underground world, secret galleries, metallic plates with symbols, like the ones allegedly found by Morris in Ecuador, for a time held by Celestian Father Carlo Crespi. And apparently, the same situation is found at Mount Shasta, a difficult situation to verify since Brown's testimony could never be confirmed. Nonetheless, Shasta also holds other similarities to the cave of the Tayos, since there in its forests, the presence of small creatures has been reported very similar to the so-called Sunkis. One of the most famous witnesses was physicist Miriam Sharp from the city of Costa Mesa. Now, if all this were true, who is behind those underground galleries in Mount Shasta? We've talked before of the underground world. 
of the possibility of beings from other worlds having chosen the depths of mountains, volcanoes, underground galleries below great deserts to establish their bases. We've talked about survivors of vanished cultures or even about unknown creatures such as the aforementioned Sunkis. Does all this exist on the White Mountain in Northern California? There is an extraordinary story. It really fascinated me when I read it for the first time. Joseph Bloombridge, a NASA aerospace engineer, had an interview with Hopi leader White Bear back in 1970. And White Bear, the Hopi leader, told a fantastic, extraordinary story. According to the native leader, thousands of years ago, there existed a great civilization in the Pacific Ocean called Cascara. This civilization was forced to flee their lands due to a volcanic eruption. Actually, the chain eruption of many volcanoes that ended up plunging this culture into the Pacific Ocean. Those who managed to survive did so thanks to some gods of the stars called Kachinas. Ancient, wise, and venerable, according to what was described by White Bear. These Kachinas came on some flying shields, and they came from Pleiades, from the Pleiades stars. On these flying saucers, the Kachinas rescued some of the inhabitants of Cascara to take them to America. Obviously, Bloomridge was stunned and held a skeptical position for a time, since he believed that these accounts had little validity. But we all remember that Bloomrich himself did a study on the appearance of the glory of God before the biblical prophet Ezekiel. And he ended up convincing himself that what was seen by the prophet was actually an object that appeared to be a vertical takeoff command module, like those used by NASA, and that those wheels and those beings similar to men who appear in his description corresponded to something concrete that Ezekiel, on the shores of the Kebar River, had seen a UFO, an unidentified physical object, outright. And this led to Joseph Bloomrich, despite his credentials as a NASA scientist, to investigate other stories. And this is where the Hopi story comes in, a Hopi story connected to Shasta and other stories. Cascara existed, according to tradition, in the Pacific Ocean. It is also known in the esoteric world as Mu, which gets confused with Lemuria in the Indian Ocean in the southeastern part of Africa. White Bear revealed to the American scientists that the masters of Pleiades, the mysterious Kachinas, led survivors to three specific places in America, those that they managed to save from Cascara. One of them to Mount Shasta in California. Another to the Yucatan Peninsula. And another exactly to Lake Titicaca. Three places that White Bear was able to identify through photographs of these sites. But now we are concerned with Mount Shasta. Who are those who live inside the mountain and do not show themselves openly? Are they by chance descendants of Cascara? as we have talked about in other stories of the extraterrestrial enigma? Have survivors of Cascara and their descendants inside the northern volcano of California protected the legacy of their culture? Would this explain the appearance of tall beings dressed exotically, walking in the middle of the forest 
and then disappearing? Are they physically there? Or is it a holographic memory of a story lost thousands of years ago? Skeptics might say it's just a Hopi story, a myth, a story that we are associating with the isolated report of several people who, with a thirst for extraordinary experiences, visit Mount Shasta. Make no mistake, we would just be scratching the surface of the mystery. Mount Shasta has provided unequivocal proof that it is an authentic place of contact and that a secret lies in its bowels. Personally, although I have not seen those so-called inhabitants from inside Mount Shasta in the middle of the forest, I have indeed been able to witness the UFO activity in that place. Quite remarkable, very important activity, which is even associated with our own contact experiences. As I have said on other occasions, Shasta has been the main location for our scheduled encounters with sightings, with objects, in the presence of journalists, investigators, specialists of the UFO phenomenon. Perhaps the most important case is that of Paula Harris, when in the year 2014, she accompanied us to an area of Mount Shasta called Sand Flat, a large clearing on a plateau in the middle of the forest where Antarel, an entity of extraterrestrial origin and Nordic in appearance, whom I have described in other interviews and TV appearances, emerged there before a large group of witnesses. Paula Harris was completely stunned, impressed when, within the energy that had manifested in the Shasta forest, a bright white energy that was coming from the ground, this tall being arose, practically floating weightless before the witnesses and who spoke perfect English, in the case of Paula Harris's language, in English, and he said, thank you, gracias. Paula didn't understand why this Nordic-looking entity wearing a dark suit would thank her in her language, in English. Then we learned incredibly that this being, Antarel, one of the extraterrestrials associated with the Alpha Centauri case, which we have already discussed, was thanking Paula Harris for her dissemination work in the future regarding these beings. That is, it is as if the message were coming from the future and Paula Harris was listening to it on Mount Shasta in 2014. Why Mount Shasta? According to this entity, Antarel, and other beings of extraterrestrial nature who have manifest themselves there, it is because Mount Shasta, aside from being a great gallery of records, like the cave of Tayos in Ecuador and so many other spots in the world, it is also an entry and exit vortex for these ships, ships already linked to extraterrestrial groups operating in our reality. That's why Shasta is a special contact place for sightings and allows these beings to show themselves more openly when they have so arranged it. Paula Harris has been transformed into one of the main witnesses of a close encounter on Mount Shasta. Her career and prestige in the world of ufology has put the skeptics in check. And on Shasta, on different occasions, we have been able to film anomalous objects flying over the forest. Here are some of the images for you to see. Some objects that were even caught on night vision cameras don't seem to have physical consistency, density, like one might assume of a vehicle, but they look like plasma moving just above the pine trees. These contacts continue to occur in the solitude of Shasta's forests and in similar places across the world.
We call them neutral zones, places of contact that have been marked by the extraterrestrials. What makes them special? Their telluric energy, because Shasta is a volcano, the existence of these extraterrestrial bases, vortices or anomalies that allow connection with those other realities, or the simple fact of being away from big cities is also a strategic requirement. Whatever it may be, it is clear that these contact places are just a reflection of ourselves. Nicholas Rorick called them Jalniks, places of compassion, sites of miracles. But on Mount Shasta, not only have we had sightings of these objects, or the physical presence of beings that we have seen as a group with other witnesses. I know this is going to sound difficult to accept, but on Shasta was the last occasion when I was able to, at least in my perception, physically go inside these beings' ships. It happened on the 26th of August of 2012. I'd been invited to through communications, the echographs that I mentioned, to meet face-to-face with Antarel. The contact was scheduled at night on the Sand Flat Plateau, there on Mount Shasta. I remember we were at the viewpoint on top of the mountain. This was during the day with a large group of people who had participated in one of my expeditions on Mount Shasta. And a metallic object appeared that could be seen perfectly in contrast with the blue sky. We took out our cameras. We wanted to film and photograph it. And although we all saw the object through the cameras, it did not appear in the viewfinder of the cameras. This happened in three cases. We were unable to record video on three different cameras. The sky appeared clear without any kind of anomalous object. And yet we saw the disk. I felt that with this sighting in the middle of the day of a grayish silver object that looked like a disc, these beings were confirming the contact I was going to have that night. When the time came for the experience, we approached Sand Flat and there was no one there. We were alone, no camp or anyone. We started to practice our preparation techniques based on concentration, on mediation to be calmer, focused. At the time that these beings indicated that the contact was going to happen, a very bright object appeared of stunning gold flying above the pine trees. All of the people who were there saw it. We're talking about 12 people. At that moment, the extraterrestrials gave me the feeling that I needed to stand up from my camping chair and approach a clearing in the forest where they had previously, in mental visions, shown me where we would meet. Although I've had these experiences on different occasions, obviously, it's not easy to face. These contacts, although I've seen them several times, I know that they come with positive intentions and that their messages and information are extraordinary, that it has allowed us to reach many people in the world, not to convince them of these experiences, but to invite them to reflect on them. Being exposed again to a similar situation is very complex. I admit that when I walked towards the clearing in the forest, while my companions waited for me at the base, I became nervous. The mere fact of meeting Antarel again 
and possibly visiting one of his ships, as they had previously indicated, it was a very difficult situation for me. But something happened. When I got to the clearing in the forest, I heard some children, what I thought were children, due to their highest-pitched voices, as if at play, doing something, moving around. I couldn't believe it. I was coming to the indicated contact place. There was a clearing in the forest, and I remembered clearly that there was a tree trunk in the area, a fallen tree. When I approached, indeed there were some children, half a dozen of them, very young, maybe between 10 and 12 years old. They were there playing, and it caught my attention that they were in summer clothing, and at that time of night, it was cold. Even though it was August, summertime here in the United States, at night on Shasta, in the mountains, feels quite cold because we are obviously at about 6,500 feet where the camp is. But these children were playing as if it were 75 or 85 degrees Fahrenheit. It caught my attention. I said, are they so focused on playing that they haven't realized it's cold? Sometimes this happens with children. And I was very bundled up, walking towards the anticipated contact. At that time, I forgot about the experience to come, about their invitation, about the sighting of the golden object, about the sighting during the day that we couldn't record on video. I forgot. My nervousness went away because I said, well, an experience is not going to happen here on Shasta. No contact is going to happen. There are some children here. They must be lost. I'm going to approach them to ask, where are your parents? Where are they camping? And then something incredible happened there. When I began to approach the children, they came running towards me. They held hands and formed a circle around me. And they began to go around in a circle around me. At that time, I said, something here is not right. That's when a flash, powerful, white, and very bright, blinded me. It made me close my eyes. I immediately lost contact with the ground. I lost touch with Shasta. I didn't see the children anymore. It was like being inside a white beam of light, something that had already happened to me in a similar experience in the Peruvian desert of Chilca, which I shared in the past on Cosmic Disclosure. Only now it was repeating itself, but on Mount Shasta. And I suddenly appeared in a large circular hall, immaculate white, perhaps 80 feet in diameter. And there is where Antarel appeared. I felt breathless. I remember it now, as if it were happening again. It was gripping. I couldn't discern if what I was going through was real if the children were real, even if my visit to Shasta was real, I wasn't going crazy. I knew all this was happening, but my concept of reality was distorted at that time. Everything went so fast, so sudden, that I didn't know what was going on. Andarel approached me. I've already described him in our other interviews. He's a rather tall man, over eight feet tall approximately. He was dressed in a silver metallic suit. And when he approached me, mentally he told me to be calm, that I was in the right place, that he had taken me inside one of their ships. And I, reacting in a disrespectful way, confused, I asked, but is this real? Am I here with you, inside a ship? And what can you tell me about the children who were down below? I mean, what happened? 
And the extraterrestrial mentally told me the children were created by us. It was a hologram. We did it so that you would become calm, so that we could bring you inside the ship. And although this sounds silly, stupid on my part, and excuse the expression, I said, of course, you had to do a trick to calm me down in order to once again bring me inside one of these objects. And how do I know that this that I am experiencing with you, Antarel, is not another hologram, like you did with the children, who seemed so very real? And he walked towards me, and I got scared. I thought that the extraterrestrial might have gotten angry, and he brought his immense hand closer to my chest and touched me. He touched me. And for the first and only time, he spoke to me. That is, he did not connect his mind with mine, but he spoke to me in a strange, neutral Spanish. And he said, Richard, my name is Ricardo, but my family, my close friends, call me Richard. And curiously, that was the name that Antarel used to speak to me. And he said, Richard, we are your friends. We are your brothers. You are really here touching my chest. In that instant, I knew, although I did not want to accept it, that I was not in a hologram, but inside some place, on a ship which was floating over Sand Flat on Mount Shasta. In this contact, I had a dialogue with these beings to do our first research and expeditions to Altai. It was an area that they indicated to us in Siberia, in Russia, and also in Mongolia, in order to understand all the significance of the movement for the consciousness on the planet level, and some shamanic traditions of that area, which also have a connection with old contacts with extraterrestrials, a subject that perhaps we will address on another occasion. But based on this contact in the year 2012 on Mount Shasta, on this wonderful plateau where we usually camp on sand flat, is when I started researching the secrets of Altai with greater intensity. So Shasta is an ideal contact place, and this is one of the most incredible experiences that I have gone through there. These beings say that contact places are training centers. Mount Shasta is a training center. And there, people who have decided to go there to accept an invitation from these beings may receive information, revelations, one's own experience in itself of the contact to give rise to a transformation, not only individual, but that generates a long-term chain reaction. When one visits places like Mount Shasta, or the desert of Atacama in Chile, or the Chilca Desert in Peru, or Lake Titicaca in Bolivia, or Mount Oritorco in Argentina, or Montserrat in Barcelona, or Monte Perdido, between France and Spain, among so many places in the world that we have visited and investigated, these no longer belong, according to these beings, to planet Earth. They are now considered neutral areas, which we mentioned before. It's like when an American is visiting India. You enter the U.S. Embassy in India. Once you go into the embassy, you're in the United States. Well, something similar happens when these beings invite you to Mount Shasta or similar contact places. When you enter them, you are no longer on Mount Shasta. You are no longer in California. You're not in the United States. You are not on planet Earth. In that context of invitation and acceptance and contact, you are in a neutral area. And as I said, 
the extraterrestrials affirm that the best training is held there, that information is conveyed. In my personal case, I think that I am one of many witnesses in the world who has been going through these types of processes and experiences to make known what we have received in those training places. And I say this with a lot of humility. I think that this work has inspired many others because for decades we have crisscrossed the world, connecting places, living experiences, receiving information, and we've made it known. And today, others are doing it. And it's a chain that won't be interrupted because we are but a small part of a much bigger plan that is moving forward. That's the importance of contact places like Mount Shasta, places that are just a reflection of us. Most importantly, obviously, it is the purpose of the path that we are on. Obviously, these contact experiences do not happen every day. For me, it's been 30 years, 30 years of living experiences, of traveling the world researching this phenomenon with many field visits, many expeditions. And yet, despite the fact that three decades have gone by, only on eight occasions in 30 years, only on eight occasions have I been able to physically see these beings. I think that has been enough to realize the importance of these experiences, of the reality of these contacts, of their global reach. They are the ones who decide under what circumstances in which places they may manifest themselves and to which witnesses. But it always goes along with some higher purpose. As I've always said, I am one of many contact witnesses. I'm not a special person, nor am I chosen in our way of understanding, but I am aware that they considered that through my testimony, it could reach a greater audience. It is also important to clarify that the techniques of the contact principles, as we have discussed on other occasions, are an attempt to communicate with the universe. But to have much more direct and intense experiences, it takes more than a contact protocol. It takes a mutual decision, not only among the witnesses, but with the beings who facilitate these types of encounters. And that is what has happened with us and our research team throughout the years. It is my testimony. It is my experience. And I guarantee you that it is one of many in the world. See you in the next episode. On that occasion, we will travel together towards the enigma of the Maya and prophetic calendars. I'm Ricardo Gonzalez Corpancho, and you're aboard the Ark of Time. He had some E.T. go home experiences. <laughs> okay. All right. So. <sighs> Things are moving right along. That's what I can say. Mm-hmm. I also have a Luna Joy drama. Oh, yeah. Should I read that? Mm. That's long. I know. Or Caroline. Caroline. 
Read Caroline. All right. We shall read Caroline. And we'll do Mavis Staples next week. She's got plenty to say. Um, you want to do that first? Oh, this is a world race, seven minutes. You want to do that first? And then I read Caroline? Okay. You want to do that first? Yeah. Okay, Rama's going to have uh, an Aurora Ray audio here. What does it say, Rama? Uh, the Ascension Code. Decoding Sacred Sciences for Spiritual Evolution. All right. Decoding Spiritual Science. Wait. Decoding what? Sacred Sciences for Spiritual Evolution. Sacred Sciences for Spiritual Evolution. Here we go. Seven minutes. Ascension Manifestation Dear Family of Light When you're first exploring Ascension or the idea of spiritual enlightenment it can seem like a big and complicated concept and to some extent it is but if you take a step back And remember that ascension is about your personal journey of discovery. It doesn't have to be scary or overwhelming. There are many layers to this journey, and each one takes you deeper into yourself, connecting you with all that is around you. It's an exciting process that ultimately leads to profound self-discovery and an increased understanding of your place in the universe. That's why the sacred sciences are so important. They help you expand your consciousness and develop a greater connection with the world around you. Ascension is a path that leads to a greater understanding of yourself and your relationship with the world around you. It's a powerful tool that enables you to transform your life in ways you never imagined. It's also one of the most underutilized tools on the market today. Most people are unaware that such a thing even exists, much less how it can be used to transform their lives. Ascension is real, it's tangible, and you can use it to achieve your goals and desires, no matter how big or small they may be. Let's start with a basic definition of ascension. Ascension is the manifestation of your highest potential, which is your ability to express unconditional love. This is the most basic definition, but it can be expanded to include a number of other concepts that are also important to understand. The first concept is the physical plane. This is where you're at right now. Think of this as being at the bottom of a pyramid shape represented by the Great Tree of Life, also known as the Kabbalist Tree of Life. The base of the pyramid has a lot of energy at its base and then tapers off. This represents your state of life on Earth. Every day you spend on Earth, you are being influenced by your environment, genetics, parents, and culture. The top point of the pyramid represents a higher plane where all things are possible and everything is in divine order. In other words, life runs smoothly and there are no limitations. Here, you have full access 
to all information and wisdom because there are no limitations on what you can do or how much you can learn. You get whatever you want just by thinking about it. There are an infinite number of planes in between these two points that represent different levels of consciousness where life is lived differently. These planes of existence range from the very dense materialistic 3D plane that we live into the higher, more etheric, and interdimensional planes. How do they differ? Let me break it down in simple terms. The higher frequencies on the ascending scale are more etheric and less physical than those below them. They vibrate at much higher rates and have a much lower density than the denser planes below them. They are also less corrupt, filled with people who are all united in their pursuit of love and light. How does all this apply to you? It means that your soul, at some point in its evolution, desires to grow beyond this realm and experience life on other planes of existence. It wants to make the transition from a physical being to a spiritual one, because it knows that this is the purpose for which it was created. This is what ascension is about. Ascension is a path of self-discovery, evolving consciousness, and spiritual enlightenment. It's also a way to connect with your own inner essence, which is a reflection of the divine. The essence within each of us is what we are striving to connect with, for only then can we understand and transcend the physical world into a state of divinity. The journey of ascension will take you on a quest to find your true self and develop your soul power. It will take you on an adventure through ancient wisdom, sacred geometry, sacred sciences, and spiritual practices, expanding consciousness and developing connections. It will also shed light on transcendence and help you understand what ascension really is and where the journey leads. The time is right for you to discover the ancient wisdom that has been lost over the ages. With knowledge comes a deeper understanding of who you are and what it means to be human. Ascension is a personal journey of enlightenment that takes place within the context of your own life. This is why the great works of spirituality were written down for all to read, not just for initiates. From a spiritual perspective, it is said that we move through various stages in life as we evolve towards enlightenment. This can be seen through the various stages of life in cyclical models, such as Hinduism's chakra or Buddhism's wheel of life. It also permeates Kabbalah and other systems of magic as well. The eternal quest for understanding begins with the question, who am I? The answer is that you are a unique and sacred being one worthy of ascension practice. As you pursue this quest, you will discover many answers to questions about your own life, the state of the world, and the universe around us. There are many ways to accomplish your ascension goals, and all of them are valid because they work for you. You could use prayer, divination, or manifestation instead. Many people find that chakra meditation helps them stay motivated and focused on their goal while they're learning how to ascend because it feels good to them. It also has a number of practical applications that can benefit you in many situations throughout your life. Okay. Greeting back. Greetings, everyone. Uh, there's uh, thunderstorms going on in Houston, so send some 
good vibrations, keep all all the lines clear and everything ready to go here. All right. Thank you for your patience, everyone. So we're going to read our message from Caroline and the fairy elders and the angels and uh, all of the beings. So here we go. Greetings, friends. We are very pleased to have this moment to speak with you again today. Today we again speak to an issue raised by a light bringer who asks, there has been a lot of inner work lately for all of us. As stuff comes up more quickly now to be processed, I have, I couldn't help but notice that because of the turmoil, the emotions are strong, then boom, a manifestation happens literally within days or even one day now. How are we supposed to clear that quickly? I spent two hours in nature after experiencing strong emotion and did conscious breathing for a large part of the day. Nope, didn't work. And the next day, there was an event. Some of us have been on that, on the path for a long time now. Why are we instantaneously manifesting a terrible event, but still not getting anything joyful? This seems like a raw deal, unquote. And the collective response. We speak to all when we say, that we are aware of your discomfort at this turn of events. Yet we rejoice that you are increasingly aware of the power of your emotions, even more than that of your words or thoughts, to create events outwardly. We would say that as earth and human consciousness move into the fifth dimension, You will indeed find the world around you increasingly created by projected thought, by the words, the images, and emotions people create within them. This is everyday life in the fifth dimension, and no one ever questions it or is confused by it. Be aware that the delay factor that has long accompanied 3D manifestations on the earth plane does not exist in the higher dimensions. Turn the page. (laughs) And so, as you begin to move forward in your earth's ascension, in your and earth's ascension, you find yourself in a strange moment. It is a kind of void between where you have been and what you are fast moving into. Sometimes those emotions or thoughts are spurred spurred on by outer events, and sometimes they seem to come of their own accord. For example, resonating with the memory of a person or event that feels still to be quite real and present in your life can create a situation, realization, or other synchronicity that echoes your prior experience. 
<clears throat> These odd and sometimes upsetting situations <clears throat> are unfolding now as now as you all, as this dear one says, experience intense emotions due to the sentient light waves coming onto the planet now. It's made it's made the Earth's transformational a transformational environment, one in which many things can be burst or co-created, according to the intentions of the one holding the intense emotional energy or powerful intent. These events can very quickly sprout from the words emotions or imaging of human beings now particularly those who are conscious and aware and therefore coming into their manifestation power all the more fully now. These outpicturing moments are gifts despite how they may appear at times. And so why? As these instantaneous manifestations are occurring for so many now, why are they not always the joyful kind. You are aware that in this unprecedented time of healing for your earth and her beings, there is much coming to the surface that is that in the past was powerfully suppressed. These are powerful understandings, understandings, overstandings, realizations and experiences whose existence was so fully denied so badly discouraged for many centuries. That one feared punishment to even speak of them. That long area is era is over now. Not because your former overlords are suddenly desiring that truth be known. That time is ending due to both the astrological occurrences that have heralded a new era of sentient light and higher consciousness, and a powerful decision made by Earth and her beings. You decided time, some time ago, on a higher level of your consciousness, that now would be a new time of freedom, truth, and enlightenment. Greetings, everyone. Let's just say, tonight we'll say, uh, blaze the violet fire and send good protection energy and safe vibrations. There's a really serious storm, thunderstorm and lightning storm, I believe, going on in Houston. So we will say aloha for now and keep the lines clear. And so much love, everyone. And we will see you in your dreams on the ships. And inshallah, satnam. Satnam, deed. 13 thank yous, honey in the art. Heart, no evil, live long and prosper. Much aloha. And come and join Cheryl Croce's show, her program, uh, real quick tomorrow and Monday evening. <gasps> a little before 7 Mountain, that would be 9 o'clock Eastern. And the number is, ready? 425-436-6260. And the pin code is, uh, 
946-7441 pound. And what's Cheryl's email address, Rama? Cheryl Croce at AOL.com. Cheryl Croce at AOL.com. For anything else that you need to know, she's got all kinds of information about how you can join us. Please do. This is the most critical time. Nasara now. Namaste, everyone. We love you. So much good vibrations. Namaste. Namaste.